Looking inside the window into Amos Miller's farm store operation here. We have multiple state troopers inside. We have coolers there on the ground that have been filled with product. Now, as the seasons change, Miller's farm is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the federal government to protect himself and independent farmers all over the country. My goal is to leave an example for the generations to come so the future generations can farm like our grandfathers did. The way God wants us to be sustainable, without genetically modified seeds, without synthetic fertilizers. Uh, we just want to live off the land and take care of God's nature. Amos Miller is an independent organic farmer in Burdenham, a remote Amish village in central Pennsylvania. The farm has everything, pasture-raised, grass-fed cattle, to grass-fed raw dairy like yogurts, cheeses, and butters. The farm raises chickens, pigs, and even water buffalo. Everything is raised in pastures without any pesticides, GMO feed, or synthetic hormones. It's these reasons, holistically grown organic meat and dairy, that people all over the country signed up to be a part of Miller's private food club. I think they, they want to have the connection to the farm, and they, and they see the actual practices being done on the farm, and they trust the way we do things. They educate themselves, and they truly believe that food from grass-fed cows, um, access to sunshine and fresh air does affect their, their overall health. But unfortunately, this is also the reason that the federal government and all of its might is coming after him. Several months ago, Amos's farm was raided by armed federal agents, the U.S. Marshal Service. They're also trying to economically cripple the independent farmer with hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. The government says that Amos must cease operations because he doesn't adhere to the USDA standards the very reason that so many of Amos's customers get their food from him. Amos argues that U.S. government food regulations exist chiefly to strip small organic producers of their independence. They're also financially intensive, making it so only the large producers are able to afford and stay in business. By cutting the government out of his operations, he's effectively cutting out the middleman. The government siphons money out of these small farms through expensive, quote, user fees. The government is using a health and safety justification to come after Miller's farm. According to U.S. Representative Thomas Massey, it's instead corrupt financial incentives that are behind it. He explained correctly that Amos is still able to sell camel milk and water buffalo meat. Why? He said because there's no corporate camel milk lobby or industrial buffalo meat lobby embedded at the USDA or walking the halls of Congress with campaign checks. Meaning even though he processes all sorts of animal meat and dairy at the farm, the USDA is only concerned about the way in which he raises and processes cattle because they're funded by the animal-specific industry. More so, Amos and his customers argue that the USDA mandates food be processed and produced in ways that actually make the food less nutritious. Amos believes if they can bring down his operation under dubious reasoning and harmful regulations, other farmers will be next, putting the entire food system at stake of being transformed in the vision of the industry-backed government and WEF aligned. 
depletes. Amos noted that over the past few years, more and more valuable independent farmers have been getting shut down by the government. Legally representing Amos is constitutional whiz and veteran lawyer Robert Barnes. Barnes explained to the Lancaster Patriot, a local newspaper in Amos's area, that, quote, this is about power. Who has the power to choose what I eat, what I put into my own body? It's an extension of the vaccine mandate dispute. It's an extension of a range of controversies currently raging across the country about the Constitution and our laws and the role of the federal government in our lives. Next week, Rebel is going to sit down with Robert Barnes for an exclusive interview and discuss what this case means for independent farmers, food sovereignty, bodily autonomy, and freedom in general. Please. Most Americans are the same as the British. Well, our food supply is poison. Yeah. It was taken over by one group of people and they own the rights to the seeds and all of that type of stuff. And they forced out all the. If their seeds blew onto their property, they could sue them for using their seeds. What's up, everybody? Sorry about that rough transition, but welcome to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we're doing a solo show for the first time in quite a while. You know, I've I've been sitting on this topic. It's it's something that I've talked about before, but I've been kind of building up to doing a big show. All about food, land, and guns, which, in my opinion, are perhaps the only three things that really matter. You know, I don't want to say they're the only things that matter, but they certainly matter a fuck ton. Food, land, and guns. These are three very, very important issues. They are the issues that determine how free we are. And I'm, you know, I've got a lot of material to go through. My intention with this episode is to take my time to cover this topic or you know these topics you know um thoroughly i want to be thorough and i'm trying something here i'm doing it solo because oftentimes when i do a wtf forum i i'm worried about the time oh we've been going for two and a half hours i don't know should i play this next clip should i try to wrap it up you know it's the pressure of having other folks in the forum that that kind of puts the pressure on even though maybe it shouldn't right i'm starting to think maybe the wtf forum should start earlier and go longer but in the meantime i wanted to cover this one um by myself and uh, kind of see where it takes me. There's, there's, like I said, a whole lot to it. But we're going to start by talking about land. And the fact that the federal government sure seems to own quite a bit of land. You know, not to mention Bill Gates, 
and the CCP. You know, I'm talking about just what our own federal government has purchased. You know, how much of the North American continent is controlled by the Fed? Westward Expansion, the Louisiana Purchase, and the Homestead Act. If you've made your way through the American school system, chances are you've encountered at least one of these historical markers of America's terrain. Because the United States is a country often defined by its public lands, lands that occupy a large amount of our country, but can be difficult to define, have muddied and complicated pasts, and uncertain futures. Some of America's 650 million acres of land allow for the outdoor recreational activities that many Americans love. But much of this public land is defined broadly and is overseen by a number of different departments. Understanding the makeup of our public lands, then, is important to comprehending how we treat our treasured landscapes. So today, let's parse out exactly what the United States' public lands are and how they've grown into a battleground between federal and states' rights. Federally owned lands come from a variety of past land purchases, broken treaties, colonization, and state sessions. With the passage of the Homestead Act in 1862, much of this federally owned land was transferred into the hands of private citizens in order to drive development in the Western territories. As a result, Eastern and Midwestern land was claimed by private interests like ranchers and miners. Homesteading was much harder in the West, however, due to its poor soil conditions and rocky terrain. So much of the public lands in the West and Alaska are still managed by government agencies. But this land is not patrolled by government agents stopping everyone from stepping onto its borders. In fact, most of it is accessible to hikers, bikers, miners, loggers, and oilmen. This is where America's public lands get confusing. It's classifications. There are five agencies that oversee public lands in the United States. The Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Park Service, and the Department of Defense. Each have their own niche, but all work in tandem to manage the vast federal lands throughout the country. For example, the National Park Service almost exclusively deals with 417 quote-unquote units consisting of national monuments, battlegrounds like Gettysburg, and parks like Yellowstone. But the vast majority of lands are overseen by the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM for short, and the Forest Service. The two deal with a complicated balance of multiple usage. Or, as the Congressional Research Service puts it in their overview of the United States' federal lands agencies, BLM management responsibilities are similar to those of the Forest Service. Sustained yields of multiple uses, including recreation, grazing, timber, watershed, wildlife and fish habitat, and conservation. In essence, their job is to manage public lands in such a way that a hiker and a logger might use the landscape for generations to come. As a result of this seemingly conflicting mission statement, these agencies are criticized constantly for either too much or too little management. 
We can see this dissension at play across modern history in cases like the Sagebrush Rebellion. The first iteration of this so-called rebellion began in the late 1970s as a reaction to the 1976 Federal Land Policy Management Act, which High Country News notes shifted the BLM's mandate from one of maximizing extraction to one that attempts to preserve public lands to some extent. Combined with previous legislation like the Wilderness Act in 1964, which allowed Congress to portion off wilderness areas in public lands, federal land management started to lean more towards preservation. So those who made their living on the resources of public lands felt as if they had been fouled by an overbearing landlord. Political groups and local communities reacted accordingly. They sought to gain more control of public lands by seeking to transfer management to the state and local levels. However, this would eventually lead to many states selling off land to private interests in order to balance their budgets. Although the rebellion eventually diffused with the election of Ronald Reagan, who associated strongly with the rebellion mentality, the battle over federal versus local management continues to simmer. Most recently, it exploded into an armed takeover of a wildlife refuge in Oregon by Amon Bundy and his brothers, who sought to protest what they saw as a federal overreach on BLM-managed ranching lands. Well, the people need to be in control of their own land. Clearly, public land management is a complex issue tied up in not only the best practices of land conservation, but also in livelihoods and larger historical battles over federal regulation. With Trump in the White House, the issue of federally controlled lands now leans towards a lighter regulatory stance that favors extraction industries seeking more resources to fuel their businesses. We can see this most clearly in the controversy surrounding Bears Ears National Monument. The 1.35 million acre area of land was originally proposed by a coalition of five Native American nations in order to protect their historical and cultural landscapes. In December of 2016, Obama used the 1906 Antiquities Act to proclaim Bears Ears a national monument. This would bar new mineral extraction and be overseen by a commission consisting of one elected official from each of the five Native American nations. However, most recently, Trump shrunk the borders of the National Monument by 85% in order to open land up for oil interests and extraction. And in this way, the Trump administration revealed its clear business-heavy stance towards public lands. As long as public lands exist in the United States, there will always be a struggle between federal oversight and private concerns. This is merely a reflection of the varied interests of those that use America's public lands. America's landscapes are steeped in layered meanings that make up a complicated balance of use and management. And it's here that the federal government attempts the ever difficult task of creating and shaping a landscape rooted in culture, business, and identity. All right. So as many of you might know, I studied outdoor recreation, parks, and human ecology. That's what they called it when I went to school. You know, they had had, they had had kind of a rebranding shortly before I got there. 
It used to be outdoor recreation and resource management. Now, when I was going to school, I pretty much, you know, swallowed what they dished out. I pretty much assumed that the national parks and the National Forestry Service and the Bureau of Land Management were, generally speaking, benevolent. But over time, I started to understand that it's a little more complicated than that. You know, the federal government had to take these lands. They didn't just have a right to them. They, they took them. And they continue to take them. Now, over the course of this episode, I intend to point out multiple sides of this very complicated issue. And you'll see, you'll see as I go, but it's not so simple. You know, who, who has a right to the land is not such a simple question. As we see with the Israel-Palestine conflict, it's not simple. So let me, let me keep going here. You know, I want to keep kind of giving you context as we go, but um, I'm saying, y'all, the only three things I think that matter are land, food, and guns. The United States of America, you to Hawaii and Alaska to scale for once. Ever since these states united to create America, the federal government of America, they and she fought mightily over the land, which plains or forests or mountains or swamps to end up in each hand. On the map, it looks like states hold all the cards, but they don't. Just under one third of land in the United States is federal, but that's an average. Looking at the percent of federal land in the states, the wester we go, the federaler the land, and the less of the state that's in each state. There's eastern states with under 1% federal land and five western states that control less than half of the land in their borders. How? What? First thing first, how did this happen? America wasn't always the mighty united. Like us all, she started small, when states were young, new, and few, giving away but little for her to play. But then America grew, Louisiana purchasing, Mexican sessioning, and manifest destining her way across the continent. But in this age of empires, it won't do any good to say she owns the land unless she gets her citizens out there to occupy the vast, totally unoccupied continent. So America turns from hoarder to minimalist, disposing of as much of the land to new states and new settlers as she can, sometimes giving it away in literal races, where plots of land were drawn, homesteaders waited at a starting line, and bang, first family to a plot owns that plot. Says who? says America. She's booting up a private property ladder from virgin land using contracts and guns. 10% of all the land in the U.S. was given away for free just to get people out west. See also railroad companies which got the land either side of any track they could build for the length of a continent. If you could live on or improve the land in the 1800s, America would probably give it to you. 
but by the 1900s, most of the states are mostly in place, and the age of empires and wagons westward is over. But America still had a ton of land she didn't or couldn't give away. And now that the states are settled, well... What she has is all she will ever have. She turns away from her gifting minimalism and becomes a curator of her collection of land. This change was rather a shock to states expecting the land in their borders would be land in their borders. That federal land would continue to be turned over as it had for a century, but no. Thus, this map and a lot of angry western states now up against a fully operational federal government altering the deal. Some states like poor Utah and Nevada found themselves with hardly any state in their state. Or, hey, hey, what about the reservations? Are you going to talk about them? Are they federal land? Some of us have a lot of reservations in our state. Ah, the reservations. Yes. What a great story for another time. Look, we can't do the reservations right now. We just can't. Okay, history aside, America has all this land now, but like, what is it for? What is it for? A lot. Almost all of the following will have an in general before it, because there are almost 2,000 separate bureaucracies administering land that, were it a single country, would be in the top 10 list of biggest countries. But in general, most of the federal land falls under the control of the president, to whom a dozen secretaries report, of which we care about three that run five departments. First, the Department of Defense. She runs military bases and nuclear silos and all the toys of war. America has to keep them somewhere, and if Roraside taught her anything, it's don't trust the states with weapons. So keep them close on federal land, she does. While America's military is big, the Department of Defense holds the least land of the top five. Next is the National Park Service, the Grand Canyon and Yellowstone and Blue Ridge Mountains. If there's an epic vista you visited or heard of in America, it's probably one of hers. National Parks is the celebrity of the group and can really stand out. Next biggest is the Fish and Wildlife Service, much less known, except if you're in Alaska, where 85% of her land is. Fish and Wildlife is in the business of animal conservation, keeping land for America's species under her aegis not to be developed. Then there's the Forest Service, often confused with national parks, but not remotely the same. There's many a breathtaking national forest you can hike through, but they're not parks. They're more America's resource tiles, least for logging plus grassland tiles for grazing. Forest Service's job is to balance extraction with maintenance. How well she does this is an endless source of argument between America and the states and the companies that want to use those resource tiles. It's a job that guarantees someone is always going to be angry. Only you can prevent forest fires? That's the Forest Service, because she deals with these kinds of fires as well as these kinds of fires. And it's a job she splits with the last and the biggest, the Bureau of Land Management. She does it all, from resolving cow disputes, to leasing land for mining, to building parks, to preserving the coastal waters of California, which, surprise California, are federal land. BLM does a lot and is the biggest, which can make it very confusing about which agency does what. But think of it this way. There are three goals, conservation, recreation, extraction. BLM does all three. FS does conservation and extraction. FNW does conservation. NPS conservation, recreation. Again, in general. These four plus war control 97% of federal land. The last 3% is miscellaneous, used by departments like the Postal Service or NASA or the Department of Energy or others. Okay, this is lovely, but like, what does it mean to say that land is federal? 
Is it part of the state or not? Well, this brings up the delicate and sensitive balance of power between the states and America. And there's an enormous amount of words, words, words around the sovereignty of governments. But ultimately, federal land belongs to America, and she can do with it what she wants, and the states have to just suck it. Most starkly in Nevada, where federal land was used for nuclear bomb testing. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big hole you punched in Nevada, America. Oh, not just the ones. Oh. 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 When push comes to shove, America can shove. That's the most extreme example, but federal lands will often have their own separate federal law enforcement officers like the Investigative Services Branch, a kind of FBI for national parks. Though state borders do matter here, for lesser crimes, federal officers will often dump suspects into the state courts to deal with. Private citizens can't buy property on federal land. There are Americans who will tell you they live in a national park. Cape Cod and Fire Island national parks are examples of this. But if you zoom into official maps, you'll often find find hilarious borders that swoop around and in between developed and undeveloped areas. There's also military bases, which will have soldiers living in them, but they can't own anything. And because it's federal land, the Department of Defense that builds the housing can ignore all a state's laws about housing or health codes. So a state can't control in a meaningful way federal land in her borders. Hundreds of acres of federal grassland might suddenly be filled with grazing cattle or POW be declared a national monument and preserved forever or plumbed for oil and mined for minerals, with the state just standing on the sidelines watching. Thus, states can't build their own towns or parks or factories in federal land to, you know, collect any taxes from the land, which once America made her intention to keep federal land forever, made the states with a lot of it start to grumble, 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 grumble. Fine, I'll give you payment in lieu of taxes. Are you happy now? Is this a joke? Is, is this for real? Grumble, 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 grumble. All of this means today there's a big political divide between the states that have a lot of federal land and the states that don't, with eastern states thinking of federal land as belonging to the nation as a whole, which is easy to do when you don't have a lot of it within your borders, and federal land to you means visiting Glacier National Park on vacation. Meanwhile, western states are getting nuclear bombs detonated in their backyards and compensation they don't think is fair for land that affects them that they can't control. There's a million more complications this simplification can't possibly cover. But the best way to think about federal land is that while it may be in a state, it is not of the state. Okay, so again, this is, this is a big topic, folks. This is massive. I've been sitting on this concept for this episode for some time. And I've, I've hit on some of these themes before, you know, maybe most notably I did a show, um, I want to say it was called an anarchist take on public land. And I can't tell you what the episode number was. Maybe I'll, I'll try to put it in the, uh, show notes, but the point is, um, the government controls quite a bit of land. And they do it in a variety of ways. Now, I want to I wanna go back in time 
to something that we were not taught in school. We were never taught about a civil war, a small, you know, lowercase civil war that happened in Missouri between the Mormons and the U.S. federal government. Now, I, I've poked fun at the Mormon church, but in reality, I have a lot of respect because Mormons, you know, I lived in Utah for a year working for the National Park Service. I was an intern at a place called Capitol Reef. Again, if you've been listening to the show, you already know. But I I lived in the desert for a year, and I got to learn a thing or two about the U.S. National Park Service and the Mormons and these two different entities have been at odds for a very, very long time. And they don't teach us about this in school, okay? They don't. So give me a second here. Let me pull up the video. You know, I actually have not watched this video, but I'm just taking a chance here. Um, we're 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 kind of flying by the seat of our pants, but you know how it goes. This is the easy peasy podcast, and we do what we want. So bear with me. Like I said, this might be kind of a long one for a solo show, but I'm gonna do my best. So. This is the Mormon Wars in Missouri. On October 27, 1838, Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs released Executive Order Number 44 and mustered 2,500 state militia to put down a Mormon insurrection against the state. The order simply stated that the Mormon population had to get out of the state of Missouri or face extermination. Hello everyone, I'm Julian Gower, and if you're new here, I get out and about and I go explore and learn the history surrounding the Kansas-Missouri border. And this week I visited Liberty, Missouri, and the jail that housed Mormon prophet Joseph Smith in 1838. And I learned about the history of violence that surrounded the Mormons in Missouri. But before we get into it, I wanted to let everyone know that this is not a video about the Mormon religion, about their beliefs or doctrine. I'm not a Mormon and I don't know much about their religion. This video is about the conflict between the Mormons and the non-Mormon Missouri settlers. And it was prompted by my visit to the Old Liberty Jail. So what happened? How did these two groups of settlers get to the point where one of them was banished from the state? Let's go check it out. Joseph Smith was a prophet and the founder of Mormonism, also known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in 1830, he published the Book of Mormon, and it gained a substantial following. The home base for the church was in Kirtland, Ohio, 
But in 1831, Smith proclaimed that the site of New Jerusalem was in Jackson County, Missouri, and that the town of Independence was the center place of Zion, the Garden of Eden. And towards the end of 1831, many Mormons began to start settling in Independence. The non-Mormon citizens did not like people moving into the area who did not hold the same political, cultural, or religious ideas that they did, and tensions started to grow quickly. According to understandingmormonism.org, the reason the Mormons were looked at with suspicion was they were poor, their religious differences stirred up prejudices, their eastern customs and dialect were alien to the Missourians, they opposed slavery, and Missouri was a big old slave state, and they believed that the Native Americans were God's chosen people destined to inherit the land of Missouri, and many people believed that the Mormons were going to aid the slaves and the Native Americans in rebellion and help them inherit that land that they owned. On July 20th, four to 500 non-Mormon Missouri citizens met at the courthouse in Independence where they determined that no more Mormons were going to be allowed in the area and any Mormons that were already in the area, they had to leave the county. The situation escalated and the non-Mormon settlers quickly turned into a mob and they destroyed the Mormon printing office and the press in Independence. On July 23rd, the mob returned, but this time they burned Mormon fields and destroyed Mormon homes. Six leaders of the Mormon church offered their lives in exchange for the safety of the rest of the members. Their offer was turned down and they were forced to sign an agreement that they would be out of the county by April 1st, 1834. The Mormons complied and moved north of the Missouri River into Clay and Ray counties and tensions eased. Until 1836, when Joseph Smith relocated the headquarters of the church that had been in Kirtland, Ohio, to a new settlement called Far West in what was then Ray County. And with that, there was an influx of Mormons, and tensions began again. On December 29, 1836, Governor Lilburn Boggs signed a bill that made Ray County three counties, Ray, Caldwell and Davies, and it was with the understanding that Caldwell County was specifically for Mormon settlement. A new settlement of Far West had just been created, and that was just north of a strip of land called Bunkman's Strip. This three-mile strip was a no-man's land. No one was allowed to settle there. It was a barrier between the Mormons and the citizens of Ray County. There was also a three-mile strip to the north that separated Caldwell from Davies County. On May 19, 1838, Smith formally revealed his belief that the site Adam Ondia Aham was the place where Adam and Eve went after being exiled from the Garden of Eden. He said it would be a gathering place on the Judgment Day, and according to the Latter-day Saints tradition, this site is to be a gathering spot prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the problem here is that this was in Davies County, not in Caldwell County, and before too long, the Mormon population around there began to reach a level where they could determine election results in the county. That did not sit well with the non-Mormon settlers. It made them nervous and agitated, and you see, the Mormons were supposed to stay in Caldwell County, but they didn't. They settled in the counties all around there, and many saw this as a break in the agreement with the government. On July 4th, Sidney Rigdon, who was one of the church leaders, gave an Independence Day speech in front of Mormons and non-Mormons. 
and in it he declared that the Latter-day Saints would no longer be driven from their homes by persecution. And that mob that comes on us to disturb us, it shall be between us and them a war of extermination, for we will follow them until the last drop of their blood is spilled, or else they will have to exterminate us, for we will carry the seat of war to their own houses and their own families, and one party or the other shall be utterly destroyed. And as well you can imagine, non-Mormons took this as a direct threat. On August 6, 1838, about 200 non-Mormons in the town of Gallatin in Davies County tried to prevent Mormons from voting and electing their candidate. It all stemmed from a local politician who spewed anti-Mormon sentiment during his campaign. He riled up the non-Mormon population. A brawl ensued. No one was hurt physically, but tempers were brewing. This is considered the first conflict in what would be called the 1838 Mormon War. A man named Henry Root, who was a non-Mormon, sold his town named of DeWitt to the church. Now, this property was in Carroll County, and the church tried to settle it. Some Carroll County citizens didn't want the Mormons there, so they tried to intimidate them. They took some families hostages. They burned barns. Joseph Smith begged the settlers to come back to Far West, but they refused. On September 20th, about 150 armed men rode into DeWitt and demanded that the Mormons leave within 10 days. Carroll County forces sealed off the town, but the Mormons were able to send for assistance to Governor Boggs. And on October 6th, General Parks arrived with the Ray County militia, but his order to disperse was ignored by the mob and he was forced to withdraw. On October 9th, he returned to DeWitt to report to the Mormons that the governor's response to their plea for help was that the quarrel was between the Mormons and the mob and that they should just fight it out. With no help from the governor, the Mormon leaders agreed to abandon the settlement and headed to far west for protection. On October 18th, a group of Mormon vigilantes known as the Danites attacked three Missourian settlements, Gallatin, Millport, and Grindstone Fork. The Mormons plundered the property and burned the stores and houses. The Davies County seat of Gallatin, where the Election Day brawl took place, was completely gutted. A militia under the command of Samuel Bogart was ordered to patrol the no-man's land between Ray and Caldwell counties. Instead of staying in the strip, he passed into Caldwell County and began to harass Mormons. Mormon leaders were told that the militia had taken Mormon prisoners and an armed party was quickly gathered to attempt a rescue. The state militia was camped along Crooked River in the Buncombe Strip just south of Caldwell County. According to RayCountyMuseum.org, the Mormon Rescue Company approached from the north along the main road. At daybreak on the 25th, the Mormons encountered the militia's sentries. A brief firefight ensued with each side testifying that the other had fired first. The Mormon Company approached the camp of the Ray County Militia and formed a battle line in three columns led by David W. Patton, Charles C. Rich, and Patrick Dufry. A general firefight commenced, but the militia was situated behind the riverbank and held the strategic superior position. Patton decided to charge the militia position, shouting the Mormon battle cry of God and liberty. The Missourians were without swords and so broke their lines and fled across the river in all directions. 
the Mormons suffered three fatalities and eight wounded, the Missourians, one killed and one wounded. On October 27, 1838, after sticking his head in the sand way too long to be able to control the situation, Governor Lilburn Boggs signed Missouri Executive Order Number 44, and that order stated, the Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for the public peace. He then mustered 2,500 state militia to put down what he perceived to be a Mormon insurrection against the state. And here's an interesting fact. That order was not rescinded until June 25th, 1976. On October 30th, 1838, 240 men approached Hans Mill. Now, this was a Mormon settlement in Caldwell County, and it had a mill, a blacksmith shop, and a few homes. There were about 20 to 30 families that lived near the mill and another 100 families that lived in the surrounding area. Many of the women and children were able to escape into the woods, but those who stayed were met with 1,600 bullets in an attack that lasted 30 minutes. Anyone left alive after the attack was shot dead, and that sadly included three children under the age of 12. All in all, 17 Mormons died. Acting on the governor's executive order, a Missouri army lay siege on far west. Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Lyman White, Parley P. Pratt, and George Robinson all surrendered to the army in hopes of saving the town and the citizens. But once the leaders were gone, the militia ransacked the town, they confiscated all of the arms, and they looted and burnt the property. Smith and the other leaders were taken to Liberty, where Smith was quickly tried and illegally condemned to death. Alexander William Donovan, who was a brigadier general in the Missouri militia and present at the trial, refused to carry out the order to kill Smith and saved his life. The five leaders were charged with treason against the state, murder, arson, burglary, robbery, and larceny, and they spent the next five months prisoners in the Liberty Jail during a very, very frigid Missouri winter. And this is the jail I went to see that led me to this story. This jail was built in 1833, and it was used until 1856. It is 22 feet square and has two levels. The inner and outer walls together are four feet thick, and loose rock was placed between the walls to thwart any attempt at burrowing through. They even put rocks up there in the attic. The jailer occupied the upper floor, and the lower section was used to house the prisoners and was accessed through a trapdoor from the upper floor. There were two narrow windows that were two feet wide and six inches high with iron bars, and that was supposed to provide fresh air and the cold. Joseph Smith called it the pit. He wrote, We are kept under a strong guard night and day. Our food is scant uniform and coarse we have not the privilege of cooking for ourselves we have been compelled to sleep on the floor with straw and not blankets sufficient to keep us warm and when we have a fire we are obliged to have almost a constant smoke they did attempt to escape twice but they failed on April 6, 1839, an armed guard escorted the prisoners from the jail in Liberty to their trial in Boone County. 
but they never made it. The guards allowed them to escape. Joseph Smith and the others escaped to Illinois, never to return to Missouri. The rest of the church that was here in the state of Missouri were driven out, and they found sanctuary in Nauvoo, Illinois, where Smith became the mayor. However, he used his influence to have a newspaper that was critical of his teachings destroyed. He and his brother Hiram were arrested and were charged with treason and conspiracy. They were awaiting trial when on June 27, 1844, a mob stormed in and murdered both Hiram and Joseph Smith. Five men were later tried for Smith's murder, but they were all acquitted. The Missouri-Kansas border area is full of incredible history like this. If you like this video, please consider... All right. So, you know, I'm, I'm no fan of the Mormon church. But I am a fan of their history. And I suppose I'm a fan of their unwillingness to be eradicated you know i have respect for the mormons though i think their beliefs are misguided i i have immense respect they refused to be eradicated right and if we can't respect a group for Anything else, I think we should respect them for that. Um, let me let me give you some more. This is kind of the spread of, of Mormonism, of the Mormon people. And truth be told, you know, we're going to talk a lot about how the federal government seems to control a lot of land. But the question is, do they really? Do they practically i mean how many feds does it take to control the desert the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints or the mormons as they're more colloquially known are typically regarded as more adherent more consolidated and more organized than other christian denominations in the modern day even despite some not recognizing them as properly christian given their notably distinct practices from catholic and protestant norms the strong emphasis placed on family building, promotion of the faith both in daily life and through missionary work, as well as a strong in-group identity has allowed the Mormons to remain united as a community and gradually expand from their central hub of Utah into every surrounding state, and moreover, across the globe, though the western United States remains their area of greatest concentration. Historic trends of high birth rates, continued adherence throughout life, and high conversion rates have led many to conclude that Mormonism is an especially effective religious movement, one which has seemingly surpassed its Catholic and Protestant counterparts in regard to relative growth, has endured the wave of secularization experienced across the world since the late 20th century, and some speculate that on a long enough timeline, Mormonism will grow to become the foremost religion of the United States and rival other denominations on the global scale. At present, Mormons account for less than 1% of the total global population and only 2% of the total American population, which isn't terrible given the church was first established back in 1830. Once again, the growth rate of the Mormon faith is also notably higher than other Christian denominations, virtually all mainline Protestant and Catholic churches experiencing a proportional loss in representation among the total population, while Mormonism has generally kept pace with or exceeded population growth. Though that being said, the growth of the church has slowed down significantly since the year 2000, but this may have more to do with overall declining population growth trends rather than faults within the church itself. The church has fallen from a growth rate of almost 4% in 1999 to less than 1% in 2020. 
The U.S. population growth rate in 1999 was just 1.23%, falling to just about 0.6% in 2020, hitting the same percentage mark as Mormon growth in that year. So while Mormon growth has slowed, this almost certainly goes hand-in-hand hand with the slowing of America's overall population growth, not from declining Mormon efficacy. However, despite some claims, Mormonism isn't immune to secularism either, and like many other denominations, the Mormons are seeing a larger section of their following leaving the church than ever before. But in this regard, the Mormons still seem to retain a firm grasp over a greater proportion of their followers than do Catholicism or Protestantism, and moreover appear to have a much more active and devout youth population than do their contemporaries, almost certainly a result of the greater ties between faith, family, and community explicitly promoted by the church as an integral part of the faith. How the church responds to increasing secularization depends heavily upon the direction of the greater Western culture as a whole. As secularization does appear to be a cultural phenomenon which is currently impacting Christianity most significantly, but not exclusively. Perhaps most discouraging for the church is their slight decline of prominence within their core state of Utah. Once comprising approximately 70% of the state's population back in 1990, but now standing at only about 60%. It's been suggested that this decline is attributable to the simple expansion of the Mormon population out of Utah and into other states and countries, and this would appear to be an expected outcome given declining growth rates, not a massive drop in the state's population, but a gradual drop. That being said, the church has historically quarreled with the question of centralization of authority. Whether it should focus on solidifying its hold over lands where Mormons have or could have a great degree of influence on politics and culture, or if decentralization should be pursued to make the faith more palatable to new converts in different parts of the world. Given the shaky population issue and the uncertainty of how long secularization will remain a prominent cultural force, the church would be wise to focus on securing what it has and doubling down on spreading the faith at a more local level. All in all, Mormonism, despite the demographic and secular issues facing America and American Christianity as a whole, do appear to be performing well given the circumstances, though perhaps not as dramatically well as some might suggest. That being said, the United States is experiencing a period of great turbulence and division. History has shown that division tends to allow groups with a strong and distinct identity to thrive and further differentiate themselves if they can endure that turbulence. The Mormon Church happens to represent one of the most well-educated, well-networked, and wealthiest churches in the world, with an estimated net worth of over $100 billion. Of the many distinct groups which comprise modern America, the Mormons find themselves in good standing to establish an autonomous province or state should the sustainability of the United States as a single country ever come into question. However, there is still much to be seen in regard to how the church responds to some of these issues facing it and the wider culture as a whole. Adaptability through continued revelation is a great advantage of the Mormon faith, however it is also something which could leave it susceptible to the tides of politics and culture, if said politics and culture are moving contrary to fundamental Mormon doctrine. Is Mormon America inevitable? Not quite, but it's definitely possible leaning into probable, and only time will reveal whether this dial is moving more toward inevitability or impossibility. Alright guys, so in the last episode we covered the pioneer trek along the Mormon Trail to what would later be known as Utah. The first advance company set eyes on the Salt Lake Valley on July 21st, 1847. A very sick Brigham Young and the rest of the first company came rolling in on July 24th. In this episode, we're going to look at what these first settlers did during these first few crucial years after arriving. Let's do it. Within about a week after arrival, the Saints accomplished a lot. They made camp near City Creek, near modern-day Washington Square. They organized themselves and planted a garden where this Ken Garf building now stands. Exploration parties went north, south, and west. It was during this short expedition that Brigham Young and the Northern team first scaled the famous Ensign Peak. Trade with Native Americans commenced, largely with the Ute and Shoshone tribes. 
Brigham and other leaders outlined a city plan centered around a patch of ground where Brigham had stuck his cane in the dirt and declared, here shall stand the temple of our God. Salt Lake City is known in part for its very wide streets. I remember as a kid hearing the old joke that this was because Brigham Young wanted enough room to walk down the street next to all of his wives. The real reason was reportedly so that ox teams could turn around without having to back up. By the end of July, 53 acres of land had been plowed and planted with more on the way and the population of the settlement had grown to about 400. The first structure built in the valley was an open air bowery similar to this one used for public gatherings and meetings. The saints were soon busy constructing a fort where modern day Pioneer Park now is and rudimentary homes made from logs and or adobe bricks. Many of the incoming pioneers in these early years, including Brigham Young and other leaders, renewed their baptismal covenants by being re-baptized. There was nothing wrong with their original baptism. This was just a way to rededicate themselves to the Lord as they began to rebuild their lives in the valley. But remember that while all of this was happening in the valley, there were about 1,500 saints still crossing the plains, with thousands more still around winter quarters prepping to leave. Many of the men in the advance party had family that still needed to make the trip. Thus, on August 26th, only about a month after arriving, Brigham Young, all of the available apostles, and more than 150 others turned around, left their promised land, and set out on the thousand-mile journey back to winter quarters to help more of the saints get across the plains. With Brigham and the apostles on the road again, the leadership of the Salt Lake settlement fell to the high council of the newly formed Salt Lake Stake, led by Joseph Smith's uncle, John Smith. As stake president, John oversaw city planning, land distribution, and public building projects. Later, the Council of 50, which we've done an episode on, would be put in charge. By the end of 1847, over 2,000 pioneers had arrived in the valley, but there were hard times ahead head. Throughout their first winter, the Saints dealt with a food shortage, leaky roofs, packs of wolves pestering the livestock outside the fort, and plenty of mice and bugs pestering the settlers inside the fort. I hate this planet! <laughs> but it was the spring and summer season of 1848 that brought conditions from bad to worse. There was a late frost extending into May of 1848, followed by a drought and legions of crickets that went to work on the Saints' crops. Nonetheless, with some good old-fashioned perseverance, aid from California, and the help of some hungry seagulls, the Saints scraped by. Let my armies be the rocks and the trees and the birds in the sky. After the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith in 1844, it actually wasn't until December of 1847 in Canesville, Iowa, that the first presidency was finally officially reorganized, with Brigham Young as president and Heber C. Kimball and Willard Richards as his counselors. In May 1848, Brigham Young and other leaders once again set out with another wave of pioneers, much larger this time, towards the valley. It's also worth noting that in 1848, the Mexican-American War ended with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which meant that the territory the Saints had settled in, which previously belonged to Mexico, now belonged to the United States. In September 1850, the government would officially recognize Utah as a territory of the United States. Brigham Young and his pioneer train arrived once again in the valley in the fall of 1848. By the end of the year, there were between four and 5,000 settlers in the area. 1848 and 1849 brought with them the California Gold Rush, sparking a huge exodus from the eastern United States to California. 
Salt Lake was a pit stop for a lot of these travelers who brought with them valuable trading opportunities. The Saints also constructed roads, bridges, a bathhouse, etc. The Saints were finally starting to get their feet under them. They were finally moving past survival mode and into a time of relative prosperity. After the Saints began moving out of the fort and building homes in the city, church leaders organized them into 23 wards or congregations, each presided over by a bishop. New settlements also began to dot the Salt Lake Valley and the valleys to the north and south, and many saints started constructing shops, mills, and factories. Now, there's so much more we could talk about. Relations with the Native Americans, relations with the U.S. government, city planning, missionary work. Did you know missionaries were sent to California to dig for gold? Yeah, it was a thing. Anyway, if you want to dive deeper into these first few years in the Valley, check out the resources in the YouTube description, especially the books if you can. In the meantime, Watch some of our other videos while you're here. And On July 24th, 1857, a handful of riders, including Abraham Smoot and Porter Rockwell, rode into Big Cottonwood Canyon where Brigham Young and the Latter-day Saints were celebrating Pioneer Day. The riders brought with them harrowing news from the east. An army of U.S. troops was on its way to Utah. Having been left in the dark by the U.S. government and fearing the worst, Brigham reported in his journal, the feeling of mobocracy is rife in the states. The constant cry is kill the Mormons. Let them try it. The Utah war was about to begin. After the Saints Oasis in the desert became incorporated into the United States in 1848, the US government began installing federal officials that were largely outsiders who didn't understand the Saints faith or way of life. The Saints got along well with some officials, but some others, most notoriously Utah Chief Justice William Drummond, ended up resigning and spreading hostile reports throughout the rest of the country. We're not gonna go over all of the charges here, but as an example of a charge that should have been very easy to verify, the Saints were accused of destroying federal court records. But instead of investigating whether or not the various claims were true, in 1857, US President James Buchanan decided that Utah was in a state of rebellion. That's it. The rebels are there. And sent an army of 2,500 men to facilitate, by force if necessary, the replacement of Governor Brigham Young with a guy named Alfred Cumming. The army, later led by Colonel Albert Johnston, was eventually reinforced, bringing their number to about 5,000. Officials failed to tell Brigham Young why this was all happening. With decades of persecution fresh in their minds, the Mormons could only conclude that it was a repetition of Missouri and Illinois. They were to be put down or driven out. In their mountain fortress, Brigham and the Saints refused to give up their homes without a fight. But taking life was going to be a last resort. Instead, they adopted scorched earth tactics in an attempt to slow the army down as much as possible and buy themselves time. One of the Saints' military commanders was the second counselor in the first presidency, Daniel Wells. He ordered his Minutemen, or Mormon raiders, to find the army and to proceed at once to annoy them in every way possible. Use every exertion to stampede their animals and set fire to their trains, burn the whole country before them and on their flanks, keep them from sleeping by night surprises, blockade the road by felling trees or destroying river fords where you can, take no life, but destroy their trains and stampede or drive away their animals at every opportunity. The Utahns burned 74 government wagons or about three months worth of the army's food and captured 1,400 head of cattle, about 70% of the army's total. One of the more notable characters burning the government's wagons was Lot Smith, who ironically would later lead a company of saints serving the government several years later, 
during the Civil War, but we'll talk more about that in a couple of episodes. While the Mormon raiders pestered the army, the Nauvoo Legion dug into Echo Canyon, the most direct route to the Salt Lake Valley. At a narrow point in the ravine, they built stone walls and dug trenches from which they planned to act as snipers. They also loosened boulders that could easily be sent crashing down to damage and block the moving columns, and constructed ditches and dams in the valley that could be opened to send water across the army's path. Back in the city, the Saints worked from sunrise to sunset, making guns, bullets, cannonballs, and canister shots. On Temple Square, a shop produced revolvers. Fortunately, in 1857, the Army only made it as far as Fort Bridger, about 100 miles from Salt Lake, before they were forced to hunker down for the winter. Of course, the fort was owned by the Latter-day Saints and had been burned to the ground in anticipation of the Army's arrival. Needless to say, it was a rough winter for the government troops. In 1858, a friend of the Saints named Thomas Kane came to hopefully mediate peace between the two factions. He convinced the new governor, Alfred Cumming, to visit Salt Lake without bringing the army along. In Salt Lake, Cumming was accepted by leadership as the new governor of the territory, and he found that many of the hostile reports that had been made about the Saints simply were not true. But he also found the saints in the middle of a mass exodus. The saints were boarding up their homes, leaving Salt Lake, and heading south toward Provo. Church leaders called this this President James Buchanan, decided that Utah was in a state of rebellion. Reports that had been made about the saints simply were not true. But he also found the saints in the middle of a mass exodus. The saints were boarding up their homes, leaving Salt Lake, and heading south toward Provo. Church leaders called this the Sevastopol Plan. The Saints were determined to burn Salt Lake to the ground before allowing it to be occupied by hostile forces. I'd rather see her at the bottom of the ocean than in the hands of a pirate. On June 7, 1858, representatives from President Buchanan arrived in Salt Lake with a peace deal. The document reiterated the charges lodged by federal officials, largely by repeating Drummond's lies, and then offered an unconditional pardon for treason and other offenses. The Saints were extremely annoyed that they were being pardoned for things they largely had not been guilty of, and leaders openly invited officials to conduct a thorough investigation. Officials refused, but Brigham ultimately accepted the peace deal anyway. On June 26th, the army finally did enter a nearly deserted Salt Lake City. Men stood by with torches, ready to burn the city down if the army attempted to occupy their homes. Thankfully, the army passed through and went on to establish Camp Floyd, about 40 miles away, which we visited in this episode. David embarrasses himself on the show all the time. You'd make a great militiaman. I can hear. The Saints returned to their homes. The new governor ended up being pretty cool, but the Utah expedition has gone down in U.S. history as Buchanan's blunder. There's a ton more that could be said about this topic. If you're wondering why we didn't talk about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, it's because we've already done these episodes on that subject, so check those out. Check out the resources in the YouTube description for more info. Watch some of our other videos while you're here. All right, so I'm gonna, I know, I'm not, like, I'm not talking much. I wanna, I wanna just, I wanna show y'all. I don't wanna talk, I wanna show. And I'm using the story of the Mormons to talk about the greater issue of land and eventually food. I mean, there's really no difference. Those two issues are the same. But let me let me keep you going here. Um I apologize. You know, I'm kind of just like flying 
flying by the seat of my pants. So take it or leave it. You can always sign out, but let's uh, let's keep going here. Son of a bitch. Sorry. Um, here we go. Copy and paste. So what brought me to the University of Idaho in 2002? The exact same thing that brought me here today. What is that reason? That reason is that one book can change our lives. And I don't mean that one book can change our lives in the way that we teachers or your parents may say books are good for you, kind of like carrots are good for you. Instead, what I mean is books can change your life. They can change where you live, what you believe, and what you do for work all by cracking open one single book. And how do I know this? Because one book, this book right here, Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey, changed my life. Edward Abbey was an anarchist, an environmentalist, and an environmental writer. And he was one of the most important environmental writers in American history. He's up there with Henry David Thoreau, John Muir, and Rachel Carson. He wrote 21 books, and he was born in 1927 in Home, Pennsylvania, and he died 62 years later in Tucson, Arizona. He knew he was dying because he had esophageal varices, otherwise known as internal bleeding. And he told his friends and his family that when he died, he did not want to be buried in a cemetery. Instead, he wanted his body to be taken out and buried in wilderness. So on the day before he died, one of Abby's very best friends, Doug Peacock, leaned in close to Abby and whispered where they planned on burying him. And Abby, sick and without energy, couldn't do much more than smile. And then the next day, when Abby finally passed away, Peacock and three other friends put Abby's body in the back of a pickup truck, and they drove out to some great, wild, unknown desert. And there, they spent two days digging or searching for a location to bury Abby. And when they finally found a location, they laid his body in the grave, covered it up, and set on top of it a hand-carved basalt rock that just said, Edward Abbey, 1927 and 1989, and then there was two words on it, no comment. <laughs> and this gravesite was known to Abby's closest friends and his family and those turkey vultures banking overhead. But to the rest of us, this gravesite is one of the great mysteries of the American West. In 1994, I was a senior at Western State College in Gunnison, Colorado, and I was a business major. And the reason I was a business major is because my parents were business people. My brother was a business person. And because my school told me that they wouldn't graduate me unless I had a major. So I chose business. What was I going to do with it? I had no idea. I was completely lost back then. And then one day, my best friend House came over to my apartment, and he brought a book with him. And he said, Sean, read this book. I think you'll love it. And this book was Desert Solitaire. So I took it out into my backyard on a beautiful sunny day like we have today here, and I started reading it. And I couldn't put it down. And instead, I should have been studying for my accounting final. I had a C in that class, and I just barely passed it in the end. But instead, I read Desert Solitaire. And the reason I read it was because Abby wrote about the desert southwest, this landscape right here, in ways that I'd never experienced before in a book. 
I saw the landscape when I read his words. I could feel the sun burning down on me. I could feel my lips getting cracked just by how he wrote it. I could see the slot canyons. But he didn't just write great descriptions. He also talked about how we had to preserve our land, how we had to protect our public lands, how we had to make sure we didn't abuse them. But then he didn't want us to just do that. He didn't want us to just think about our lands. He wanted us to go explore them. He wanted us to get out of our houses and into our cars and travel to those lands. But then once we got there, he told us, in the first place, you can't see anything from a car. You've got to get out of the goddamn contraption and walk. Better yet, crawl, now you see why I love Abby, on hands and knees over the sandstone and through the thorn bush and cactus, when traces of blood begin to mark your trail, you'll begin to see something. Maybe, probably not. And when I finished Desert Solitaire, I kind of mourned it. It was my favorite book of all times. So what did I do? I did the exact same thing that so many of us do when we finish a book we loved. I started reading another book by Edward Abbey, and then another and another. I read The Monkey Wrench Gang, then Hey Duke Lives, then Fool's Progress, then Black Sun. I read them all, almost all 20 of Abbey books. And then I started reading other authors by Desert Southwest writers. I read Terry Tempest Williams and her beautiful mem memoir, Refuge. I read Charles Bowden, Blue Desert. I read Doug Peacock, Jack Laughlin, and David Peterson. And these books moved me, and I love them. And I accidentally became a scholar of Desert Southwest literature, something I never expected to be. And that's the great thing about becoming so curious about any one thing like Desert Solitaire. It literally makes you smarter. We're not born with a, sp a specific amount of curiosity nor of intelligence. Instead, we can grow or shrink either one of those just by being curious. There's a great research study done by Sophie von Stumm and she did a meta-study where she looked at 200 different educational studies with 50,000 students. And what she was looking for is what are the best predictors for future academic success? And what she discovered is that it's not intelligence, which is what I would have expected it to be. Instead, it's curiosity. The most curious students are those that have the most academic success. And to go along with that, more curious people score 12 points higher than less curious people on IQ tests. So just by reading Desert Solitaire and all these other books, I couldn't help but learn and grow. Another way I was growing from reading Desert Solitaire was once I graduated, I had to get a job. I had no idea what to do. I had my business degree in my hand, but I couldn't figure out what to do. So I did the only logical thing. I joined the Peace Corps. So I traveled down to Jamaica and they signed me to the Jamaica Chamber of Commerce where I gave out micro loans to inner city residents. And this was great work, important work, beautiful work. But my heart was slowly moving toward the environmental field. So what I did is I got a second assignment to work for Blue and John Crow Mountains National Park. And there I helped them become self-sustainable. And then once I returned back to America, I moved to the Pacific Northwest and worked for the Northwest Youth Corps and then to the Desert Southwest to work for Southwest Conservation Corps and here I spent days and weeks and months living in a tent. When it rained, we would get wet. When it snowed, we would be cold. And my crew of 10 trail builders would go out and we'd build trails, maintain trails, build wilderness bridges all around the Pacific Northwest and Desert Southwest. And as I was doing all this, as I was working with my crews of at-risk youth, what I realized is my business degree 
taught me how to sell ideas. Sell, or sorry, taught me how to sell goods and services. But I didn't have any goods and services to sell. But what I did have was ideas, environmental ideas now, and then later creative writing ideas. And when I had these ideas to sell, they literally made me feel like I had a purpose, a reason. And that made me happy. And it makes me happy today when I sell these ideas. But that's not just me saying this. The Gallup organization did a survey of 130,000 people all across the globe. And what they were looking for is what makes a person happy. So what they did is they first looked for who are the most happy people in this survey, and then what traits do they all share? And one of the two most important traits is curiosity. So just by reading a book, and just by following my passion from that book, I was leading a curious life and therefore a happy life. And then the final thing I want to talk about today is when I finished Desert Solitaire, what I felt was that Abby had written it for someone just like me. And because he wrote it for someone just like me, I felt as if maybe I too could write like Abby. So Abby and Desert Solitaire were the reasons I picked up a pen and started writing. And I tried to write as beautifully as Desert Solitaire, and I failed completely. But still, reading Desert Solitaire was a genesis moment for me. It started my writing career. And then eight years after reading Desert Solitaire, I ended up here at the University of Idaho in the Master of Fine Arts program for creative nonfiction. And then once I graduated, I needed to write a book. That's what happens. So I searched and searched and searched for what to write about, and I had no idea I was lost, just like I was lost when I was a business major trying to figure out what the heck to do. And then it finally dawned on me. What I needed to write about was what I was most curious about, Edward Abbey and his hidden desert grave. So that's what I did. I wrote a book, Finding Abbey, The Search for Edward Abbey and His Hidden Desert Grave. And this book took me about five years to write. And it's part biography of who Abby is. It's part travelogue as I travel around the country searching for the spirit of Abby. And then it's part memoir as I ask Abby, now dead, a ghost mentor for me, how to live my life and where to live my life. I was living in a city far from the mountains and I was feeling placeless. So I was using Abby as a way to figure out what to do. So I got in my pickup truck any chance I got and I drove to home Pennsylvania where Abby was born. I went to Hoboken, New Jersey where Abby lived and where he struggled in the city, just like I was struggling in the city. And then I went to Moab, Utah, and Santa Fe, and Albuquerque, and Durango, and finally I ended up in Tucson, Arizona. And along the way, I interviewed some of Abby's best friends, Doug Peacock, Jack Loeffler, Ken Slight, and David Peterson, those very same people that I'd read years before. But I didn't just interview them over the phone or just sit across a table. Instead, David Peterson, took me to a bar and we drank margaritas and he got misty-eyed as he talked about Abbey's spirit being everywhere in the West. And he called that land Abbey country. And Ken Slight talked to me in his house in the LaSalle Mountains of Utah about the, the damming of Glen Canyon and the creation of Lake Powell. He called it Lake Fowl. And Jack Loeffler brought me into his office and he climbed up to the top of his bookshelf and he brought down this box and he opened up the box and in it was a stack of typed papers, and it was the first copy of the Monkey Wrench Gang, and he put it in my hands, and I could feel the weight of the book, the metaphorical weight of one of the most important radical environmental texts ever written. And then Doug Peacock took me out into the desert with a six-pack of beer, a bottle of wine, and two camp chairs, and we sat in the shade of his pickup truck, and he talked about Abby's dying day and then Abby's burial. 
And once I had accumulated all these stories, once I learned everything I could, then it was time to me, for me to go search for Abby's grave. So that's what I did. My best friend, Hal, still my best friend after all these years, joined me in the desert. And we spent two nights sleeping underneath a black blanket of stars. And we spent two days searching and failing and searching and failing, the sun burning down on us, our ears turning red, our noses red, our lips chapped. We stumbled into cactuses and blood was running down our ankles. We searched and we failed. And we were down to the last few hours until House had to get on a plane and return to his work and his family. And it was only in those last moments when we found something. And whatever we found and wherever we found it, it was so powerful that it changed my life. I returned to my city where I worked and I put my house on the market and sold it three weeks later. I resigned my position. I moved to Northern Vermont where I met my beautiful wife, Sarah, and I started all over, all because of reading one single book. And what I ask you now is what book or idea or person or adventure will change your life? My book is Desert Solitaire. And 22 years ago, my best friend House came over to my apartment and he gave me a book. And he said, read this book, you'll love it. He should have said, read this book, it will change your life. So what one book will change your life? What one book will change where you work, what you believe, or where you live? I found myself a displaced person shortly after birth. And I've been looking half my life for a place to take my stand. There was just something about Ed Abbey that really spoke to us. I regard the wilderness as my home, and when it's being invaded by clear cutters and strip miners, I feel not only the right, but the duty to defend it by any means I can. Ed and I had found this D3 test in the construction of that stinking highway down to Colorado. So we turned the damn thing on and sent it off the cliff. A demonstration of civil disobedience played out in Salt Lake this evening. I started reading Edward Abbey when I was 18. I was old enough to understand it, but not quite old enough to realize that it wasn't a manual. Would you do it again? Yes. Everything in the biotic community was gone. I saw that I wasn't the one who was nuts. What is your role? My role? I see myself as an entertainer. I'm trying to write good books, make people laugh, make them cry, provoke them, make them angry, make them think if possible. to get a reaction, give pleasure. I do not see myself as a social commentator because I don't look at any of these things we've been talking about hard enough. I'm not really skilled at it, but I like to write, I like to throw words around. And if I can give pleasure in that form, I feel I'm earning my pay I have no desire to be a leader of any kind. I <clears throat> dislike being called a guru. I think every man should be his own guru. 
every woman her own gourette. We should all be leaders. I'm an anarchist. My father was a wobbly, IWW. We should all take charge. We should all be leaders, neither followers nor rulers. Make our own decisions. I'm really a Democrat, small d. I really believe in democracy, direct democracy. I think every issue of any importance should be decided by popular referendum. It's nice to see these petitions get on the ballot. The process should be made much easier. We could do away with a bunch of morons and moral dwarfs up in the state legislature and decide state policy by public referendum. I would love to see that. I think the majority of the people in this state and in this country are almost always far ahead of those who call themselves the authorities or presume to be our leaders. They're not leaders. <clears throat> Last leader we had in this country, Thomas Jefferson, perhaps. Anyway, my role is just to write books. I'm not really trying to do anything more than that. Write some good books, if possible, and enjoy my life, and the, the lives of my family and friends, and my enemies. I enjoy their, their problems, too. What do you see as being the major environmental problems in Arizona today? Progress, development, growth, industry, everything that the politicians and the Chamber of Commerce loves, I'm against. I think it's gradually destroying Arizona. And I don't think it'll survive. I think we're using up our resource base, especially water, much faster than it can ever be replaced. And therefore, unless some sort of technological miracle saves us, I imagine that in a century or two, Phoenix and Tucson will be small towns again and probably very nice places to live. Arizona seems to be committed to coal and nuclear power. Is that uh, without drawback? Well, the disadvantages of coal are pretty obvious. The burning of coal pollutes the air. Strip mining destroys a lot of good rangeland, depriving ranchers and Navajos of their uh, resource base. And coal too is just a temporary fix, even though we may have an awful lot of it in this country. It, it too will be used up sooner or later. So if we want to, if we want to create a long-term civilization here in the West or North America, I think eventually we're going to have to rely on renewable resources like sunlight and grass and trees, surface water, running water. But I realize that uh, this is a 
utopian kind of thinking. Most people in Arizona or in the United States, for that matter, don't take it seriously. The people who run this country assume that technology and science will rescue us each time from our foolishness. And so far, it might appear that they've been right. If we burn up the planet, then we'll, uh, I suppose, uh, try to export the human species into outer space, space colonies, colonize the moon, Venus, Mars. That's what I would call real crackpot thinking, scientific utopianism. And uranium, you mentioned that, didn't you? Uh -huh. I guess if we complete the Palo Verde nuclear plant, we're going to have the biggest one in the world. Is that right? That's what they say. I find nuclear power very unappealing, first of all, because it's undemocratic. It centralizes control. It puts our lives and the livelihoods in the hands of a very few people. Probably one big utility, one big public agency over which the public has very little control. And of course, there are the well-known dangers of it. There's no guarantee that the, these nuclear plants won't break down and melt down maybe force the evacuation of the entire city of Phoenix someday. That is a very expensive form of power. I don't know the economic details, but it may turn out to cost more than, it, than it's worth. It's simply in dollars. Nuclear power has been a heavily subsidized industry so far, subsidized by us taxpayers in one way or another. And that's how it survived as long as it has. I doubt if nuclear power would last another 10 years if we had a truly free market economy. It's expensive, it's dangerous, and it's undemocratic. And uranium mining, uh, of course, also destroys rangeland again, in some cases, uh, wilderness. And the problem of what to do with the nuclear waste has still not been solved. Nobody wants these nuclear waste dumps in their own state. What do you see the future of environmentalism being? Well, I think it has a very good future. The worse the environment gets, the more popular environmentalism becomes. People like James Watt do us a lot of good to really uh, spur interest in environmentalism and boost the membership in all sorts of conservation organizations. People always get uh, concerned about things that they think they're in danger of losing. So it often comes too late. I think America has uh, led the way in this field we are probably the most environmentally conscious big industrial nation on earth. 
getting the parks established a little over a century ago. First nation on earth to do that. Good thing we did, too. It was the very beginning of an environmental movement, but it belonged to a certain cast of people that the other people saw as threatening. Earth first! People were attracted to Earth first because it really said, let's save the United States. They're not environmentalists, they're terrorists. Defending the natural world, of course, you're going to bring a lot of anger and hostility towards you because there's so much money being made from destroying this planet. These are people out there that had gone through everything that they had been taught to change things in our world if you see an injustice, and it didn't work. What are we willing to do for a livable future? This is a global issue, and it's about greed and materialism, and we are all involved in guilty. Human society is like a stew. If you don't keep it stirred up, you get a lot of scum on top. Agitate. Okay, guys. Oh, guys, I, you know, I'm sorry. Like, I'm, I'm throwing a whole lot at you at once. The, the thing about Edward, Edward Abbey that I love, he grappled with difficult concepts. He was a diehard anarchist who loved public land, which is kind of an inherent paradox. At the same time, though, it's not, you know, the idea of anarchism, um, no rulers, but there are rules. This concept of wilderness. It, it fascinates me just like it fascinated Abby. And the guy who was, you know, he was given a TED talk. Whether or not you realized it, that was a TED talk, and it had it had the um, typical format. But he talked about how he was fascinated with Abby's writing because it 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 puts you in the place, and how he wanted to try to replicate it, but he couldn't. You know, I, if anybody can relate, I can relate. I wrote a book that is essentially, I even, I even call it as, as much on the back cover, a spiritual third installment to Edward Abbey's two Hey Duke tales. He wrote the monkey wrench gang and he wrote Hey Duke lives and then i wrote hey duke 2029 and it's such a niche it's such a subtle 
nod. Well, uh, frankly, a not so you know, subtle nod. It's not subtle at all. I called my book Hey Duke 2029 as a nod to Edward Abbey, who at times I disagree with, but mostly I agree with at a very gut instinct, you know, basal level. I I see that Edward was grappling with the toughest of questions, and that's how to manage land. And his ultimate hmm, conclusion was anarchism. Okay? Now, Edward Abbey had a whole lot of beef unintended with the cattle industry you know it's too bad he he died too soon if only edward abbey had been alive through covid you know once again i i i often think we maybe benefit by losing our heroes before we really wish we had them because they might have disappointed us. You know, perhaps Edward Abbey would have gone the way of, hmm, I don't know, uh, any number of people and, and, and abandoned his anarchism for the sake of safety and security, but I don't think he would have. He was a first principled motherfucker. And he, I don't think he would have liked the mandates. I don't think he would have liked the shutdowns. In fact, he would have laughed at them as inconsequential because he lived in the desert by his own code. You know, he did all he could to abide by natural law while ignoring man's law. So I don't think he would have disappointed me. But, you know, he, he was in love with the land of the desert, the desert Southwest. I lived in Utah for a year. It's what gave me the ability to write a novel taking place in one little part of this territory. This territory, excuse me, which Abby knew way better than I did. But this land, this expansive wilderness, it's worth wondering how, why, when, and where People took ownership. You know, I've, I've established with this Mormon migration and with the, um, the days of like the, the, the Homestead Act, when people could go and establish their own plot to claim a piece of land. You know, it, 
it's a time I long for. It's a time I'm envious of. I wish I could go back, but I know actually in reality, it would have been so difficult. It would have been so much work. And instead I was born now. I was, I was born into this time. And it's a time where instead of the government encouraging homesteading and, and claiming land, we now live in a time where they're trying to take it back. Okay? Now, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the Bundy Ranch, but this is this is the culmination of all of these social movements, political movements, these migrations, these policies. We now live in a world where a rancher is in such conflict with the U.S. federal government. People 2,000 miles away that he has to make a stand. You know, I wish, I wish we could have gotten Edward Abbey's take on Cliven Bundy and everything that's, that's come about since. Now, if you're not familiar, you will be. Let me just play this and um, hmm, just consider, just consider the land and the food and the guns. My name is Amon Bundy. I am speaking to you today from inside a maximum security jail. I am a son of a Nevada cattle rancher. My father, brothers, and myself have been incarcerated for many months, leaving our wives and 26 children altogether without fathers to care for them. I ask that you listen to our story and judge us. Yes, judge us. Ask yourself if we were justified in standing for our ranch and the rights of our neighbors. Or should we have just let federal agencies take our heritage? Ask yourself what would have you done? Ask yourself what is right? Let me explain our story. My brothers and I grew up on a family cattle ranch in Southern Nevada, established by our great-great-grandfathers in 1877. We were raised in humble circumstances in the same little ranch home as our father, Cliven Bundy, built by my grandfather Dave in the 1940s. For five generations, our family has run cattle along the Bunkerville Mountains. Our ancestors were the first pioneers to settle in the Southern Nevada desert. They carved their living out of leveling and farming land next to the Virgin River and ran cattle on the hills. Their homesteads were established before Las Vegas had even one person living in it. Nevada had only been a state for 13 years. Discovering multiple springs on the foothills of the mountains, our forefathers began to build water troughs and holding tanks to supply water for cattle. 
This made it so the cattle did not have to travel too far for water. In the arid desert, where a ranch is, it takes approximately 100 acres to feed one cow. In his lifetime, my father has improved upon this watering system by installing pipes throughout the lower hills from 11 different water sources over a 30-mile span. This has allowed the cattle to benefit from feed in areas where otherwise they could not live because they would have to walk too far for water. This has also greatly benefited the desert wildlife and made hunting and camping plentiful. As a true environmentalist, my father, by expanding the water system and caring for the land and the road, has tremendously promoted wildlife, increased game, improved camping, and generally made the area more enjoyable to be on. Even the desert tortoise would thank Clive and Bundy for the water close by if they could speak. All of this is done at my father's expense and effort costing the taxpayers nothing. With his banged up Dodge pickup, my father would spend many days a month blowing out the water lines with air and repairing the leaks, making sure each water tank was always full. My family has brought life to the Southern Nevada desert for over a hundred years. Imagine what would happen to all the wildlife if this watering system was not maintained or if it was destroyed. Before I move on, it is important that you have a little more background about the legality of our water and grazing rights. Okay, I'm, I'm pausing. I'll continue it. But like I said, I wish I wish I could have spoken with Edward Abbey about this issue because he... He had written some scathing stuff about ranchers and about the cattle industry, which is kind of where I started, right? Talking about this um, Amish farmer in Pennsylvania who could sell, you know, camel's milk and, you know, goat cheese all day, but anything to do with cattle, with cows, with, you know, bovine critters. It's, it's instantly a quagmire of government. And even though Edward Abbey didn't like the impact of cows on the desert landscape, I wonder if he wouldn't have taken the side of the of the Bundys. You know, we have these conflicting parties, these conflicting ideals. And hmm, as a result, we have conflict. You know, I I. I feel like this is an episode where I should talk less and show more. So let me let me just play this on and uh, we'll see where it takes us. In 1890, the state of Nevada created a registry so that ranchers and others could deed their water and grazing rights. In Nevada, as with other western states, the livestock water rights include title to graze. Each deed in print designates how many cattle the owner of the deed is typically grazing around the water. This is the way grazing rights are recorded and protected by the state of Nevada. Just to be clear, these livestock grazing and water rights are vested property 
much like mineral rights or deeded rights to your home. These grazing rights are real property. They can be sold, traded, borrowed against, or adversely taken. They are the lifeblood of our ranch and are a valued heritage to our family. Many people have desired to purchase them over the years, but my father has chosen to remain raising cattle in the desert. Without these stock water grazing rights, our ranch has almost no value. My father owns 11 of these stock water grazing rights, deeded with the state of Nevada. In the early 1990s, the Bureau of Land Management, also known as the BLM, an agency of the executive branch, tried to trespass my father for grazing cattle on our deeded range, where my family has run cattle for 138 years. The BLM adopted an extreme environmental no-cattle policy designed to remove all ranching from the land. On the wall in the Southern Nevada BLM District Office, they displayed their motto. It read, No Moo by 92, Cattle Free by 93. Seeing their intent to destroy his ranch, my father stood on the fact that his ranch was inside the boundaries of the state of Nevada, that the federal agencies are violating the constituted laws between the state and the federal government, and that he owns a deeded right to graze and water his cattle, established over a century ago. When agents from the Bureau of Land Management told my father that the federal government does not recognize his grazing rights and that my father must remove his cattle, he told them that they had no authority to take his family's heritage away. When they said they were going to take it away anyway, he said no, and then he said hell no. Several times the Bureau of Land Management tried to drag my father into federal court so they could strip him of his rights, like they have done with thousands of others. Being land inside the state of Nevada, not ceded to the federal government, my father held the constitutional position that federal agencies have no legal constituted authority to administer the land inside the state, and therefore no jurisdiction to trespass or prosecute him. Watching other ranchers, miners, loggers try to defend themselves in federal court when the federal government was the plaintiff, my father often said, Going into federal court to defend yourself against federal agencies is like as if a man broke into your home and beat up your wife and children. So to get justice, you take him to court. When they say, all arise to the honorable judge, in walks a man in a black robe, and he is the very man that assaulted your wife and children. Of over 100,000 cases in the western states where the federal government is the plaintiff in federal court, federal judges have sided with federal agencies every single time taking century-old vested property rights away from good, hard-working families. In our area, my dad is the last rancher out of 53. In the state of Nevada alone, federal agencies have taken 5,072 water rights from the people and deeded them to themselves. It is astonishing to think about this when the United States Constitution was specifically designed to prohibit this very thing from happening. We, the people, have ignorantly allowed federal agencies of the executive branch to be modern-day conquerors, gobbling up our land and resources and inserting themselves into every facet of our lives, our homes, our schools, our churches, our jobs, our industries, our manufacturing industries, our housing industries, our agricultural industries, our mineral industries, our financial industries. Everywhere there is wealth, they seek to control and take. They will not stop expanding and growing on their own. They will not limit themselves because they do not produce a product in order for them to survive and gain and grow. 
They must take from the people who produce the product. The judicial branch of government, the courts and the judges, have not been an effective check and balance to these agencies for over 60 years, giving them a free pass to prey upon the wealth of the American people. Okay, I'm I'm pausing again um, because I think that this is Amon Bundy, if I'm not mistaken, the son of Cliven Bundy, and he's making good points. He's pointing out the fact that, you know, once again, this is a complex issue. When it comes to ranchers in the desert southwest, they range their cattle on public lands. And then they go out and they round them up. You know, some people have heard these terms, you know, a roundup, wrangling, you know, open range. They don't really know what these things mean. What it means is the, the intersection between private property and public land. The simple truth is that when it comes to property rights, private property is defined by what you can defend. So in, in the desert southwest, from Colorado to, I, I suppose, California, there is a long tradition of grazing cattle on public lands and then wrangling them up and claiming what's yours based on the brand, on the, on the hump, on the rump, on the on the flank of the cow or the bull, right? You would brand your cattle with your ranch's symbol, your brand. And then you had every right to go and collect your property from the public land. We might replace the words public land for Wilderness. You know, what is wilderness? Wilderness is the land that nobody is capable of defending when it comes to property rights. You know, what is property? It's what you can defend. So, you know, currently we have a federal government in the United States that claims 90 some percent of the land in Nevada and 70, 80 something percent of the land in Utah and 60 some percent of the land in Colorado and you know, so on and so forth. You would have to check those numbers. Don't, don't quote me. I'm just making a point, but do they really own that land or is that land wilderness, which is owned by, Nobody. And you could supposedly argue at the same time is owned by everybody. You know, we have all this land and land matters. Land is important. People fight over 
land. Because land equals food. And the only way to defend your food or your land is with guns. This is why these are the three words of this episode. Land, food, and guns. Okay. Now, let me... um, Where to go from here? Okay. I... Let me do a little uh, a little thing here. Uh, you know, like with the forum, I, I, I've got dead air. Not dead air, but I've got opportunities where other people talk so I can do my thing with the computer stuff. Right now, I'm just, I'm, I'm flying solo, flying by the seat of my pants, so bear with me. Um, but this is Amon Bundy on TimCast. Now, I really fucking hate Tim pool i he's just annoying (laughs) so take it or you know take it with a grain of salt i think he's just uh i think he's just a douchebag that makes you know decent points and has good guests so we'll we'll take it you know beggars can't be choosers but um here we go we also have like major problems in Idaho in the, well in the West, because if you look at a map and people out East just don't realize this, but if you look at a map East of the Colorado Rockies, the federal government controls 51% of the, the land mass. And in Idaho, it's 61%. And then they're controlling 72% of the subsurface mineral rights. Wow. And so it's making it so like Idaho can't even pay its own bills. Hmm. Like we're beholden to the federal government to pay our bills because they're controlling all our land and our resources. And so that, that battle has to be fought, and I plan on fighting How that. did the feds get control of the land? So it's a long, long story. But this is like the whole battle that my family was in, you know, that, that basically culminated in 2014. Uh, because the states were enabled into the union, and, and all the land and all the resources were supposed to then go to the state and the jurisdiction of, the, of that state. But through this environmentalist movement and because the, arid, the area is so arid, People didn't go live on it. it. They couldn't live on it. Mm-hmm. And the federal government came in later and claimed it. And now they're claiming it as their own. They're saying it's in trust um, and that they never, they never, uh, they never released it or, or disposed of it is the right word. And so there's this major battle with like families like my, my father, my family, my father in particular, where they're trying to defend their rights. And uh, my family, my family's been there for now almost 150 years. And the federal government comes in and says, well, we're, we're taking it from you. Well, there's this, and that's happening all over the West. And well, so, I mean, but you got to trust the government, right? They're, they're here to sure. help. Sure. Yeah. They're here to help and they're doing it for, you know, the right reason. I'm sure, you know, uh, <laughs> what was it? The tortoise? Yeah. Desert tortoise, but it, it well, you got to protect the tortoise. I mean, well, yeah. On. Yeah. I mean, what, what is your protecting. family for all tortoise? That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean that's probably what my family think, doesn't right? need to make a living. They they can move to the city and and do whatever they're going to do there. Even though we've been well, there for 150 years, have you considered owning nothing and being happy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have a hard time considering that. I just can't see how it'll work. <laughs> There's some comfy pods out there though, and you know, video games, VR, they're they're pretty cool. Maybe yeah. the tortoise. How about how about this? Yeah, how about some bug protein? Here's, here's compromise. We'll take your whole family. We'll put them in pods. 
We'll give them VR headsets that simulate working on a ranch out in Idaho. Mm, and all the bugs you could eat. <laughs> Nonstop bugs. Yeah. Exo, exoskeletons, right? That, that are bad for us. I, I don't know. Yeah, kind of. You know? Yeah. yeah. Indigestible so, bug, bug shells. So the feds came in and were like, by the way, we've owned this the whole time and you didn't know kind of thing? Or what, did they offer compensation? Like, no, not at all. Right. Not at all. They No. So, yeah. They did do that, uh, which is an absolute lie. They they try to make the people of this country believe that that has always been in federal hands and that it wasn't disposed of to the state and to the people. And it's just a flat lie. Well, really, what, what it was is the West is just arid. Like there's you can't have farms and you can't grow things in much of the West. And so people didn't settle there. And they just came in and said, look at all this land that no one's living on. No one's claimed. Mm -hmm. We're going to take it. But the problem is, is in the West, you don't claim the land. You claim like the grazing rights. Like my dad owns the grazing rights, the logging rights, the mining, the mi mineral rights. Right. And those were like deeded rights with the states. And so wow. here the Fed comes in, feds come in and say, well, we're taking the real estate. And therefore, every, anything else that has rights on it, we own, we control. And it's this huge messed up legal battle that's going on because my dad has my dad has grazing rights. He has 11 of them deeded with the state of Nevada. And then the federal government comes along and says, well, we own the land. We own the, so you can't graze here. And he's okay. I'm popping in. Oh man. Like this is such an interesting thing to consider. Okay. You really have to consider this. Rights versus property grazing rights water rights the right to travel Are you picking up what i'm laying down like like i said you know the ranch is not it's not as extensive as the grazing zone the ranch is what you can own what you can defend that's your private property the grazing area is public land you know and the funny thing about like the west versus the east in the united states is just the amount of of land versus people the amount of wilderness the amount of range you know open range people don't appreciate the fact that there are Lands that are owned by no one, but could be used by anyone. And these are the lands that the government tried to claim. You know, this is what I studied in school. This is what I studied. Land, man, you know, public land management, parks, resource management. We've got a new, we've got a new uh, guest in the house. Stella Q hopping in. You know, I'm, Stella, I am just, I'm going by the seat of my pants here. I'm covering hey. a really, really big topic, but I think this topic probably is equally applicable to the Australian listener, like oh, definitely. Public, la public land. How long have you been listening? Um, I'll just, you know, just tell us, oh, tell minutes. us, yeah, what do you think? What do you think at this point? Oh, absolutely fell in love with it, fella. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Edward Abbey. Yeah. Woo. Haven't heard of him before. What a dude. He, he's my favorite author. Like my, my book is an homage 
to one mm, of his mm, characters. Mm, I learned that. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what a guy. Um, he's sort of a, yeah, there's a couple of people like that. He's a little bit, reminded me a little bit of um, Alan Watt. Alan Watts. Is it Watt or Watts? Are you familiar with well, him? Yeah, Alan Watts. Um, yeah. There's conflicting opinions on Alan Watts. Um, mm, mm, he, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, he might have been kind of a part of this like MK Ultra yeah, control right, okay. apparatus of the counterculture. Um, uh-huh. And for all I know, so was Edward Abbey. Like the irony, the irony, this is what I want to get at. Like Edward Abbey is my favorite author, but I still disagree with him at times because he was um, he was hateful of any kind of exploitation of the land any kind of resource extraction. He was very dogmatic, but he recognized that the core problem was the government control of like distribution of resources and, and ownership of land. And, um, you know, again, like I, I've said it already, but like, I wish I could talk to him today in regards to this, like this Bundy ranch, situation because i think he would have been a you know he would have shifted his opinions a bit in my opinion to to actually like be on the side of the ranchers even though they graze cattle and supposedly the cattle cause problems it you know the fight of the rancher against the government agency i think he would have chosen the side of the rancher because at the very least like the rancher cannot overgraze his rangeland without suffering the consequences. The government, on the other hand, can do as they wish. There's no like immediate, you know, consequence. They they just extract as they will. You know, they, they they're not defined by profit and loss. Does that does yeah. that make sense? I'm I'm kind of on a a, a tear here. But. No, they're answerable to nobody, and I think there's never probably been a time in history that it's ever been more obvious that there's a bunch of criminals ruling the world, <laughs> basically. Every country has the same sort of core problems, especially now, um, that it's pretty much all under the same agenda and things are unified, which they've been working on for a long time. So, yeah, they're answerable to nobody. They can rape and pillage as they please, as they always have, and... Maybe you always will until it all finally comes to a close. But, um, yeah, answerable to no one. So what do you do? I mean, they, they grant themselves political immunity. They grant themselves immunity from this and that. Mm-hmm. They make the rules. They have the people in place that pass the legislation and make the decisions about who's guilty and who's not. It, so, it really so- is a David and Goliath and we're, we're using a pebble, not a rock. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know how, like versed you are necessarily but like in australia um like what is the land management strategy like uh is there you know so here we have you know private land that's owned by citizens we have state-owned land we have federally owned land and this is what i got at i think you know before you hopped on i was kind of covering the fact that in the Western United States, like vast areas are owned by the federal government. And um, so I guess my question is like, do you guys have like 
something akin to our Department of the Interior, National Park Service, National Forest Service. Um, what what's like your public land look like? Do you know? I know a little. I'm not certainly hope, um, fully versed on it all, but um, yes, we, I mean we have the national parks, which obviously nobody can build on or what have you, preserved. Um, which I'm not sure exactly where we're at as far as who owns them at the moment, as far as the indigenous stuff that's been going on particularly lately. Um, there seems to be a little bit of land giving back sort of happening. Well, management. Anyway, that's a whole other issue. It sort of is, but uh, look, so basically the sections, yeah, we've got national parks and then there's um, like crown land. Um, I'm not sure of the exact definition of that, but I, I, I think, don't quote me, I think it might be sort of land that sort of tentatively, it's basically owned by, <clears throat> you know, the government or it's, excuse me, <clears throat> public land. And uh, maybe, you know, it's probably going to be opened at some point for urban sprawl. Not sure. And then, of course, yeah, you've got the residential sort of zones. But um, so, yeah, the national parks sort of do things like um, manage the wildlife, like the feral type life, that kind of thing. That's well, a bit so of an issue I, in itself. I'll, I think I'll push back on something you said, just a hair, if I heard you right. You said they'll open it up uh, eventually for urban sprawl. I, I actually think it's the opposite. The, the point of public land uh, well, yeah, now. Mm. In, in their in their mind is to keep people off of it. They do not want average folk to access land. You know, they they want us to be well, they, they want us to be in a position to where we like where we need access, but we have to pay for it. This is this is the case with grazers, with ranchers in the western states. Um, land that their grandparents were able to graze cattle on is now you, you got to pay like hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees to graze the cattle on the land that your grandparents were able mm, to do mm. for free. You know, it's 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 the claiming of ownership of wilderness areas. This is my point. Whether yep. it's national parks or um, fish and wildlife or the Forest Service or fill in the blank, the claiming of ownership over wilderness. My argument, my argument is that property rights end at the point where you're able to defend them. So hmm. if somebody claims ownership of the wilderness, whether it be an individual or a federal government, their ability to own it only extends as far as their ability to defend it. And, mm -hmm. and so we have all this land in the United States. And I would, I would venture to say like in Australia, because pretty large landmass relative to your population size, um, there's a lot of land that gets claimed as being owned by the federal government, which they do not, in fact, have the ability to defend. And part of my argument is that we've both, you know, in Australia and in North America, we have these populations of indigenous folk who 
were you know basically hunted to near extinction if we're being honest and then they were placated by being given a patch of land and that's now their little reservation that they have autonomy over but there's still this almost like implication that like yeah you kind of own it but the government can take it from you at any time oh absolutely i mean you never own water that runs through your property i don't know if it's the same there no well see that's you're you're hitting at a big point here with this with this bundy ranch thing water water is at the core if anything water Mm -hmm. in the west is more important than land what it's more important than anything anything yeah yeah water rights are huge so again like water rights that were respected for generations are now being revoked mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well i can only really speak from my own experience and this is in tasmania i guess it does maybe it changes from state to state but i think in this particular issue it doesn't so i had my well we had our 96 acres um which had river running through it. It was basically where three rivers met. So, yes, we got flooded quite a lot. But either way, um, we were pumping. I mean, we, we were just market growers. Like it wasn't huge scale. It was only maybe a, an acre or two, an acre and a half that actually got farmed. Um, oh, not even that, an acre, let's say. And so we were pumping, you know, a bit from the river, which there was plenty of it. It was It was a whole river actually behind us that used to have sailing ships and whales going up it apparently, but then the tin mining uh, further up river created so much sludge and output that it filled up the whole river that went like from, I don't know, I don't know how far you'd class it, kilometres maybe or a kilometre or so, um, and right down to the bay, like into the bay. Like I, you, you guys don't know what I'm talking about because I've, I can see it in my head and I know how big the area is. Believe me, it's a that's a lot of change in the environment over years, you know, like a long time. Anyway, getting back to the point, we had this land and it had a lot of water on it and a guy came to our place to ask us some questions about the neighbour. I have actually mentioned this before, asked us about the neighbour and in the meantime, I think we might have been sprinkling water on the crops at the time that he was there or something in the meantime he's standing going oh and what are you guys doing and anyway long story short there was some made up suddenly invented department that had been created like a basically a middleman between government and us i suppose uh that was like we had to you know we we can't do that you know like it was Department of Land and Waters, I think it was at the time, or Department of Land and Environment, maybe. They change it all the yeah, time, so yeah, it's yeah, hard yeah. to keep no, up with, you know. Yeah. Things amalgamate, sounds, you know. Sounds about right, though, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, just to finish this, um, the long long story short was that basically we had to start paying money if we wanted to keep using the water off our own, <laughs> the river that ran through our property. Right, And, right. Um, like, we weren't making, you know, we were just plodding along, making bits and pieces enough to sort of, you know, pay for fuel and the pumps and that kind of stuff. So we were certainly weren't making a living from it. It was just one, you know, one finger in another pie sort of thing um, and feeding ourselves. And so in the end it just became so unviable. We couldn't 
like making it into any kind of business or even, God forbid, using the word organic, <laughs> that's more hundreds of dollars to some other okay. made-up department. Wow. Wow. Yes. Okay. So you're like, who owns the water? Who owns the air? Who owns the soil? Who who owns the wildlife? Like here in the States, we've got the uh, Department of Natural Resources. And it's like a federal agency, but it's subdivided. Like there's every state has their DNR. So it's like a state slash fed thing. But they they claim to own the wildlife any wildlife that you take from the land has to be tracked and traced you have to have a permit a license a what have you to harvest wildlife which to me is just you know it's like come on you know nobody owns the wildlife just like nobody owns the wilderness you know, if you Jeez, can't, next thing you'll see deer wandering around with barcodes on their butts. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Seriously. You're, I mean, you're on the right track. Like, so I, I, I get, I get kind of upset. Cause I'm like, Oh, like the department of bullshit. It's not the department of natural resources. Y'all are the department of claiming ownership of what nobody can own. So you you sent me a link here um defining what is crown crown land. Yeah, that's wanna... uh that was just to um sort of back up my vague <laughs> comment that I made earlier. Um mm -hmm. but it sort of does. So the crown land this is okay, so this is New South Wales. So this is a state government website. So that tells me there's a few changes between states perhaps. I'm not sure. Uh, so basically, crown land may be transferred to First Nations people to manage the land according to their traditional custom. It can be sold, in brackets, if no longer benefiting users or serving a public purpose. Okay, so there's the thing where you may, maybe it can become urban. Uh, reserved for reserves, including national parks to protect our natural environment. So it's like a reserve, you know, it's not quite a national park, I gather. Um, licensed for particular activities like tourism-y things and, and you know, recreational things. Um, oh, it even says grazing. Um, agriculture, jetties, pontoons, boat ramps, etc. cetera, um, roads. Um, so that would be like fire break roads and things too, I guess, management. Uh, leased for range of purposes, tourism, renewable energy. Yeah, yeah. There's, see, there's, there's hitting the nail on the head there, aren't we? The renewable energy at the moment, you know, with all this bullshit renewable energy crap that has been proven to be more detrimental than beneficial to the planet and people mm -hmm. and everything except the pockets of them obviously because mm -hmm. it's about subsidies etc it's about it's about control it's about centralizing As well. control yeah yes. which is what actually um speaking of like edward abbey how he captivated you Something I, I was really interested to hear him talk about. I had never watched that interview, but he talks about how nuclear energy, even mm. though it's relatively environmentally friendly, right? Like in terms of carbon emissions and whatnot, it's it's centralized. It's he says it's inherently undemocratic, where if if we rely on very few folks to provide us with our energy. We are 
basically made into slaves. Which I, I had never really actually heard um, the argument put that way when it comes to nuclear energy. Because, you know, part of me wants to be like, you know, nuclear could be the future. Like, it's almost unlimited energy for like very limited input and 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 waste. But the waste is very <laughs> dirty, you know. So Well, okay. Yeah. There's yeah. another subject because is it? How dirty is it? Let's just remember that, oh, which meeting uh, was a G20 or one of those, you know, things where they all get together and do their little cockroach business um, was held in fucking Nagasaki. Was it Nagasaki or Hir Hiroshima? Oh, I think it was Nagasaki. I can't remember. Sorry. It was one of those two um, that got completely obliterated and was, you know, like completely obliterated by nuclear, you know, radiation, etc. And yet I, it was only, I don't know, a year or so, two years ago, maybe I was, I just got curious. I thought, oh, I wonder, it, I wonder how that's going. Um, it was something that sparked it. Maybe it was the Japanese tidal wave. I don't know. Something sparked me to look up. Oh, I wonder how Hiroshima and you know, Nagasaki are going these days. And to my surprise, it's like, oh, no, everything's cool. It's all safe. Come and, you know, tourism's being encouraged. And mm -hmm. and then they just held their, you know, the cockroaches just had their big little summit thing, whatever it was there the, last year. And oh. um, so it's like, well, it's obviously safe. So that makes me also go, well, you know, well, I think a lot of gotta, these things bullshit. You got to imagine that the greatest threat to centralized control would probably be like small scale nuclear, like l like local nuclear reactors that could, you know, power a city. Not not a whole state or a whole province, but just like one city, one small nuclear reactor. You know, imagine if you could have a a car. You know, we have nuclear submarines, right? The military oh, yeah. has has nuclear. And and like like um, they've got they've got nuclear powered um, aircraft carriers, so why can't we have like small scale nuclear reactors powering cities in a in a relatively decentralized way instead of this heavily centralized power grid where we lose you know one one fucking power plant and like an entire region is without power they. You know, it almost seems like maybe that is the psyop that like nuclear is so dangerous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We cannot even consider scaling it down. Right. <laughs> like the only people that are safe, the only people that are um, qualified to operate a nuclear reactor are the people that we say. The government sanctioned nuclear physicists, you know. God, I would love it if I could have a nuclear-powered pickup truck that, <laughs> yeah. just, that just ran all day long, you know? Probably a lot safer than the bloody lithium battery, I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> From what we're yeah. seeing around the world, you know? Seriously. How, how, much, seriously. how much havoc have they caused? Well, uh, There's know, a moratorium and, on, on nuclear power in Australia currently. Um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And at the beginning of last year, I actually did a story on the the union of the unknowns news show, not your mama's news, which was just very quickly. It was just about this little tiny tic tac sized pellet um, of plutonium. Apparently <laughs> the story was hilarious. It was 
packed inside a truck and this truck was taking it from a mine site to the city. Something like a, I don't know, two, 3,000 kilometre trek or 1,600, I think it was, kilometre trek, about 2,000 miles or something. And somehow this tiny little pellet of plutonium came loose from its box and it bounced out of the truck and found this little tiny hole in the corner of the yeah, truck yeah. and it fell out into the desert. And, oh, it's a needle in a haystack search and how dangerous it is. And if anyone comes near it or happens to see it, like, yeah, you'd see it cruising along well, the desert highway. <laughs> I'm, I'm don't go within of... five metres of it because it's it's highly, it's going to kill you basically, yeah. and it's like they yeah. found it in a few days. The whole thing was hilarious. It just reminded us how dangerous it is, basically. I think that's what it was about. Well, I feel like we had a similar, like, story here in the States where there was, like, a little, like, isotope sample that, that bounced off a truck. Either that or I'm just mixing oh, really? it up with your, with your story. But I, um, I almost think this might have been a psyop that they pulled on us. Yeah, just, like, yeah that happened. Similar, similar but different way. Um, yeah, it's like they give out these carbon copies and they just say, be a little bit creative with the way you go about yeah. it, but here's the general script. And so then they can't Here's be creative. Script, so yeah. they have to get their think tanks to do that. Well, so, so, so something I learned when I lived in Utah was that, um, people used to wear like necklaces with slightly radioactive, like, ore, you know, little like chunks of, 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 ore, like rock. Mm-hmm. in a necklace and they they seem to believe that it had medicinal properties it was like very lightly radioactive you know uranium ore mm-hmm. and before you know it so this is part of the theory with why why did the federal government feel the need to claim ownership of these vast areas of land it's if you overlay the map of federally owned land in the United States with discovered uranium deposits. It's essentially the same map. Mm -hmm. You following me? me It's the same in many countries. Yes. Yes. So like, are they not simply grabbing up these bits of land with this high energy potential? And controlling that energy, you know, to me, like when you when you sift through the bullshit and the and the minutia, it all boils down to money and power. And really, I mean, those are those are synonyms. Money is a unit of power, but it's it's, you know, when it comes to the ownership and the um, we'll say like, yeah, the defense of certain territory, certain lands. It's all about power. It's all about power. And yep. I, I think I mean that in the most literal sense with these Western lands in the States, because I think it might be more about uranium and and plutonium and nuclear power than just about anything else. Yeah, and if you go and look at um, a lot of the wars the many wars that are taking place because there's a hell of a lot we don't hear about. We only hear about the ones that they want us to hear about. And you'll find that a lot of those places and those countries and those areas that are war-torn are very rich in minerals. So that, you know, is just another facet 
it's just another cherry. I mean, actually, it's more than a cherry. It's probably one of the main foundational bricks, really. Um, <clears throat> they want to land grab because, it, yes, so the resources, etc. that's the same just about everywhere. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the irony with the renewable energy thing, I'm, I, I gather that, uh, what's his name, Edward Abbey is no longer with us. No, he he died. He unfortunately basically drank drank and smoked himself to death. Oh, okay. As far as we're as far as we're told, he died of like esophageal. Tortured bleed. artist. Yeah, he was he was a tortured artist. He was, yep. but yeah, died of esoph esophageal bleeding. He yeah, always had a cigar. Yeah, 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 that was a that was quite a cigar. That was a mother of yeah. all cigars. That one. <laughs> Groucho would have been very pleased. I think. Kind of like um, Hunter S. Thompson, I think he really drank the uh, the liquor mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, oh, where was I going? That's right. He was yeah, all about the renewable energy and that. I bet if he was around now and could see what's actually happening with this, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm sure renewable energy is an incredibly fantastic idea, even as a child. I used to remember thinking, why can't they harness the sun? Why can't they harness the lightning? Why can't they harness the waves? And then, you know, it's like, well, oh, the tech's fantastic. They can do that now. It's like actually maybe they went around it about, about it the wrong way. Like maybe there's other ways they could harness it but in a much more actual, efficient way if the agenda was right, which is actually, you know, making things better for people and what have you. That yeah. is not their agenda, sadly. So, so, so um, <clears throat> now I, it's just detrimental. He 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 actively fought against what he called the megalomaniacal mega machine, which is which is a tongue twister, but it's yeah I I, yeah. I like the choice of um yeah it's a good one syllabic uh I don't know you know it's very it's very symmetrical megalomaniacal <laughs> mega machine megalom megalomaniacal mega machine it's <laughs> That's a good you know, one for like, when you've had a couple I, of tequilas yeah 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 <laughs> i like it i like it it's you know say it five times fast but uh, his his enemy was the was the machine and i think given the context of today like i said i think he would have been more inclined to take the side of these ranchers as opposed to basically i think they're getting they're getting scared off the land for the sake of mining and um you know yeah, yeah the resources the yeah the, the mineral resources like cows they don't honestly all this shit about like cows are causing global warming and cow farts or <laughs> this and that i don't i don't think they give a fuck about cows i think <laughs> don't. i think i well except for the fact that a cow except for their beef yes a cow is the most efficient way to convert sunlight into food for people. So they have to wage a war on cattle. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and the fact that it's convenient. Um, and healthy. Oh, I was going to say a convenient, like boogeyman. They can, they can oh, take right, the, yeah. so this is the irony of like, this is why I say I didn't agree with everything that Edward Abbey said because he was very against ranchers, but I think that was his only, I think that was the only thing I disagree with him on. And it's because the ranching industry, the cattle industry as a whole is, 
is not a great thing, but the individual rancher is not the whole industry. You know, he made the mistake of, of conflating the rancher with the, uh, the beef lobby. Right. Yes. And you know, before, before you hopped in, I was sharing some clips about um, like the USDA and the FDA attacking literally with armed agents cattle farmers in the east who are doing grass-fed cattle (sighs) you know they are going after the people who are selling grass-fed beef and raw milk because Mm -hmm, they're not mm -hmm. because they're not adhering to certain regulations and um sent you know they're sending armed stormtroopers to shut down literally amish farmers Mm -hmm. who should at the very least have religious protection they don't have to adhere to usda regulations they're fucking amish it's religious those are holy fucking cows yeah you talk about immunity it's like well those people deserve it way more than anybody else yeah yeah, we've got the raw milk problem it's illegal here to buy consume mm -hmm. or supply raw milk in new south wales um i think not sure if they just made it illegal in Victoria. Oh no, in Victoria it can be bought, but only for bath milk, so cosmetics or bath sort of purposes, and it has to have a bittering agent added to it. <laughs> and uh, these, so apparently, these fuckers, these I know, fuckers, I you know, know you know, you know, with alcohol, with alcohol, this started during prohibition in the United oh, yeah. States. Mm-hmm. Where industrial strength alcohol had to have, they they made it law that you had to add deadly toxins, you know, mm-hmm. poison to industrial strength alcohol to discourage people from watering it down and drinking it, and yeah. and hundreds, if not maybe thousands, of people died because of these government sanctioned or rather government mandated poisons because you know liquor you know sipping liquor was illegal so people would buy industrial liquor and water it down and get drunk on that and no we can't have that so let's kill them let's fucking kill them with poison because not oh that's a double benefit because not only are they doing away with some of us cattle but also, they're not making any money on the taxable moonshine, etc. So you know. Well, and actually, <laughs> I think this will bit. come. This concept will come back around. This is going to be like kind of an epic episode, Stella. You know, I hope you're kind of in for it because, like, I I think I'm only like maybe two thirds of the way into it. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I'll keep it going. Yeah, I might just, go and make a coffee in a little while, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, I, you know, and you can always bail. You know, it's a free. It's raining uh, outside, so I can't do much in the garden at the moment. That's my excuse. <laughs> right Stuffy's on. not around. Right it's all good. But, um, but I think we'll come back around to that because, honestly, like, what I see happening in the inner cities, at least here in the states, sort of parallels what's going on elsewhere and what's happened in the past. Um. So that whole thing about like poison liquor, mm. I think could very well apply to fentanyl right now. Um, oh, yeah. Because I'm I'm pretty sure our government wants fentanyl on the streets. Um, oh, absolutely. But 
so that's just a teaser before we get there let me uh try to like finish out we'll try to finish one thing before we move on to the next so let me play a little more of this and uh we'll take it from there u.s congress has tried to stop them twice in the last decade by defunding them we saw through this that the executive agencies are too powerful for even the united states congress to limit so how did people come to know about the bundy family my family well, in April 2014, the BLM joined forces with four other federal agencies to enforce their unlawful trespass and destroy our ranch. They set up a massive military-like compound on the range. With 200 hired guns, mercenaries, they surrounded our ranch and put it under siege. They began to brutally round up our cattle with helicopters, running them to death, shooting them from the air, and leaving the newborn cows out on the range to thirst to death or to be eaten by coyotes. The dead cattle were dumped into mass graves dug by federal backhoes. They also began destroying the water infrastructure that had been established over a hundred years ago. Our family was threatened by BLM personnel that said, if we resisted in any way, this would be another Waco or Ruby Ridge. Knowing beforehand the abuses that they were about to cause would bring public outcry, the BLM built two First Amendment areas in non-conspicuous places and threaten the public with arrest and federal charges if anyone protests outside these areas. Our family, friends, and other local people began to protest first. They insisted not to have their First Amendment rights corralled and refused to protest in these remote, designated areas. With hired snipers on the hills, federal agents began to gang-beat protesters for filming their abusive actions. For several days, they body slammed us to the asphalt, sick dogs on us, tased us, and threatened to open fire on us for protesting on what they said was their property, even standing next to State Highway 170. With guns to our heads and our children's heads, federal agents said that the road belonged to the state, but the earth under it belonged to them. Much of this abuse was caught on video and was posted on the internet. Within hours, millions had viewed the gross actions of these federal agencies. People from all over the United States began flowing to the ranch. That Saturday, thousands had assembled and demanded the Clark County Sheriff Department and the state governor to do their jobs in protecting the people from out-of-control federal agencies. The Clark County Sheriff's Department finally stepped in and ended the abuse. All federal agents left the area within an hour, and the surviving cattle were brought back to the ranch to be doctored or turned out on the range, and then we went back to ranching. This infuriated the bureaucrats, people such as Harry Reid, who has personally made millions off of land deals with the Bureau of Land Management, publicly came out against our family and the people that stood up to them, calling us domestic terrorists, threatening that this was not over. Many of us wore name tags that read, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a domestic terrorist. Great-grandmothers, little children, and everyone in between wore them proudly. Since then, federal agencies have mounted a continual media campaign to demonize my family and those that stood against their horrific actions. In defense, we've had to respond by publishing the truth. My mother, sisters, and many of our friends and family have done the best we could to stop them from controlling the narrative. We knew that if they could change the public sentiment, they would once again justify forceful action against us. In an effort to make sure that this did not happen to any more families in Nevada, 
In early 2015, my family, along with several state representatives, entered a bill into the Nevada legislature. This bill would end the federal land grabs in the state and force the federal government to follow the Constitution to control land inside the state. Bill AB 408. It was the most publicly supported bill in the Nevada history. Despite its popularity, bureaucrats united together from within and changed the text of the bill right before it was voted on. The new text gave them more power rather than take it away. It was a full array of politics at its finest. On the last day of the House vote, we had to kill our own bill, hoping that Nevada legislatures would stand up to federal agencies and protect families like ours. We left Carson City with our heads hanging low and went back to ranching, working, and raising children. Before I go on, I need to say that even though our family is suffering great pain and sorrow right now, we do not hate or harbor anger for anyone. We pray daily and diligently for those who have and continue to harm us. We love the Lord Jesus Christ and desire in the end for all of us, even those that have spitefully put us in these jails, to find peace and happiness through his forgiveness and example. Through these great tribulations, we have strived to follow the Lord and do only as he has asked. Now let me go on. Okay, I'm gonna stop it there. Um, it's a long, it's a long video, and I kind of, I kind of want to share all of it, like over time. But like, we got to chew it up and and digest it. Um, well, fortunately, it's Odyssey, so we don't have any uh, being kicked off type. Yeah, things. yeah. See, see, Stella, like I, well, I, I had a bit of a realization today, right? I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm like, I gotta stop worrying about going too long, mm -hmm. and I gotta stop worrying about. Um, I don't know. We, we got to put our shit out on platforms where we don't have to censor ourselves. Yeah. Yep. I agree. So there's that. Uh, but also like I, I have half a feeling, I think maybe the WTF forum. Yeah. Okay. I'll put it this way before I say what I, what I was going to say this, this issue of private land versus wilderness I think there's actually it's a good uh, corollary to what I'm trying to do with the WTF forum. To me, the WTF forum is the wilderness. Like nobody owns the WTF forum. Easy peasy podcast is my private property, but the WTF forum is the open range. We're mm, all nice. we're all yeah. allowed to to venture into the WTF form. Does that, does that make sense? Cause I've, you know, for yeah. the listener, like I've had to kind of explain this, you know, I've had to clarify what is the WTF form? Yeah, I didn't quite un understand either, but yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that's, that's understandable. It's, it's um, not really a place, a, is it? It's not a place. It's a it's, state of it's mind. No, it's no one place. It's, it's a, well, to me, it's a um, cooperation. It's it's yeah, many people, many places coming together for a forum that does not belong to any one of us. Like, this is my thing. I'm like, I am no Klaus Schwab. I do not own the forum. Okay. I am no, I am no chairman. I am no uh, dictator. You know, so I, I hope that kind of makes sense. Like, no, it's the wilderness. It's, it's the thing that we all own and simultaneously none of us own 
Yeah, it's like meeting in the park. Yes, yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah, yeah. any any thoughts you want to share, though? Uh, oh, just back to that disgusting um, display of authority, <laughs> self confessed authority or self professed authority. Uh, how disgusting and vile are those people? Well, they're not even people; they're creatures. They're not people. So it's soulless. Um, when I wanted to ask you, when was that? What was the date of that uh, particular event of the, the standoff? The, the standoff yeah. was in like I want to say twenty. You know, the funny thing is, it was it was shortly before my tenure in the national parks. So I want to say it was like 2012, 2013. Oh, okay. I would have to confirm, but right I, there. I was working in the national parks in like 2015. And this whole, this whole scenario was like kind of common conversation. And, um, you know, all the people that worked for the national parks for the most part thought these Bundy folks were a bunch of nut jobs. You know, some of them yeah. got got tasked with like going down there as like, you know, backup. They, you know, because where I was in U I was in southern Utah, we were only maybe five or six hours from the Bundy Ranch. And uh so it was kind of almost like in in, in the southwest United States, if it if it happened within six or seven hours drive time, that's basically local news. Yep. Okay. You know, like pretty big place. It's such a, <laughs> it's a big fucking place. <laughs> I had, I had to drive like an hour and 40 minutes to the, to the grocery store. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. like when I lived there, it, you know, the nearest place was like a gas station and that was like 20 miles away. And if I wanted to actually get like provisions, I'd have to go like, I'd have to drive a you know couple hours, so yeah, it's... yeah. I had to go two hours to in labor to have my baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and actually, if if I had had you know, luckily I didn't need it, but if I had had to gone to a hospital, it would have been like a four five hour drive, oh, or God. like the helicopter. You know, helicopters got to come get you. Yeah, so, yeah. This is the kind of place where uh, it's the wilderness. It's the fucking yeah. wilderness, man. That's my point. Like they, at the back they, of whoop whoop, we call it. They call it. They they claim ownership, but I don't think they can really do that. I think it's a very tenuous uh, claim, at best. It's like people, you know, it's like all these countries claiming that they're going to own the moon and mine the moon. <laughs> mm. Well, you got to get there mm. first. But apart from that, that's another argument. Um, yeah. So who says? Uh, who said that that's yours? <laughs> You right, know. right. It's the same old thing, you know. Who said that that part of the ocean's yours? Who said that that part of the the air, the the airspace? Because we only own a little bit of airspace in our properties, and then from a certain amount of I don't know distance, whatever it is, twenty foot or fifty foot or whatever it is, up, it's like it's not ours anymore. <laughs> they own it. Right, uh, it's right. It's just weird concepts. Like they own all the elements. I mean, it's all the elements, isn't it? It's like you said before: air, water, earth. What's the other one? Fire and the ether. So it's like they, they're trying to get the ether now. <laughs> they own space. Right. So um, did you happen to watch this video that I uh, that I put in the telegram about Seattle? 
Uh, no, I didn't get round to that because I should have been doing something else. <laughs> no, it, uh, no. Well, it was. It's like an that was hour actually long. in Seattle. I wanted to ask that because that that's the guy where there's no cops allowed. That one. Say that again. You were kind of breaking up. The video where there's no cops allowed. Yes. Yes. Right. So okay. yes. in Seattle, uh, during the George Floyd riots, there was an area that was declared like an autonomous zone. And um, to, to nobody's surprise, it's kind of fallen apart. Mm-hmm. You know, because guess what? You cannot have an autonomous zone inside of a major city. You know, it's like you can't possibly grow the food and like have the water. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can call yourself autonomous all you want. Are you? Mm, are you exactly. autonomous so um i i jumped ahead this is like an hour-long documentary and honestly like i almost cried like this shit brought a tear to my eye and um this this youtuber he he's worth a shout out because i think he's doing really really valuable work uh showing like what is actually happening in the cities um Oh, this guy, yeah. I do recognize him. I've seen him, yeah, Mm -hmm. do a number of things in San Francisco, like going under the tunnels and checking out the homeless and all that. Exactly. We've we've used his clips on the on the forum. Yeah. Um so anyways, let me let me play a few minutes here. Um, but this kind of goes to show that, like, again, what the fuck? What is ownership? Who owns what? Fentanyl related? I have no idea. Okay. Overdose. Can't say I'm surprised. Yeah. A lot of drugs in this area. At the time when this was going down, there were a few of us who had been protesting from before the area was an Occupy Zone. Myself, Raz Simone, a few others. So people at this point were recognizing us as some of the leaders. I gathered a group of people. I said, all right, we got to come up with some new names. And somebody said, well, what about Capitol Hill Occupy protests? Chop. Misconception might be that you guys show up here, we're going to start our own society or civilization, and then they see you guys asking for materials. In reality, it's a protest. It was a protest. Okay. Yeah, this is actually the vice president of my nonprofit. Uh, Tracy was here every day with me at Chop as well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So we went back to the BLM Garden in Cal Anderson Park to understand how the protesters used homeless people to achieve their goals. Uh, So here we have members from the homeless community and people that are here to help them. So we actually invited the homeless to Chop. And the reason that we invited them is because, as I mentioned, we wanted to defend that police precinct. But we knew people are just going to wait until people are gone in the middle of the night, and then they're going to try to break in and damage the building. The best way to make sure that we could get people to stay here regularly was to invite the homeless in. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to come and sleep on the concrete for 30 days, you know, in a, in a row. And it's clearly succeeded, right? And so, yeah, we said, you know what, if you guys want to support this movement, we yeah. will help support you. And so we regularly have food out here for the homeless. We were giving away clothes for the homeless. Were any of you guys here during CHOP? Uh, it's public property. We're just asking a question. We don't have to talk. Well, we're just talking about CHOP. Yeah, we're just taking a look at the garden that was formed here. But we see it's a camp. We're trying to tear down the garden, and that's why we're here. So you guys are here to prevent the garden being taken down? Yeah, they're trying to, they're trying to take this whole area out and put in a pickleball court. These people are not trustworthy. Why is that? Can you explain why we're not trustworthy? 
Please don't film me. I don't consent to be filmed. Well, can you elaborate? I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to elaborate. Please. So why is he frustrated at us trying to leave the guard? They, they think you guys are untrustworthy. That you're going to go probably, you might be right wing or something. And you might be publicizing this in a way that might slander us. Got it. Yet despite the strong mistrust, this homeless guy who was here during CHOP came over to talk to me. You were here during CHOP? We're here for all of CHOP. Is there a division and conflict within CHOP from the get-go? No, it was it was, it was was peaceful. It was unity. It, and then it just it went to hell. And how many people died here while it did last? Yeah, two. Who shot who and why? I don't want to get into that. Okay. Did you see it? Yeah. Okay. Do you think that was the nail in the coffin of CHOP and what it represented at the time? Or? I think so. We've got one person killed, uh, potentially others injured. We don't know. We don't know what the incident was. But the Seattle Police Department cannot go in and has not confirmed. That is correct. How can that stand in America? You guys are that afraid? There's no way. There's no way. He's dying. He needs your help. This is your job. I want to make sure that we have not been cleared to move in. You are clear. We're giving you the clear. We will make sure you're clear. If he dies, it's on you guys. You could have saved his life. You could have, but you're not because it's a black light. And look at this video from live stream cameras just before 3 a.m. More than a dozen shots are heard. Video that captures what sounds like more than a dozen gunshots. And then at 2.59, at the very top of your screen, you can see that white Jeep plow into the cement barricades. And it is abundantly clear to our detectives, people had been in and out of the car after the shooting. Detectives are trying to get information from witnesses, but as has been the case in other crime scenes up in this area, people are not being cooperative with our request for help. They uh, tried to offer aid. They were offering aid for about 25 minutes. We were calling police, telling them, come in. You guys are safe. We're right here. It's very easy to access, but we need to get this man to a hospital. And for 25 minutes, I watched that man bleed out on the table. And, um, man, it was actually one of the one of the ugliest things I've ever seen, not just because I had to witness somebody die, but because I also had to witness how the people around were reacting to watching this young man die. Um, a lot of people were just concerned about getting the video on their, their social media and recording it. It was, it was incredibly frustrating. See, you watched this young man die in front of your eyes. Yes. Right there. Yeah. But this was our medic station. There was a lot of things that was going on um, within CHOP. I was almost assaulted in CHOP as well, and I called the police, and they never showed up. Can you explain the relationship between the police and the protesters at the time, and was one of the goals of CHOP to cut the police funding in half? Separate group. A separate group? That was a separate group, because again, like I said, there was two sets of protesters. There okay. was the protesters who wanted to defund the police, and there was the protesters like myself who wanted to keep the police, but maybe um, hold them accountable. My question has always been, why did the police evacuate their building? Seattle PD. Yeah. Maybe I can ask him. Were you here during shot by chance? Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on it? No. <laughs> they don't want to talk. They don't want to talk to the abandoned police station. Excuse my language. As we walked to the police precinct that was abandoned by the police, leading to the formation of CHOP, Mark began to share why he thinks the government's current stance on drugs and harm reduction is racist. Why has it become a white supremacy thing? Because a lot of it is geared towards the white community. Now look at the 90s during the crack epidemic. Crack cocaine. The problem is crack cocaine. They were en masse beating black people, throwing them in jail, locking them up for as long as they could. And now we see, let's decriminalize it. Let's give them safe injection sites. Make sure that they get free housing. Look at how the response was different from white to black. They have reversed their stance when it's white people that are the ones that are overdosing, doing the crime and drugs. Now all of a sudden we need to decriminalize this. So you're so. saying if 
these were predominantly black people using these same drugs, the stance would be different. Exactly. I'm saying that's what it is in general. When okay. white people are going through something, the government will step in and help them. Oh, the farmers are having crop spelling. Oh, you're going to get all kind of grants and this and that. Do you think the United States is one of the most racist nations out there? The, I think that they were victimized in the past and they are still being victimized now. Activism seemed to be within the DNA of Seattle. And I saw a free Palestine rally in downtown Seattle that same day. From your perspective, do you all right, I'm pausing, okay, because that guy was hitting on something. I, What do you think, Stella Q? I just want to shout out Perm because he's from Seattle. <laughs> mm. He's one of our unknowns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, well, you know, the war on drugs. I'm sure we're all aware that the war on drugs was never a war on drugs. <laughs> it's a war on the people. Um, drugs happens to be one of their weapons. So, I mean, you'd have to be fairly naive to not understand that the CIA have a very big part to play in, you know, drug availabilities and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's all part of the agenda, isn't it? And how the tables have turned, you know, like everything's just incredibly inverted. It blows my mind still every day, 180-degree in inversion of everything, including just listening to, you know, that dude say, you know, oh, you whites, when there's something wrong, that the government are going to jump in and help. It's like, well, not anymore. Um, mm. You know, whenever see, there's see, a problem, this, they'll throw money. It's like, well, not anymore. <laughs> this is what I want to get at. Um, I think he's mistaken. I, I like, I see his point. He says, um, you know, when the war, when the white farmer uh, needs help, the government helps. Okay, let's let's take mm. ten steps back and look at this from a wide perspective. Yeah. It's the same fucking thing, okay? I am convinced that I don't want to say the government. Let's let's say like the deep state, not the government, yeah. but the deep state. They want fentanyl on the streets, mm -hmm. and they want the American farmer dependent on government grants and 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 funding, and you know the 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 fentanyl of the white man. The white farmer, I shouldn't say the white man, but let's say the white farmer, the fentanyl is 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 in the form of government support. You know, price fixing and and subsidi subsidization, subsidies, all this shit. Like this is the, they want all of us hooked on something. Yeah. Because if yeah, we're we hooked have to on be something, dependent. if we're hooked on something, we depend on someone else. Exactly. Correct. Yeah, autonomy is their their enemy, basically. It reminds me of, um, yeah. yeah, it's just they, they want us all on the nipple. They want us all suckling on the government nipple um, forever and not because they care. <laughs> um, but it always just reminds me, I, I bet you anything, you know, remember that show Get Smart? Do you remember that? Or are you a bit young? I'm I'm aware of it. Um, there there have been remakes, so I know what it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve, whatever his name is, played it. Don Steve, Adams, Steve Carell. Yeah, but I know I, yeah. I, I've actually I've seen a few episodes of the old show. Yeah, so I'm not totally I'm not totally a, yeah. a, a millennial here. Either way, it doesn't have to be the original. The, the concept was the same: the control and chaos. It was funny because you know they were always opposite you know it's like no they're not actually they're hand in hand and uh, uh, what i was going to ask was are they doing any reruns of that because of the fact that um chaos was you know based on a a german with the eagle and you know the reiki look and all that i bet they probably i don't know whether they'd allow that now would they um 
I don't know what the remake was like either. I never saw that. So I'm, I'm going to assume the chaos was watered down to be less racist. Was it? Do you know? Did you see it? Or? I'm getting off track a little yeah. bit here. Well, I'm just going, I, sort of, yeah, I'm going I, with I, the I, chaos, chaos and control yeah. thing, sort of basically being I'm not, not, I'm, not fam- I'm not familiar enough to say one way or the other. Um, Fair enough. But, All right, let's move on. Yeah, well, so I want to <laughs> kind of hop, I want to hop back and forth because as always, it's like kind of hard to illustrate why my, my, like why my mind thinks these things are the same, but different. Um, you know, it's kind of like, actually you said the government wants everybody suckling at it. Yeah. I, I don't think that's exactly right. It's like, uh, Pendant. some people, some people have to pay and other people depend on, you know, it's like, it, it's the same cow. Some people feed it grass and other people take the milk. You know, like, so in terms of these cattle ranchers, they've basically had to pay. They've been, they've been forced in order to maintain their way of life. They have to pay all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees to graze <laughs> the cattle. Right, right. Fees that their, their dad or their granddad never had to pay. Mm. Now yeah. they have to pay. So, you know, it's like two sides, same coin. You know, they're they're extracting from one person to feed the other. You know, this is like twisted socialism, but it's really fucking twisted when you're you're extracting from the person who produces food in order to feed the person who shoots up fentanyl. Yeah. You know, like we've gotten very twisted. So, again, we'll come back to uh, to Seattle, but let me play a little more of this interview from Timcast um, because I think Amon Bundy, it, you know, as much as he's kind of just like a redneck rancher, like he makes a lot of really good points. Yeah, like, he's a yeah, he's a good human. I think he's a good yeah. human. Yeah, seems seems like it. You know, when I was in the National Park Service. I was pretty much told he's a piece of shit. So okay. it's been interesting to go back and kind of make up my own mind. Yeah. So, Look, yeah. it's been, it's been really challenging for me too. I'll just quickly say, because I was very yeah. much, you know, the, the greenie and you know about all save the forest mm-hmm. and all this, and, which I, you know, still am. It's, it, you know, it's about love and respect of the wildlife, etc. I hate the urban sprawl. I hate mm-hmm. it, but then I can't say that because I'm a hypocrite. I'm a human. I'm part of it. So, um, but I just think, yeah. well, you know, if you really have a love for the environment and everything, as we all should, but sadly don't, there are ways to manage it and ways to handle it respectfully and with each other as well and culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, it's the same old thing. It comes down to the human heart. That's what has to change because until well, it does, there will always be corruption. And, and I'll, yeah. I'll say that like, truthfully the best environmentalists historically speaking have been hunters and ranchers and Mm -hmm. farmers because they understand that if they take too much there won't there won't be enough left over it's very it's very fucking easy for a a a communist kind of left-wing you know activist to claim that they are an environmentalist 
but they've never lived in the environment. This is why I take what Edward Abbey says very seriously, even if I disagree with him. It's because he had he had a very like he had a very nuanced and in-depth understanding of the dynamics at play between you know the private interests the government and and the the people right it's not as simple as cows bad you know solar panels good yeah exactly and what, like w- yeah which is what a lot of like urban environmentalists would basically boil their argument down to yeah most of them have probably never stepped out of a city for longer than a couple of weeks in a nice plush mm-hmm. glamping area but mm-hmm. um the thing what's well, something that opened my eyes actually fairly recent, oh, in the last year or two, a couple of years, um, was the whole veganism thing. And because mm-hmm. um, I, mm-hmm. I got to know a fellow, a local fellow here and his wife, um, great people. I'm actually hoping to talk to them on air at some point. But um, he is a, um, well, he sort of man- manages the feral life, the feral wildlife, so to speak, for, for farmers, etc. cetera. Um, and he's a pretty good guy. He's going to do it as humanely as possible. I know that. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a fairly big industry because of farming and because of the ferals. Uh, but the thing is that he, yeah, he said to me, if only vegans knew how many animals, etc., died so that they could have their vegan diet, <laughs> no, they would be um, totally, totally, you know. totally. It's 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 a total disregard of the reality of the situation. Yeah. If you if you say, oh, I'm vegan. I, you know, my diet doesn't contribute to the death of anything. Guess how many critters and how many bugs get annihilated to produce a field of soybeans so that you can have your tofu. Yep. Like you are choosing, you're choosing to ignore the reality that tofu has more blood on its hands than any fucking steak. Yes, unless it's Guaranteed. made like the traditional Japanese way with, you know, grand, grandfather doing it every single right. day. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, anything, any monoculture is an assault on the environment. We, you know, that's that's where the farmers are in the black zone because they're mm-hmm. sort of participating in that monoculturally pillaging the environment type thing and working the soil to death. So that's not the way to go either. But um, as far as, yeah, back to the ownership thing, it's you're, you're exactly right. It's like, well, you know, in the old days, you just go and stake a claim. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's like, oh, no, oh, no, suddenly you've got to pay all this money to do something that you could do. Yeah, like you say, our grandparents could do before. I mean, it's even as stupid as if you want to change your name or you need to get another birth mm-hmm. certificate because you lost your original. <laughs> you have to pay like you, heaps of hey, money to hey, go and got- uh, reprint. You've got you've Stella, you've got the exact point. I you know, I had to go to the BMV today. That in American speak, that is the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I had my license plate fall off the back of my pickup truck. Also, I you know, I've got like I've got Did it fall off or did someone nick it? No, it fell off. Nobody nicked oh, okay. it. I, I guarantee it just fell off because frankly I didn't hang it quite right so oh, okay fair enough yeah it's it's on me <laughs> You'll no it. big deal but you know i've got three vehicles and a trailer all of which require plates 
and annual registration. And so I go to the BMV today because, you know, I've been driving on expired fucking tags <laughs> for the last month. And I actually Allegedly. got pulled over. No, I, I fuck it. Oh, I you got care. pulled over. Right, I, I got pulled over. And and the cop, you know, he was really actually a very cool cop. I said, you know, he pulled me over. He goes, you know why I pulled you over? I go, I'm, I, you know, I've got a pretty decent idea. Uh, he goes, yeah, your your plates are expired. I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> they were, at that point, at that point, they were only one week expired. Oh, uh, that's so he. That. Yeah, he looks at me, says, no big deal. He goes, get it taken care of. Here's a warning. You've got sixty days. You know, when you get it all situated, call this number and tell them you got it resolved. So right. literally, you know, today I go to the BMV first chance I've had because I work five days a week and they're open on Saturdays, but it's the holiday season. So they've been closed like the last two Saturdays. Right. Yeah. Right. So, mm -hmm. so I go today and I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, ladies getting my shit all took care of and blah, blah, blah. And somebody's sitting at the booth next to me and they've got, you know, I actually appreciated the fact that my BMV, uh, lady concierge whatever she was very matter of fact and like what do you need here you go here's yep, what you these owe. books right yep. here you know yeah, 210 dollars, and you're good for the next 12 months okay <laughs> done deal yeah but i'm sitting and I, somebody else sits down next to me and you know the next booth the the gal that was working with them is almost like too chipper for my own comfort zone <laughs> and, uh, and you know the person comes those down ones like, hey. say, those ones that always say hey, well, oh perfect yeah per no exactly 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 <laughs> yeah. and this yeah. is what this is what bugged me so the person sits down they go hey so like I lost my driver's license I need a new driver's license <clears throat> excuse me and they're like okay cool like so we're gonna need this that and the other and the person hands them an envelope and they open it up and they go, oh, my God, you have it all. You've got your driver's license, your birth certificate, you, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, you're you, good job. You know, oh, no, like, she, she was being like she was just being way too chipper. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm watching this whole thing. Somebody wound her up like just a minute prior. Yeah. Well, she's very happy to be um, the heel of the boot. Right. Mm -hmm. She's very happy to be the heel of the boot. So I'm like watching that go down. And then I, I look over to my own lady and she she's pulling out uh, photocopies of my records, none of which I have brought today. But she, I, I see she's got a stack of of papers and she's got a photocopy of my birth certificate. She's got a photocopy of my Social Security number. She's got all of my vehicular registration information and she just slips it all into a little slot and i'm like i'm like i'm like my god like i just i just paid 200 and some dollars so that these people could double check my records that's all it was mm -hmm. i paid i paid to get checked up on and you know speaking of the american west it used to be where you owned a horse and if someone stole your horse, you could legally kill them for stealing yeah. your horse. Yep. Now, Wrestling. now we pay the government for the privilege of <laughs> riding the horse. 
Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's, well, I mean, when, when did life just become a little slot, you know? Yeah. Where At some, bureau- some bureaucrat happen? files your shit into just so you can exist. I think it was around the internet time, wasn't it? When things got digitized. Mm-hmm. Because, well, it's been going on. Yeah. It's been going on longer than that. It has, it has, I guess. Yeah. But I guess it became less human, like even more soulless when that happened, because there's sometimes there's just no rebuttal. Um, you know, at least when there was hand kept things and books and people that wrote things in places, you could also appeal to those people if there was something a little bit wrong or misunderstood or something. But now it's just like zero one. It's either this or that, as in the sense of, you know, the system, um, like, you know, to a point that can be a very good thing because it can simplify things, but it doesn't allow for, um, you know, there's no humanness to make a decision about whether that zero should have actually been a one or the one should have been a zero, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no, that's that's going to be the problem. There's actually a movie that I highly recommend and <laughs> speak about fairly regularly uh, called Brazil. Um, B-R-A-Z-I-L it's, I'm not really quite sure what it's called Brazil but uh, anyway it's a really interesting film and I highly recommend, I'm not going to go into the whole synopsis of it but um, it's sort of, it, it, well it is basically about yeah one small mistake and where, where that can lead in a soulless system hmm. but it's, it's a very interesting, very creative movie as well. Uh, Robert De Niro's in it so it is worth watching well, I might check that out um... You know, some something I was thinking about today is that like there is no action without a reaction. There yes. is no there there's no such thing as um a government like action, right? Like law or regulation or what have you. It doesn't happen and then nothing nothing happens as a result. There's always consequences. Now, there's kind of two types of consequences, desired and unintended, right? So, like, people are always very quick to say, oh, yes, you know, we need to have this action. We need to create this law. And they're very slow to recognize what the potential consequences of that law could be. So... If I can, let me uh, let me play a little more of this. This is Amon on uh, on Timcast, but I think uh, just yeah, I'll just, just before play you do, it. I just want just very yeah. quickly. I just want to say Go that's ahead. a ploy. That's a ploy, though, isn't it? Because they they push out this sort of kind of outrageous thing that they know is going to create a reaction with the people, and then. You know, this is just the think tank, the the mind control. Then they reel it in a bit and go, "Oh yeah, okay, well we'll we'll listen to you and we'll amend something here." And then the people go, "Oh well, yeah, nearly." And then they go, oh, "Okay, we'll amend this." And then it gets stripped back to exactly what they wanted to do in the first place. And the people feel like, "Oh, that's good. That's much better. Thanks." And the thing gets passed through, and it's like, "Hang on, that whole thing shouldn't have been passed through at all." You know, it's like mm. we just got the best version of shit, um, mm-hmm. and people are just like, "Oh." Yeah, right. And then they look back and go, oh, it's too late now. Well, you know, I now that now that you say that, I think like the tragedy of Edward Abbey is that he inspired a whole generation of like radical environmentalists who took his message and twisted it and used it in the wrong way, 
like I think he had unintended consequences with his own writing. He ended up inspiring like a lot of Marxist type folks. And mm. it's like they lost the message. You know, they they took his words almost too literally instead yeah. of seeing what was like kind of subsurface. Um, mm. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah, we've, we had a similar character, which does make me sort of wonder, you know, if these people are kind of placed because we had a Bob, a guy called Bob Brown who is was part of the Green Party and there was a big um, hoo-ha in Tasmania in, oh, it was the 70s, and they were going to dam a, a river called the Franklin River and like they, TM, were going to dam it and um, – I can't quite remember the exact details, but the whole point of it was that Bob Brown basically, they, they all went down there and they they protested and they persisted and in the end they won. So they won the, 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 the battle, the battle. So, but, you know, obviously I guess, you know, as what happens is that they all let these little wins happen every now and then so the people remain empowered in their heads and they'll just sort of, you know, there's so much happening and so many things at hand that they can, okay, we'll just do that for now and then we'll come back to that in maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 years and get what we wanted <laughs> eventually once these people die out um, and they'll just go on to something else. So I don't know. I, I think the victories are very few and far between. I'd like to think that there are some wins. I mean, there are some wins. Obviously, the Franklin Dam one. I mean, the Franklin River one but um, and the wildlife um, but, you know, for how long. And there was lots of other raping and pillaging going on in Tasmania at the time anyway, so there's that paper mills and all sorts of things so yeah anyway sorry i didn't want to um knock you off your uh, road to playing that video finishing no that's okay like i'm actually having kind of a hard time deciding which direction i want to go um but i'm going to go back to aman bundy um you know i'm at this point where it's kind of like i'm trying to like wrap the thought together and mm -hmm. there's a few different points to come at it from um okay. I'm going to play I'm going to play this for a while cuz I know that he said some things in here that I think are worth commenting on so I'll try to uh I'll try to take notes um either that or I'll pause when when the moment comes but it's it's not as simple again like Edward Abbey I I love his writing he's he's like my hero author I think even he, like, he oversimplified things at times. Again, like, the rancher, he thought the rancher was his enemy, but I think he was wrong. Like, the rancher is just a guy. The government was always the enemy, and he more or less recognized that. But, anywho, let me play this. Yeah, and things have changed a little bit, too, as well. Like, yeah. certain things true, would, have, true, true. would have different sways it's, here and there. I think it would have been super interesting to get his take like now, but he died mm. in 86 mm. or 89 or something. So that's not possible, but yep. anywho, here we go. Now that sounds bunk because I've been, we've been dealing with it with this when we were uh, moving out to West Virginia, everybody warns you you're only buying surface rights. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm like, what does that mean? And that means that if somebody owns the mineral rights, they can come on your property in, in a way that's reasonable and start digging. And then I'm like, what? What am I buying then? 
Like if I'm going to build something here, I can't have you come on with some machinery and start digging in my ground. Yeah. So they, they separated that. This was all part of this. Uh, they separated, made it so that you can separate the real estate, the land with the mineral rights. Right. And that, that wasn't, that wasn't always the case. Remember the, uh, uh, Beverly Hillbillies where yep. they bought this land and they were digging and this oil comes out next thing you know, they, you know, they're millionaires and they moved to Beverly Hills. Yeah. Well, that's the way it used to be. Like if you own the land, you also own the resources underneath it or above it. Yep. But now big corporations will buy the land, buy the mineral rights, sell the surface to you. And then in the event, they actually find something, show up one day and be like out of the way. Yep. Oh, now, yep. To our uh, benefit, I suppose, there's not really a whole lot going on in West Virginia in terms of minerals. So unless they discover something they didn't know about before, some new mineral. Yeah, they're using all the coal gone Mm -hmm. then because I thought West Virginia was all about coal. I think that's in the mountains, though, like mountaintop and stuff like that. I don't know for sure. What I do know is that when we were looking at land, we, we went over this and they were like, you don't have mineral rights. But to be honest, they've already done a sweep. Here's the report. There's nothing here. It's like mud and and rock like nothing <laughs> worth anything but there's been a new breakthrough in underground stick? scanning with i think lasers and there's uh yeah. underground LIDAR. mapping can, yeah can uh, we post it might not be lidar but a form of laser underground mapping so they might start finding crazy minerals deeper than you thought i don't know they could discover something new is what people don't realize we may find sorry stella were you uh trying to say something there yeah yeah um i was just gonna say that what they were just talking about there saying, Oh, there's nothing much there, but you know, a bit of water and mud, mud and stuff. And I thought, well, yeah, that's the gold. Do you realize that? Like that we have to, we, I think it's probably good to look at that link that I sent you. Cause I haven't um, looked much through it either. And it sounds really interesting. The little bit that I was looking at something about extracting water from underground or under un, out of rock. I don't know. Maybe it's some weird stuff. I don't know, but I'm thinking, yeah, like what? What, what link are you about saying? Minerals. Big pardon. Um, you said you shared a link. Um, I'm not seeing it. Oh, in uh, Telegram it was. Hang on. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yeah, I was looking in our, yeah. Primarywaterinstitute.org. Okay. I thought that was what you were referring to earlier, actually, but I guess not. Um, yeah. Should anyway, I'll let up? you. I'm, I'm, is it in the WTF or? Oh, here yeah. it is. Um, Primary. Wait, oh, wait. you got it? Because I got it too. No, if you like. no I don't. No, I Copy don't. Link. Wait. Okay. Let's see. Oh, yeah. I'll Primary. Okay. In the private there it is. Chat. I got it. Yeah. I got it. Okay. You got it first. <laughs> yeah. Here, I'll pull you it won. up. Tell us, tell us what we're looking at here. Well, as I said, I haven't really looked at it fully. It was one of those things that I came across while I was looking for something else. And I went, oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to look at that. And I put it aside and I just had a really quick glimpse over what it's about. I can't even remember how I found it now. I just look at so many different things. It's like, and I've got like hundreds of tabs open, seriously, in both my computers, all browsers. So, um, yeah, it was something about, okay, research undertaken by Stephen Rice, that was the dude that got me on here, in 1934 showed enormous quantities of virgin water could be obtained from crystalline rocks. This involved a combination of geothermal heat and a process known as tribuluminescence, tri- triboluminescence, a glow which a glow which electrons in the rocks discharge as a result of friction or violent pressure that can actually release oxygen and hydrogen gases in certain ore-bearing rocks. This process is called cold oxidization and can 
uh, can form virgin or primary water. Rice was able to tap straight into formations of hard desert rock of the right composition and produce as much as 8,000 litres per minute. And then there's a link to something else which is worth looking at. And it just, when I read that, that was the bit that I went, oh, I've got to look into this because my first thought was when um, uh, Moses, God forgive me if that's wrong, but Moses was in the desert and he struck the rock and then water came rushing out of it. He struck it with his staff and water came rushing out of it. Um, And I just thought, ooh, (laughs) because, you know, there's so many things in the Bible which to just go, oh, yeah, right, sure, how can that happen? And it's like, well, maybe this might have had something to do with that concept that was written of in the ancient days that's been translated so many times. Well, it, so, it, it makes know, me think, think about makes me think about what we were talking about with um, nuclear energy. Like how how much would that disrupt their plans if we exactly had, if we had access to relatively like limitless sources of water, energy, food. You know, I think it's why. Like, I think permaculture has been suppressed. It's like, they do not want us to grow our own food. They, they want, they want to control the energy, the food, the water and the land. Absolutely. And yeah, and all the health stuff because they, you know, I mean, that's what the Rockefellers and that did back in the early late 1800s and early 1900s was completely demonize any herbal natural therapies and replaced it with snake oil and, poisons and pharmacaea so they yeah exactly i mean it's nothing new um they have definitely been trying to (laughs) destroy us eliminate control for a very 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 long time well let me uh let me play some more of this this was from um aman bundy when he was in jail i played some of it already but um Unreal. This was him. Yeah. This was him talking to a reporter on the phone from prison. So, um, man, yeah, just the uh, the control, the control of land and the control of food has led to this entire story as far as the Bundy Ranch. And I want to give y'all like a full kind of view of it. So here we go. go on. Towards the end of 2015, many became aware of another ranching family in Oregon, the Hammonds, where the father, Dwight, 74, and the son, Stephen, 43, had been put in prison for resisting federal agencies of the executive branch in taking their lands. The abuse to this family over two decades is terrible. Federal agencies of the executive branch came together and have taken their water rights, destroyed much of their ranch, restricted use of private property and access to it. Through the courts, they have taken hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines, forced them to sign that they would only sell their ranch to the BLM and put them in prison the second time for doing maintenance on their ranch without a permit from the Bureau of Land Management. All of this was done inside the state of Oregon, 
on private property or land that federal agencies do not have con constituted authority to administrate. These same tactics are being used to take established property rights all over the United States. The EPA, an agency of the executive branch, is using the same playbook in the eastern states. Before federal agencies diminished ranching and destroyed logging in Harney County, where the Hammonds lived, the county had the highest family incomes in the state of Oregon. Now families in Harney County struggle with the lowest incomes in the state. Over the last 30 years, Harney County has consistently declined in incomes, population, and jobs because of the federal government's overtake of the land and resources. The best hope of employment anyone has now in Harney County is working for a federal agency of the executive branch, the BLM, Forest Service, or Fish and Wildlife. Government employment tallies at 58% of Harney County income. This percent does not include those on government assistance. Together, approximately 70% of Harney County residents depend on the government for their living. Okay, I'm interjecting here. Um, God, this is going to be such an epic episode. We're going to go for a while yet, I'm pretty sure. I don't even give a fuck. Um, but, <laughs> no fucks but, given here either. No fucks given, okay? <laughs> this might be like the longest episode ever, but it's a big topic. So when I when I lived in Utah, when I was an intern for the Park Service, a good number of my coworkers, probably I'd say like 40%, maybe 50%, were locals who were employed by the Park Service. And these locals had history. They had family history of of basically the Park Service stealing their ancestors land and they held a certain amount of animosity but at the same time they worked for the same people they hated because it was the best opportunity that was left you know their yes. their rangelands were were taken their their orchards you know my job i was a i was a 20 two-year-old kid with no experience who was tasked with historic orchard management. And I, I worked in these orchards and I followed the orders given to me by the park horticulturist. But I, I had a coworker whose uncle was the original owner of the fucking orchard that I worked in. And it was so sad because me as just this college kid coming into the park from fucking a thousand miles away, I knew nothing. But this guy whose uncle used to own the thing knew way more than anyone else. But he, all he had to do was mow the grass and nobody wanted to know anything else he had to say. You know, for some reason, in a weird, twisted kind of way, me as a kid with a college degree had more input than him as the lowly, you know, lawnmower, even though his family occupied that land a generation ago. It was, it's so crazy. You, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Oh, totally. You have any input yeah. Stella? I'm like, I'm like, I just I'm wanted like, you it, to have your thoughts. Yeah. Well, it, it like, it pisses me off. I'm like, it's so upside down, inside out, and backwards. 
Absolutely you know? it is. Yeah, it is. And it couldn't be any more, but then they come out with something new. It's incredible. Yeah, uh, look, I can completely relate. There's a couple of things I want to say there. One first is that what the bigger picture is that they are corralling us. That's what's sort of happening. It's over a very long period of time and it's sort of getting down to the pointy end now. They are corralling us. You know, they're taking over more and more of the big space and, you know, it's sort of like the urban sprawl but now in the opposite. <laughs> That's been inverted too, I suppose. I mean, not saying there's no urban sprawl. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying the sort of the philosophies, the principles, the really, really big picture, like if you step way back, it's sort of like, yeah, and then you get into all the finer details and et cetera, which is why they have to infiltrate the cabinets because to get to that agenda they have to have all the people down at ground level, you know, right down from the, the politicians right down to the the local mayors and the attorney generals and the lord mayors and everyone in between and to be complicit in making it happen by giving all the green lights doesn't matter how much, um, you know, protesting or heroes come along and have their say and try to chip away. It's like they're still, you know, I, it, sorry if it's really blackpilled, but it is the agenda and it's not like they're suddenly one day just going to drop everything that they've been doing for the last couple of centuries particularly, but even, you know, more centuries, and just go, oh, actually, you know, we're not going to do this anymore. So you just go well, you just go and live. <laughs> That's so, not going to happen. So. You- so. I, I I find this whole thing like actually white pill. I don't think this is black pill territory we're in because what what's fascinating is that to me, the grand realization here, borders are not are not solid lines. They're perforated lines. This this yeah, shit is not change. is they change. It's not set in stone. We, you know, ownership is that which you can defend. Mm-hmm. Like, which is another so, good reason so to take the guns away from us. This, this Bundy story, like we've still only gotten to the beginning of the story. I got to play it out. I got to play it out because this story is about people and land and, and, and claim. And like I started with, I think before you hopped in, uh, Stella talking about the Mormons, like they, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. they were nearly eradicated. Instead, they they went and found new territory and they claimed it. So this this Bundy Ranch, I you know the reason I started with Mormonism is because I'm pretty darn sure that these Bundys are Mormon. Not that it really matters, but. I, well, it does. It does because the Mormons are tough stock. As much as I make fun of them for some of their beliefs, I respect them. They're tough motherfuckers. The Mormons are a whole other show. But uh, if there was yeah. ever a movie to be made, Woody Harrelson should play the role of this guy. Would <laughs> <Did> you agree? <laughs> they, do, they do look a little similar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're really similar. He'd do a fantastic yeah. job. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Uh, the remaining minority, the producers, are choking from forceful regulation and live in fear of retaliation if they speak out. Those that do speak out against the federal agencies, like the Hammond, are targeted, demonized, their lands are taken, they are prosecuted and thrown in prison. What has happened to us, the Hammonds, and the people of Harnett County is a type and a shadow of what is happening to our entire country. We must stop federal agencies of the executive branch from taking over and controlling the producing class. 
federal agents have shown they are willing to destroy entire state and county economies and put the American people in prison to protect, increase, and justify their gain and control. It is rapidly coming down to federal agencies gaining control or the American working class. And these federal agencies of the executive branch have been building up heavy military forces to make sure their projects of ambition are not limited. Look at what they put us in jail for, conspiracy to impede a federal officer's duties. Or in other words, resisting them from doing what they want to do. Federal agencies have conspired for years in impeding the jobs and taking the income of the American working class, diminishing states, counties, and destroying more incomes and livelihoods than any other people in the history of this country. When someone finally stands up and says no more, when that person says to federal agencies, your duties are unlawfully destroying our livelihoods and destroying our states, our counties, our future, and our children's future, when this message becomes loud enough that people take notice, federal mercenaries hired by agencies of the executive branch move in, shoot and arrest the messengers, and drive fear into anyone that might stand up. Federal agencies of the executive branch are willing to kill and destroy families to protect their ambitions to get gain. Just ask the Finnicum family or the 26 Bundy children with their fathers locked up if I speak the truth. No moral principle, tradition, heritage, livelihood, or way of life, or life itself appears to be more important than their ambitions to get gain. Produce nothing, take everything. Modern day robbers. In my 40 years, I have seen a stomach full of my hardworking neighbors lose their homes, incomes, heritage, and freedoms at the hands of these wool-covered predators. Often I ask myself, what is to be done? What are we to do? How can we allow this to continue? Do people care about what is happening to our country? Seeing directly what federal agencies did to the Hammonds and to the citizens of Harney County, experiencing firsthand at the Bundy Ranch how federal agencies are willing to kill everyday American men and women to keep themselves in power. If the Lord did not protect so many people to come and show up at the Bundy Ranch, I am certain that federal agents would have taken our lives. Something had to be done. How could we pass these gross and growing deteriorations of rights and liberties over to our children? What would be left by the time they are raising their children? Feeling a providential urge, a love for my neighbors, and a great concern for my country, I used the public connect connections made during the Bundy Ranch to inform everyone I could about the abuses to the Hammond family and how adverse federal agencies have taken over and destroyed the economy in Harney County. Many, including myself, began to petition the county and state representatives to do their duty and protect the liberties and pursuit of happiness of the people in the county. All of this fell on deaf ears. The elected representatives did not even respond to one of our emails. We know they received thousands. We learned later that the FBI, an agency of the executive branch, contacted the sheriff, state and county representatives, and directed them not to respond to the people's petitions. This lack of response created an extreme environment of frustration with the people. No matter what the people did, even after filing an official notice of redress of grievance, the representatives would not respond. It is my belief that if the FBI would have stayed out of it, elected representatives would have responded and taken a lead. This would have ended the mass frustration and the people would have gotten behind their representatives with major support. 
satisfying any need for the people to act on their own. The entire protest at the Wildlife Refuge could have been avoided if the FBI would have stayed out of the way of our republic form of government. But then again, the FBI could not justify their jobs or have a reason to play with their war toys if the American system of government was allowed to work properly. This reminds me of a John F. Kennedy quote, those who make peaceful revolutions impossible make violent revolutions inevitable. The Hammond case was setting a very dangerous precedent in federal court. The abuse has been too great to turn a blind eye. The elected representatives were ignoring the people. What were we to do? Feeling inspired to do so on January 2nd, less than an hour before the rally in support of the Hammond, I proposed to a group of people, including a sheriff deputy, that we need to do more to bring attention to the abuses and to educate the American people of their rights. I shared how I felt and expressed that we should use adverse possession law to reverse the actions of these federal agencies and give the land that has been stolen back to the people of the county. This was legal, beneficial to the people, and would bring a lot of media exposure to these abuses. Drew missing in the house. What's happening, brother? Hey, guys. <laughs> I, I didn't realize you guys had started so early. I was blissfully sleeping my Sunday away, having no. a good time. Well, got a it's now I'm here. It's it's only Saturday. This is to be clear. This is not a WTF forum. This is just another episode of the Easy Peasy Podcast. Oh, beautiful! But but it's an epic episode. <laughs> It's it's a it's it's we're a gonna make one. it one. <laughs> yes, yeah. We're talking about land. We're, well, we're talking about land and food and guns and the fact cool. that ownership is only in the eye of the the beholder. And can, by can beholder, I... I mean it's you know ownership is what you can defend, and the government claims to own a whole heck of a lot which they don't, in practical terms, have the on, ability to defend. On the topic of food, then, can I throw a bit of a curveball yeah. at all of you and see what you sure. think? Because I've been been formulating this idea for a little while now. I think food has been weaponized since the advent of grain. When we look at the way the human skull and our features and our proportions were prior to whole-scale farming, particularly the introduction of grain and eating grain-based food, so like barley, hops, uh, creating bread, that type of thing. We had strong, robust bodies and a very strong, broad jaws. Ever since the advent of grains, our mouths have gotten smaller, our jaws are tiny. That's what half of the breathing issues of hypoxia while you're sleeping, um, snoring, yeah, teeth not growing in properly, that's all an advent right. of, of grain, right? We've right. turned ourselves, we've domesticated ourselves from a hunter-gatherer society potentially into what you would classify as like a modern-day pug. Our skulls are de grossly deformed to what they used to be. And that's only now. You can still tell we're the <laughs> same species. But what happens in another two to 300 years when we're further down the line of our modern-day diets screwing with the way we actually look and our way our bodies are built, will we yeah. have a super-deformed skull like a pug? Because at the moment we're probably the deviation from a wolf to a dog. Give it a few more gen, few more hundred generations. We're at the pug level. You know, you know, there was supposedly an orthodontist who got like 
ostracized, excommunicated, like license revoked, because he basically made the argument. The only reason kids need braces is because we feed them soft food. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And if they if they chew on hard, tough tissue, their teeth will grow in fine. Yeah, I was just thinking that reminded me of this new sort of trend that's around at the moment. Have you heard of mooing? Mewing? M-E-W-I-N-G? Mewing. Yes, exactly, Drew. So it's like there's this thing you could it's sort of basically like I suppose a hard rubber ballish type thing or a, a rubbery <laughs> spring. You got one? I'll go grab mine. I'll go grab it. <laughs> okay, yeah, cool. We'll get a demonstration. It's one he's prepared earlier. Um, so it's basically what it does, and if you can believe the uh, before and after photos, it re over a period of months, if you use it regularly, it's just like a you know working your face out basically as yes, going to a gym for your face, your jaw and your head. So it actually does build up certain muscles, etc. Which um, I guess yeah we've lost because of the chewy food and all the crap and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Not as much meat. Um, too much stuff, soft stuff available. Too much, too much macaroni and cheese. It's all. I mean, it's also yummy, but you know, <laughs> it's yeah, terrible yeah. stuff. So yeah, so exactly. Is it, um, is it just a thing you chew on, Drew? Is it just yeah? Like so, a... so this this isn't a shameless Joe Rogan plug by any means. There's heaps <laughs> yeah. of these things out there. The idea is you have different tension strengths in these, and yeah, and it's like okay. an exercise for it. your jaw to try and build it up, right? Yeah. Um, that combined with nasal breathing instead of mouth breathing supposedly has a lot to do it. There's a lot of mouth, <laughs> mouth breathers, breathers. today. <laughs> it's such a great description there. The knuckle dragons yeah. too. Uh, I try. Yeah. I try not to be a mouth mouth breather. Yeah. It's. Uh... <laughs> but you'd be surprised. No, what not a good. Very little small things will actually impact on the way your body develops and looks. Yeah. And yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. It's very true. Totally over a period of time. Yep. So, yeah, I had pug come to mind exactly with what you were saying before too. And I was sort of wondering, like you're saying, you know, it's it's about grains and things because, yeah, that's obviously changing our teeth and everything as well. And um, and partly partly maybe the crossbreeding, sort of like the intertribal, you know, inter as in, you know, uh, intercultural because we all, you know, we've all sort of, we weren't all cross, I don't think we were all sort of really crossbred that much in the ancient past and then we, as we've, you know, migrated and everyone's changed so there's that as well. It's changed the uh, yeah, human skull quite a lot. There's the whole idea of um, like when you cross, like designer breed dogs, right? You have like a, a poodle and a golden retriever and you, you mix those together. The same kind of thing. Walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> the same things happen with humans, but you always see in the media, they're always promoting um, mixed race couples. There's nothing wrong against with mixed race couples, but they try to promote that mixed race kids are healthier than the average per- person and they've got all these yeah. benefits. But when you look they, into the actual genetics of it, they're not better off. Right. There's a lot right? of um, issues with mixed race people. Well, in in the plant in the plant world, we call it hybrid vigor. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would, right. I, I would figure actually, usually, usually, genetic diversity for the offspring is a, is a good is a good thing. Maybe it has to be more fine tuned for it to be a good thing, hmm. not just random, you know. Because, I mean, that's what they're trying to do at the moment is sort of dilute the races and everything, maybe not for the physical side so much. Well, yeah, it is, I guess. But 
Well, we just went into territory, territory. Yeah, we've, we've mentioned it. Outside of my, my scope for the evening. This is WTF territory. We can talk I did about not it. mean to derail that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. But In other words, can, macaroni can... and cheese bad. A good chunky yeah. steak. Good. Chunky, yeah. chunky steak. Give your kid steak to chew on. Yeah. Yeah. Maze Some gristle. Not be quite so amazing after all. Yeah. But um, no, I mean, it's all relative, whatever. Uh, it, or it's all relevant is what I mean to say. Um, you know, just FYI, we are still doing a WTF form tomorrow. So be there or be square. But uh, let me let me play some more of this interview. They're all round pegs anyway. They square holes. Um, yeah, yeah, the only yeah. the only other thing I was going to say was you know that Go like ahead. this fella this fella and the farmers and everything. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it did. It, I can see why it brought a tear to your eye because it brought a tear to mine. That's for sure. Seeing all these people band together with you know United and actually having a well a victory in maybe air quotes soft air quotes. Um, but that sort of stuff was like kind of po- okay. Let's look at two things here. One thing is it, it was kind of possible in those kind of areas and everything to do that kind of thing. What what I'm saying is the opposite is like doing it in a city, for instance. They've got the technology now, which is really against us. It's not so much a hand-to-hand battle thing anymore. They can they can disperse a crowd from a distance. So that's put a really new, like with all the, you know, D-E-W technology um, that can be, you know, the acoustic stuff, et cetera. So I just wonder how much banding together like this is, is this like a almost extinct thing or just you know the more remote areas um yes. there's that and the other thing is that they're all kind of rural kind of people and they're much they're a totally different heart different kind of people than mm. you would never probably see this I'm not saying you would never see it in the city because we just saw it in the city but different kind of you know what I mean? Different kind of people. Like, so I guess it's sort of the same heart, but it's almost like a duty there. Whereas a city, it's sort of like a choice to turn up. You know what I mean? Like, well, is that the idea then? Because like you look at cities, they're highly um, built up and have the infrastructure there ready to go to disperse mobs and crowds. The lights they use in streets can be turned on at a frequency to to push people out of areas. But there's a big push now into the agricultural sector to update and innovate and use drones to map your crops out and use AI yeah. on a combine harvester to do all that. So are, we, are they unintentionally or intentionally getting farmers to set up the network so that if they do try to push back, it can all be turned off by a switch or at least um, turned against them? They, they, want, they want the whole idea of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, they they want to map and itemize everything in the biosphere. Mm-hmm. They want they want a digital representation of every single living thing, and it's it's a frightening notion. Once again, though, this is kind of more WTF forum territory. We're we're just talking about land and food and guns for for now. So. Let me take it back. I'm going to take it back to, to, you know, I, I, I'm just, once again, it's going to be a really long episode. It already is three I'm just letting it happen. Epic episode, but I want to, I want to let this whole story come out because the, uh, the feds went hot in this situation with the Bundy's. It's, it's kind of like the Ruby Ridge and the Waco that nobody wants to talk about because it happened pretty recently 
but people did get shot and like the the true story is super um obscured people do not know the story even though it just happened like i don't know 10 years ago if that Ruby reach no the bundies oh the bundies right okay yep yeah I'm saying it's it's right alongside Ruby Ridge yeah, and Waco. Look it up. People yeah, died. It is. It's very people simple. died. Yeah. The feds the feds killed people, but nobody wants to talk about it. Uh, here we go. Where are we? With a majority in agreement, we took residents of a federally controlled wildlife refuge 30 miles outside of town. To create this refuge, over a hundred ranching families lost their ranches, homes their lands to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, another agency of the executive branch. As U.S. adverse possession law requires, we changed the name of the refuge to the Harney County Resource Center, changed the signs, including the vehicles and equipment, contacted the utility companies, flew the American flag high, opened the post office address, and created a land registry to adjudicate the parcels back to the people of Harney County. Oh, and meanwhile, we attracted international media attention. I had no idea what adverse possession was. At times, it was quite comical watching the controlled mainstream media who had free access to roam the facilities, talking to us openly through each day, and then reporting how we were somehow dangerous armed militants. We shook our heads over this many times. In just a couple of weeks, we attracted over a 1,000 visitors, men, women, and children, even elementary students came to the center to do homework reports on the events. The local people began supplying all our food, supporting us financially, and took care of us well. They also shared their horror stories of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, the BLM, and the Forest Service actions over the past several decades. Out of our many visitors, hundreds attended our seminars on property rights, including state representatives from five different western states. These people were taking the message back to their hometown and organizing community meetings for us to attend. Meanwhile, the FBI, need I remind you, an agency of the executive branch, took over the high school, county buildings, and downtown Burns, and the airport, terrorizing the local people, trying to scare them into believing that their force was necessary to protect them against us. As time went on, the local people started to see through this. The FBI knew they had to act quickly to end our education on what federal agencies of the executive branch have been doing to the American people. Emails from government officials read, the virus is spreading, indicating that our message was too effective and must be stopped. January 26, on the way to a community meeting in Grant County, Oregon, the FBI and Oregon State Police ambushed us and opened fire without cause shooting my brother Ryan and killing our friend and fellow Arizona rancher, Lavoie Finicum. They shot him multiple times in the back with his hands in the air. The FBI tried to cover up their participation by denying that they shot and hiding the bullet casings. If we would not have filmed the attack, they would have got away with it. Never did we hold a gun or show any type of threat to them. We were carrying laptops, projectors, and a PA system, planning on having another effective meeting with the people of Grant County, including the sheriff. We were invited to meetings like this every day that week. Our schedule was filling up. Okay, so am I... Yeah. 
yeah. So they they legit just shot one of these guys with his the hands feds, up. He literally had his hands up, and nobody nobody knows about this. And it's it's kind of ironic. First of all, it's it's ironic. Uh, happy January sixth. Oh yeah, it is. It's ironic. It's it was ironic. I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking to two <laughs> Aussies who happen to be living in January 7th, but here where I'm at, it's still January 6th. So, you know, Just I, a made I up say, concept. yeah, which is, it's, it's to me like happy PSYOP day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's PSYOP day every day, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, but January 6th to me yeah. is PSYOP. Don't day. forget to put your Rockefeller statues out. <laughs> so you know everybody yeah well and you know hey everybody knows the name of george floyd nobody knows the name of this poor sap yeah who died who died face down in the snow in oregon wow the, the yeah. feds just murked him just straight up murked him they did that was a setup i did notice though he had his hands up and then he put his one hand down so Devil's advocate, I can see the justification because they could argue that he was reaching for something which he didn't actually have. But this kind of comes back to the whole point of government overreach and how much the government seems to have control. And this is the this is the dark thing that people really don't want to recognise or admit that your rights all come down to the use of physical force and violence. This is how government maintains order and has control. If you deviate from the system or the status quo like these people have got, They'll execute the use of violence against you. Now, I I missed the start of this, sorry, Mike, but were these people in this place that they set up, were they armed as well? Hell yeah. Well, there we go. And if they were, un <laughs> if they were unarmed, if they were unarmed and tried to do that, they would have been dealt with very quickly, wouldn't they? It wouldn't well, have lasted. So this is, I, you know, like I almost think this story is worthy of like a 10-part series you know like this this Netflix oregon thing it, well yeah nobody's as far as i know nobody's covered it in depth i should look um but there's a whole lot to this to the to the clive and bundy family um and this oregon situation was kind of like the uh the crescendo and people are in jail still if i'm not mistaken well, let me... this, this goes to the illusion of the idea of rights. You can you can mm -hmm. own your property, you can pay the mortgage off, you can have the title, but if you don't pay land taxes or rates, whatever you've got in your area, the this, potential yes. is can be taken back from you, right? So yes. it's a situation where we have these imaginary rights, and I've even seen cases from the United States where the banks have taken repossessed property from people that they didn't actually have the, the, the mortgage with and it's been proven in court, but the banks mm -hmm. still won. They repossessed property they never even had a claim on. Probably because the poor sap who got their property taken couldn't afford a decent lawyer. You know, like... Well, this is the thing. Comes, banks, that's, exactly. what comes, that's what it comes banks down to. Banks can, will not tell you if there's a lien on a property. If you've bought a property that's in debt to a bank and you've bought it from the bank at a set price, they can still have an imaginary lien or a, a 
previous debt held over that property they won't tell you about so they legally still own your property unless you're you know you're willing to challenge it in court or pay it off yeah they've got you to buy the balls because they that's the way the system has been created just to give us just enough just enough to want to stay alive and do our thing but not get too far without compromise <laughs> Generally. It's like that leash where they hit the button and reels you back in. We can't go too far. Yeah, but exactly. We're not yet at the stage where we're muzzled. That was three years ago. That was sort of like a now. Remember, okay, <laughs> we're here, we're back. You know, it was sort of like a we're back sort of thing. Like we've got our technology together now. We've had our little meetings. We're all funded up. Get ready for the show. You know, that's sort of what twenty twenty was. It was hilarious. Actually, there was all these, you know, woo woo fortune tellers going oh it's gonna be too it's gonna be a lovely year of clarity it's like yep bloody oath <laughs> that's for sure everything came clear like a army boot on the face well i'm gonna carry this on and um can i just ask you a quick question mike isn't this ahead. the intended purpose behind militias in america like a well-regulated militia would be able to put a stop to those feds well, that's the way I okay. read your constitution. Brother, brother. Yeah. This this was the closest thing we had to a well-regulated militia. A little bit of media spin and and a couple of quick murders, assassinations, and they put a stop to it. Like they let me let me the bud, don't they? They so, really get so, onto okay. it real fast. Back backstory because i know i like i haven't really explained it but um essentially a dispute between a federal agency and a rancher led to an armed standoff in nevada uh arizona apologies right this was the bundy ranch standoff bunch of people came out and there were people with fucking sniper rifles pointed both directions it could have gotten nasty but but the feds backed off and it was all about unpaid grazing fees and this this thing kind of like they it built up and then it blew over but then these same guys went up to oregon to back up some ranchers they knew up there who were getting pushed off their lands because they, you know, same thing, unpaid like grazing fees. And it was, it was the kind of thing like you're talking about. It's like, you can own your cows, you can own your ranch, but you still owe the government and they didn't pay. And so, and so a militia went up there and occupied a wildlife preserve that was adjacent to this, this area. And basically kicked out the feds for a time, for a time. But the feds don't tolerate this shit. And the media doesn't, doesn't give you the whole fucking story. Ever. Isn't you know? it ironic, though, the feds do tolerate it when it happens in a inner city like Chaz? Remember when they did that? Well, the self-autonomous that's, zone? That's, that's okay. what... Bro, bro, I saw <laughs> he I, just brought it I, all I, the way back to the beginning. <laughs> well done. I was I was talking about Chaz <laughs> earlier and my intention was to end there. So yeah, let me let me play some more. We'll we'll end up there. 
With millions of dollars, thousands of federal agents, control of the main media, federal agencies were still not able to suppress the truth. So they resolved to use force, much like a big bully, who is not intelligent enough to convince people to follow him. So he just beats them up if they don't. Our message is one of freedom and choice. Their message is of coercion and force. With my brother Ryan and I arrested and others, the FBI went on a massive witch hunt, arresting people from all over the United States. Many had nothing to do with Oregon, but were in support in 2014. I suppose they thought this was their chance to completely destroy any opposition to their ambitious agenda. My father, a 70-year-old man, was met with 30 or so FBI operators in the airport. He was on his way to visit my brother and I. My brother Dave, they tactically converged on him while he was unloading lumber for the house he is building. Over 40 agents with assault rifles and full tactical gear in the little town of Delta, Utah, shooting flashbangs at him, one of the most reserved, kindest men I know. My brother Mel was in Arizona when they converged on him. Now with the men of the Bundy family locked away in prison cells, charged with pretend offenses, the Bundy women are left to tend for our children and our livelihoods, including the ranch. Meanwhile, federal agencies of the executive branch are making plans once again to take our homes, the ranch, remove the cattle, sell them for their profit, destroy the water infrastructure, and take all our assets of value. This would force my mother, our wives, and children out of our homes with nothing to our names. Meanwhile, we the providers and protectors are locked away, facing vindictive charges that if convicted could put us in prison for the rest of our lives. We never once hurt anybody, threatened anybody, or used force in any way. We simply stood for our rights and the rights of our neighbors. Adding salt to our wounds, the extreme environmental group that called themselves the Center for Biological Diversity that has worked hand-in-hand hand for several years with the BLM, Forest Service, and other federal agencies had the audacity to go to my mother at the ranch and offer to buy our century-old family grazing rights for next to nothing. They indicated that they would offer us some money before they took them from us. My mother kindly asked them to leave. They have followed up by phone and continued to harass her. At the beginning of this, I asked you to judge us, to form an informed conclusion in your mind if we were justified to stand for our rights. Time will only allow me to express a hundredth part of what has happened to us. However, before making that judgment, consider a couple more points. Okay, I'll pause for a moment. Well, it'll probably be more than a moment. There's still like eight minutes <laughs> of this video. But again, this is not a WTF form. This is my show, so I get to say what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we are you know, here to something, something, <laughs> something that, that was said there. So Amon Bundy mentions how the radical environmentalists are part of the problem when it comes to like the ranching versus fed debate and yeah no i see it now like it's like mm -hmm. it's like even though he's my favorite author 
know, you were here, Stella, you weren't Drew, but we were talking about Edward Abbey. And uh, he he was an anarchist who inspired a big part of the radical environmentalist movement. Y'all have probably heard of like Greenpeace. Oh, yes. Right? And <laughs> Earth. How about how about Earth First? Yes. So Earth First specifically was directly inspired by Edward Abbey. He, he wrote a book called The Monkey Wrench Gang. And The Monkey Wrench Gang was about a group of four people who met on a whitewater rafting trip. And they were all pissed off about the destruction of nature. And they decided to fuck with industry. As a result, they, they took direct action. They started fucking with bulldozers and you know lighten shit on fire and the whole point of the book was they wanted to blow up the glen canyon dam and the glen canyon dam is what created lake powell in southwest utah and lake powell is um receding by the minute it's it's not only receding but it's filling up with silt so one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth, Glen Canyon, was was buried with you know with water, and this was the thing that pissed off Edward Abbey more than anything. And he he wrote these books and he inspired all these young environmentalists who turned into Greenpeace and earth first and it's almost like over the last 50 years or 30 or whatever they've lost the message like he was an anarchist he did not want to inspire a bunch of goddamn communists you know they turned into the people that occupied Chaz, the people with signs that say you know black trans lives matter which I've seen. Anyways, I'm ranting. I'm on a rant. Yeah, no, we're listening. What's Chaz the acronym for? Is it an acronym? Yeah, it was uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. So the video we watched earlier right. that I'll that chop. I'll come back to. Is it? Chop, chop, right. chop is uh, Capitol Hill. What was it? Organized protest or something? Right, okay. something like that. It was it was it was like a less aggressive name, but it's mm -hmm. the same thing. Like it's... I think it started it started as Chop and it turned into Chaz. This is the weaponization of the like the movement around protecting the environment because I think it's actually a very important thing, and you don't want the environment to be destroyed wholesale by crony capitalism or by the government or the totally, corporations. Totally. That was yeah. a very perfectly noble thing to do. But you can see the infection of extreme socialist and communist thinking in this because it ultimately becomes an anti-humanist agenda. It's destroying every aspect of humanity so that the plague that is the human being cannot possibly interact with nature at all. And that seems to be the agenda of it all. It's not the um, human's impact on nature. It's humans themselves, just generally speaking. 
Well, um, unless there's anything, let me play on. Right in front of us, 
Our century-old water infrastructure was being destroyed by federal backhoes. We were body slammed to the asphalt, tased, gang beaten, detained, and interrogated, and had dogs sicked on us. Our children multiple times had the red dots of hired snipers on their little bodies. The Hammond family and thousands of others across the Western state have had their land stolen, water rights taken, and experienced a full list of similar abuses by these federal agencies of the executive branch. Agents of the executive branch claim to have legal, unlimited authority to abuse the people and control the land and resources. We, the people, are in danger. The Constitution prohibits their actions. Everything that is American is against it. The United States is not a communist form of government where the government owns and controls everything. This is against our founding principles and our founders made it against our laws. The only way they have gotten away with it is because the Department of Justice, an agency of the executive branch. Yes, the Department of Justice is another agency of the executive branch, not the judicial branch. The largest legal team ever known to man, with over 7,000 U.S. attorneys, with unlimited budgets, assistance, support, and resources, all paid for by the American people. They have deceitfully and forcefully, through the courts, shoved down the throats of the American people that agencies of the executive branch have no limits and that the Constitution does not apply to them. They have destroyed federalism and infiltrated our checks and balances, all in an effort to centralize power, to funnel it into one body so they can control it for their own gain. The only state for power, especially the land and the resources, is to distribute it into millions of people's hands all across this great country, from sea to shining sea, allowing each person to live in liberty while enjoying the benefits of the increase of the earth through the law of the harvest. Land and resources equals power. It is what all ancient and modern conquerors desire. The land and resources must not fall into the hands of a small group of people. It must not be centralized or nationalized. Our food, water, homes, clothing, transportation, our communication, everything that sustains us and everything that we find physical comfort from hangs at risk if the heads of these federal agencies obtain their ultimate objective. Control the food, water, air, lumber, iron, and other resources. Control the use of the earth, and you have obtained ultimate power over the people. Never was this just about some cattle running in the desert or just about some poor rancher trying to hold on to his way of life. This is about God and country, about standing so the bad does not overcome the good. This is about each individual, about you, your children, and your grandchildren. This is about food on your table, about having a home to put a table in. This is about agency to choose, about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for many generations to come. This is about freedom, or maybe, just maybe, the horrible pains of being kept from our families for this long has driven us insane. You be the judge. I know the Lord has protected us and kept us from falling into despair. I know he loves us. And in time, I am certain that he will allow us to go home and have that so desired reunion with our little family and all the others we love so very much. Thank you for listening. Okay. Um, 
Wow. Yeah. This I'm officially calling this the first ever easy peasy epic. This is the easy peasy <laughs> epic because I think we might actually hit like four hours before we're done because I've got a little more yet still. But what do y'all what do y'all feel? I got two Aussies. You know, what's the Aussie perspective here? Come on. Well, looking at this, it makes King George look like he's actually a good thing in comparison. No fucking shit, right? Like <laughs> people people here have no idea that we're living in tyranny. What what would you rather have? The current United I know. States or, a, or like a one percent T tax? Say again. That's that's what would you rather have? Would you rather have the current state of the American government or a, a one or ten percent T tax or whatever you had a Holy revolution? Hell. Yeah, over? yeah. No, I would I would yeah, I'll take the T tax. This I'll is the thing the... that baffles me. You've come from a nation that's oh built God. on something like that to where you oh. are now. You've got less freedoms than you fought for. Seriously. And no one seems to stand up for it. I'm gonna be very yeah. very, very careful on the way I word this because I don't want to be charged for incitement on the other side of the planet. Um <laughs> That, by the looks of it, despite being armed, their process was respectful, um, well thought out, non-violent. They just stood up for their rights and their inalienable rights they knew through the Constitution. But that was too much for the government, so the government used violence. At what point does this continually happen to the point where, now this is just objectively speaking, of course, when does it get to the point when the people do have to use violence? It's already been a precedence in your revolution, so when does yeah. that happen again? I've said this once and I'll say it a thousand more times. I think the only way America survives in its current form is to balkanize. The union's mm-hmm. going to be dismantled and there'll be mm-hmm. small nation states that band together based on values, yep. um, historical reverence for what the constitution was to save it. Because you look at America, it's not America as it was intended to be. I, I totally agree. Um, and people are talking about it, man. We're talking about nat- national divorce is what people are framing it as. As well, opposed Texas to, had, doesn't Texas opposed have to, the out? Yeah. When Texas joined the union, they had it written in that they could leave at any point should yes. they want to. If that well, happens, and all bets Texas, are off. I think other states follow. Texas and um, I believe New Hampshire, they they have it in their constitutions that they're. Um, very mm. it's very easy for them to bail yeah so the question is why don't they is that because they've got people who are in those positions that could make those decisions owned now infiltrated i mean it's sort of saying I mean, before yeah. unfortunately it's not a black pill because it's reality isn't it so i keep saying it's clear pilled people just don't want to hear it so they call it black well, pilled but actually, the fact actually is it's all infiltrated it it could happen uh, yeah i'm convinced it could happen pretty quick I think they want it to happen because why yeah. would we see these films like um, Civil War coming out this year? Leave the world right. behind. Leave the world. Right. All this hype about destabilization. It's like they're presenting you with the problem so they can give you the solution afterwards. Well, if if you want to talk about destabilization, let me just, you know, before you <laughs> hopped in, we were covering Seattle a little bit. And uh, Seattle is a goddamn wasteland. Stella, you got something to say before I hit play or should I go? I just wanted to say, isn't it funny, the irony? I mean, everything's so ironic with these people, creatures. Um, You know, they're talking about the Amish being domestic terrorists. 
and inciting things that are going to be right. so scary, right. like, you know, jars of honey. And then you've got the Obama's production company who said, oh, yeah, no, no, no worries. That's fine. You, you can use the propaganda on our people now in 2000 and whenever it was, 11, 14, whatever it was, who owns a production company who now has just brought out a movie on Netflix who is run by, yeah, the psychology, you know, relation of two um, bloody Edward Bernays, propaganda king, etc., 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 etc. Netflix is just a propaganda tool. That's all it is, and it's just like they are inciting violence. They are the domestic terrorists. I mean, it's just, and yet they're going, "Oh no, it's you people." Yeah. <laughs> well, my, I know, just just was, the irony. Just, sorry, yeah. Stella. My ultimate no, thought right. was Yellowstone, the series Yellowstone. That to me almost now appears like a sigh up from the government to try and embolden people to react violently because that whole show is about people standing up for their rights on their ranch and protecting their family history. Yeah, right. Okay, is there that, you go. Is that just a way of kind of poking the bear to get people to do the stuff that exactly. they uh, come down hard on? Yeah, for sure. For sure. It just gives people the confidence to go, oh, well, you know, it, yeah, because, I mean, movies are very emotive and that's how para, um, propaganda works. It's, it gets to the emotions, it gets to the heartstrings, which gets past all the logic. You know, it's usually heart first, then the head. So, and they know that that's why propaganda works. So, it's, um, yeah, that's why Hollywood is so perfect. What a perfect tool. It's movies. It's just, oh, it's just a movie, not realizing that, oh, no, it's just programming. You know. Well, if I, if I may, um, I, you know, as someone who grew up in the suburbs and was pretty well sheltered and like lived a very, I don't know, like comfortable, like Disney, you white know, picket fence type of deal. White white picket fence, apple pie, apple pie and shit. Rock in the yeah, suburbs, like, Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but now, but now, being that I chose to go a certain way and 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 try to start a business and therefore rent a shop in a not so great part of town because it was cheap, you know, it's like. I grew up very comfortable and now, and you know, this ain't my first rodeo neither. I've been here for a few years. Um, but like I have intentionally exposed myself to, to the, the truth of the matter to like the hard, you know, hard knock life of America. And like, so now like I grew up in the, in the suburbs, but I live in the city and I see it. And like, I, I, sometimes I walk my dog and I see fucking fentanyl, uh, you know, I, I, I can't assume, but like needles, either heroin or fentanyl, <laughs> probably, probably both. But like, I walk out my, my door and there's needles on the, on the street. And like, I told, I told y'all in, in the telegram, my truck got broke into and mm. I had a bunch of tools stolen and like, mm. and, and when I walk around, like I know where, where not to walk. Right. Like I take my dog for a walk through the city and I know which parts of the bike path to just not go. Cause there's like a tent city and there's 20 or 30 fucking junkies who've been living there for years, you know, like, and I bring it up to say like the people who live in the suburbs and absorb the Netflix, they have no idea that like this dystopia 
in the movie that they're watching already fucking exists. <laughs> it's 20 minutes down exactly. the road. It's yeah. literally, yes, it's fucking 30 minutes away at best. If that. If yeah. that. Oh, yeah. I'm let me. Not, yeah. Let me. It's just me crazy. It's, I say this quite often. It's like there Go are, th ahead. you know, that's a lot of the things that they're trying to tell us that are coming and that are, you know, in the future and just are almost upon us. We're already in the midst of it and have been for quite a number of years. And we just. It's, it's not even it's, new. It's all, it's all just the psychology of it, isn't it? I mean, well, that's the mission that. creep, Stella. The mission creep is they do it while you're living through it so you don't notice it. It's a boiling frog analogy. Exactly. They yeah. keep pushing the fear of the ultimate apocalypse, the ultimate collapse. Oh, it's coming any moment. It's coming any moment. And you don't realize you're currently going through it. Yeah, that's Bingo. exactly right. And I just Bingo. I just uh, Googled yeah. just for fun in Yandex. Um, I Yandexed. <laughs> um, how, how to control people just for fun. See what came up. Um, and the first thing it says, you know, bodylanguagematters.com. Fear. Says you can, fear. Well, I'll just, yeah, I'll just read it. You can, con I mean, obviously fear, that's, you know, that's what basically everything stems to fear or, or love. But what they say is you can control someone's mind by molding their perception. This is what I keep saying, perception, perception, this word. Um, you can do this by controlling the information they receive and how they interpret that information. For example, you can control what they see, hear and read. You can also influence their emotions and thoughts. Hollywood. Uh, by doing this, you can make them believe anything you want. And that's exactly what it is. They don't even really have to do a lot of the hard work anymore because they've got it so well-tuned and figured out that it's just all about sort of, you know, the, the quiet wars, as they call them. Silent weapons for quiet wars. So um, propaganda is their ultimate. I mean, it is really right up the top there. It's probably number one of their weapons, you know, above bombs and all the technology because it's just so effective. So People don't even have to leave their living room or their lounge their living room. <laughs> that's a funny irony too, isn't it? Their lounge room, say. <laughs> yeah, um, well, living room. That's what we call it in the States, living room. Well, yeah. should we be calling it that? We should be calling yeah. it the programming room. Well, you know? can I programming. Yeah, that's where the TV tends to live is the yes, living room. Exactly. The, the television lives there. The killing you, field, you, they should call you it. You die there. Yeah. Stella, yeah. I've got I've got to throw the etymology of perception at you though. And it makes so much more sense. When you're steering public perception, if you go back to the Latin roots of the word, it means to take entirely. What word is that? Perception. So, perception. So the etymology of that perceive, to take right. entirely, to obtain, gather, or seize entirely. Yeah, there you go. And it's I keep saying the mind is in the minds of people entirely. Exactly. That's all they need. Government, mind control. You know, that's just that's the last frontier. It's the final frontier. It's not sea. It's not space. It's the mind. It's the space between the ears. Well, um, some folks don't have the luxury of Netflix. And uh, yeah, here we go. See any parallels to what we discussed in shop and this? Yeah, once again, I see it as a genocide. I see it as people of a different ethnicity, of a different skin tone than the European descent that is the, the majority and dominant race. And for the last six weeks, they've been launching a genocide against completely innocent women and children. The average age of the fatalities in God's is five years old. And all I'm saying is Israel it has a right to exist. Imagine if you're an American. And we had people from another country come over and rape, murder, and torture 1,200 people here. Palestinians were offered a country. Okay. Three times offered, three times not accepted. Okay. 
I'm just saying educate yourself about the real history. So Men, grandmothers. Yeah. What I'm saying is if you're trying to negotiate with an organization that believes in your total annihilation, how do you negotiate with them? Any points of education someone watching might be able to learn from? Uh, don't trust the police. Okay. I mean, it's swear to God. Narcan out here! We have an ambulance on route. Yeah, he's back. Oh, he's out. Probably broke his nose, it looks like. Actually, quite quickly, to give Seattle PD some credit here, that was a three-minute, 53-second response. EMT's on site. It's drug-related, and he doesn't want medical attention. Why is that? That's what he doesn't want. Is he sure. of the mental capacity, given his current state, to even make that like uh, assertion? The only time that we would do anything against his will is if he meets certain criteria by the state for an emergent detention, Got which it. is danger to self, danger to others, um, unable to care for self. What would it strike you as from your experience? Uh, we're seeing a resurgence in meth again. Meth? So. Well, it looks like he decided to get some help. I'm glad because he was refusing at first. Will a guy like that end up back in that same van? Some folks that I've run into that are be on their second or third or OD for the day, which at that point we start looking at emergent detention criteria. All right, thanks for your time. See ya. It's not safe for anybody. Because of the darkness of the night that was quickly approaching, we said goodbye to Mark and met back up with Jonathan here because apparently this block transforms into a hot spot for open air drug use and crime. We've made it to Third and Pike, the infamous intersection here. We're about to see the worst of the worst, if anything is out here tonight. Last night, Jonathan said it was zombie land. Jonathan, where are we at right now? This is the gateway for tourists here in downtown Seattle. Um, at the same time, it is a notorious epicenter for open air drug use. If we go in there and, and with iPhones, you're, there's going to be a reaction. Okay, it, I mean, it's not going to be a good reaction. So, have you ever had any violent encounters over here? Yeah, man. This is where I've been chased by a guy wielding a knife. A guy, you know, swung a baseball bat at me. And this is a very common path. I run down the street all the time. Ventricles everywhere. Yep, yep. There are people not out, passed out. What do we have for sale today? 60 bucks. 60 bucks for the whole set? That's a DJ set, man. You boost? No boost. No boost? It's all boosted, man. You know what it is. Stop okay. What are you up to right now? We're not selling nothing. All right. Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's a fentanyl crisis globally, right? Hundred. Well, United States. So we're out here just giving out free fentanyl. Really? It's a nonprofit yeah, organization. This is cap. Right no here, cap. Here. You guys are stoned right now. Wait. Whoa. Oh, well, so you guys actually are giving out. And yeah. cool. You want one? So. Yeah. You guys are giving free fentanyl? Yeah. You want one? This want, is real. Who wants free fentanyl? Line up. Can't make this stuff up. I mean, he has a bag of. This is no joke, guys. There there are legit like quote unquote nonprofit organizations giving out free fentanyl. You know, I, I found it when we did our um little expose on the people living underneath like Las Vegas and a whole bunch of other cities like what some folks call mole people there, there are homeless people living in the tunnels and, and there are homeless people everywhere and they're, and they're doing fentanyl. But when I was doing the expose, when I was doing the research on like the tunnel people, I found this, this nonprofit that was apparently giving out blunts. And I'm like, how weird is that? And, it would make some sense for like a nonprofit to be giving out what they call um, safer use equipment. So like 
clean needles and that's happening all over. But here we've got people saying they're a nonprofit and they're giving out the drug fucking they're giving out free fucking fentanyl. This is organized demolition. They want to destroy people. That's just one of the charges I've set on one of the pillars of the U.S. system. Combine that, like they're drugging the population, getting people addicted to something, while bringing in God knows countless how many migrants that are getting afforded rights that the American people barely had, like free healthcare now, and they're getting access to firearms. Where do they think this is going to head? What does the normie possibly think how this is a good thing? Oh yeah, it's just handing out drugs. It's just handing out safe needles. It's own. It's it's for the health and the well being of the people. <laughs> no, no, no. That is deliberate, and it's there for a reason. And it's a microcosm of something far bigger. Let me let me keep keep it going here. It's it it's hard to believe. I don't know about this. You're gonna kill someone. Guys, no. Get in line. Get in line. Oh, go tell everybody to get in line. Why are you giving this guy overdose someone? Because this is how you clean up the streets. You oh. give it away for free. Yes, You're giving away free fentanyl for what reason? Yes. Wow. And, okay. and the government will pay for it all. At certified introverts. Good. There you go. Well, what's in the blue? Wait, what is the objective here? It was complete chaos out here, and I had no clue what was going on. Are you selling any of this stuff, too? Was it boosted? Uh, I don't know. I got it from some people, so somebody could boost it. You can easily jump on one of these King County Metro buses and then go to Target, boost, and come right back and set up shop. This is an easy transportation corridor. Are you thinking anything about fentanyl? Yeah, we are. I think it's a pandemic for sure. I think it's done on purpose. I know I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but... China's can... trying to destabilize the United States? I don't know, but what I do believe is if we can fight a war, why can't we fight fentanyl? all that's crazy it's being done on purpose i've had two people die on me friends and i've saved one person's life right there in that alley so after talking to this lady my spidey senses went off so we decided to book it right as this guy began to follow us yeah following us right now just trust me on this one okay if i say we're good we're good i know this dude man i've seen him a long time where you been man hey hey jonathan Right, 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 right next to the McDonald's. Question for you, ma'am. Uh, how is it working security out here on this particular stretch? What's up? Why do you chuckle, miss? Because it's very bad here. It's bad, right? How do you have the cojones to do this on a daily basis? You're ballsy. I just want them to leave our city. That's all. Yeah. That location. That was Starbucks. Got it. Okay. They're now closed. You've got the Amazon Go store closed because you can't do business in the downtown core when there's so much crime sure. and open air drug use. Mental illness, man. The guy's just talking to himself. Pooping. He's taking a piss. Wait, you're taking a poop? You're taking a pee? Sure. Wait, you're about to take it down? He's going to take a piss. He almost had his pants down, man. Then he saw us. We yeah. back up. Let's just keep going. Let's make haste. That guy's going to make a bad look. All right. So I just want to say, like, I actually have a whole lot of respect for this YouTuber. Um, I've watched we've used some of his clips in the past. He uh, his name is Tyler. Oliveria, Oliveria, something like that. Um, but he he does good work. Very like on the ground journalism. 
And honestly, it's it's like I, I said it in the Telegram chat. I said, hashtag dystopia now. I don't know if y'all are fans of the movie Apocalypse Now. But, I mean, it's like, yo, wake up. Any thoughts? I'm honestly surprised the breaking point hasn't come for a lot of cities in the United States to the point where they have to usher in martial law. But it seems like they're going the complete opposite. They're reducing the number of police. They're flat out banning police in some cities, which is having detrimental effects. And you can't say there's any positive choice or reasoning behind that. It defies logic. How can you have people openly shooting up in the streets, ODing, handing out free drugs to people and think that's okay? It's destroying the economic zones of cities. This is Vancouver. I, I'm lost for words as to how bad it's gotten in some cities in America, which is in complete contrast to when it was when I was in the States where some cities I went to, they were overly populated with police. Like you couldn't walk a city block without seeing like five or six cops on a corner. And to say it's degenerated since I was 21 is it's unreal. It's happened in real time. Well, I, I'm going to carry on. This is brutal. It's brutal. I'm going to share one more clip about dystopia now. And then I'm going to share uh, Edward Abbey giving a speech. And I might wrap up on that. You know, it's like, once again, there's there's too much material here. In a bad way. But, like, it's, I you know, people need to know what the fuck is going on. This is Vancouver, Canada, a city that made every drug legal, drug addiction, overdoses, homelessness, and crime. Damn. Keep driving, drive, drive, drive. All drugs are good and balanced. God made all drugs. <laughs> a few side effects of decriminalizing every drug since January 2023. The city's goal was to make using drugs safer by making them legal. But many Canadians think it's done the exact opposite. So I went to downtown Vancouver with my friend Kevin, social worker and drug addiction specialist, to see the impact decriminalizing drugs has had on the city. Of course, smoking fentanyl, smoking crack out well, here. Yeah, Just straight fentanyl, straight meth, straight crack. Everywhere. It's definitely the most concentrated group of people of any city you and I have ever visited. Yeah, we've only done one block. We're not here for five minutes. It's just complete chaos. There's offices right here. Can you imagine working here full time? Considering the new laws here, I wanted to hear what kind of drugs the people here were using and how easy it was to get their hands on them. Are you on Trank right now? Is that why you're nodding out? I don't know. I might be. More drugs the better. Okay. How easy would it be for us to get like fentanyl right now? After yeah, about Next person? Yeah. How long have you been out here, sir? I've been here about four years. Four years? What was that? All of the above. All drugs are good and balanced. All of the above. Okay. God made all drugs. How many people do you think are just on this street right here? Probably between 100 people. 100 people? Well, I appreciate you guys' time. I'm going to move out of the way just a little bit. Um, hey, you think I inhaled fat meth just now? Uh, that's what it smelled like. I low-key think I inhaled some. <laughs> Okay, this actually wasn't the video I meant to share. Um, but like he's got videos from basically every city, and it's really, I mean, it's just shocking. Like, 
like I said, dystopia now, man. Like I see it, I see it in my city. Once again, like I don't live in the best neighborhood. It's not the worst neighborhood, but it's not the best neighborhood. And um, I don't know. Again, it, like it, it's one of these things where it's almost like gaslighting when you live it and you see it, but like most people don't. No, they don't. Is fentanyl the stuff that is so toxic that if if you even just like touch a grain of it or something, it has an effect? Is that that stuff? I think that I think that's a bit of like maybe an exaggeration. Over the cup? Um, okay, but but it well, it's it's like a hundred times more powerful than uh, heroin. It's a oh, it's a wow. synthetic opioid, and mm. it's just oh, it's, it's so it's so powerful. It's yeah, so looking at those people, it's just I, I saw that guy going through. I think it was San Francisco and maybe Portland, and um, oh, just the way they are so possessed. Basically, it's like a possession. Um, oh, that it's just so sad and so desperate. It's so extreme, isn't it? It's just, and and now think about like what you were saying, um, Mike, about your dog taking your dog for a walk and you walk out and there's needles and that needles and that. Sorry, um, that you know. Like, does your dog have a good chance of walking onto a fentanyl needle and getting a fentanyl, you know, through his system and stuff? Is it like that bad? Unfortunately, if you just walk on yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, so, yeah. I wonder how many cases there are of like it must happen all the time where members of the public just get and children must get fentanyl poisoning just from touching things. I mean, what about things like doorknobs and? elevator buttons and stuff like is it that bad yeah i don't i don't i don't know if it's quite that way um people have made it out to be that way but mm. again like yeah if you want to just uh you know cripple a whole society yeah flood it with this shit uh, oh, i can actually, tell you where i can tell ahead, you where it's go going ahead, sorry sorry mike it's especially because the, the canada story just like hit a light bulb for me canada has made medical assisted dying so they outline this assisted death for terminal illness, um, disability, and they're even moving into the field of depression. You can yeah, have mental, mental illness, but depression. Now, if you've got freehold access to hardcore drugs, your likelihood likelihood of going through mental illness and having a psychotic break are quite high. You have the case of people who are coming down from drugs. You've seen them in the street saying, "I want to die. I'm in so much pain." These people aren't in the right state of mind to dictate whether they actually want to die or not. So we're verging onto the point of using euthanasia as essentially a death panel. What happens when the majority of people in the inner city are addicted to these highly psychotropic, uh, no, it's highly addictive drugs, sorry, that are man-made, you can't get off them easy, as easy as traditional drugs we've seen in the past. A lot of people are probably going to turn to assisted suicide or the government will dictate you're not worthy of being alive because you're a, a lowly druggie and we've just plucked you off the streets. Here's your suicide machine. It's mm. not that far away from seeing that in the foreseeable future. There's been death a big push about that. Back. Sorry, Drew. Sorry, death panels are on the way back. I can see it coming. Yeah, yeah. There there's, has been a big push about the mental illness thing, especially since 2020. And that's been happening for a while because – my brother worked in the mental illness um, industry, I suppose, uh, and it was all being defunded over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, I guess, or longer slightly. Um, so that's the, t the 
angle that they have been coming from very much so, the mental illness very much in the forefront of people's thinking and in the news and all that. And I agree, yeah, we're going to, like, um, you know, people with any kind of mental illness, which does include depression, yeah. which can be treated and all that sort of stuff, will be targeted. Yeah, they'll be targeted as disposable society, basically. A disposable society is stop going to stop being the things and it's going to be the people. Um, because, yeah, Canada, exactly what you said. Like if, if somebody's under a particular point of, you know, particular depression and they really want to die, Canada will go, okay, <laughs> no worries, instead of, okay, well, let us help you, you know. So, so we started with the CHOP slash CHAZ um, in Seattle. And apparently the cops pulled out. They, they, they retreated. They, they left one of their precincts. They abandoned the building. Um, and they just said, okay, here's five city blocks, you know, have fun. And they let it go for a while. And I think that was, that was like, they wanted to let these people self-destruct. And I see the same thing happening here. Um, so this is the video I meant to share. This is Kensington, Philadelphia, the center of America's drug epidemic overrun with a drug known as Trank, a mixture of horse tranquilizer and fentanyl that's turning people there into real-life zombies. And with the help of my local contact, Recombol, we're going to figure out how this happened, what could be done to fix it, and hopefully not get shot in the process. Wow. Yeah, that was good. Oh. What's the likelihood of getting shot out here? Very, very likely. Yeah? Uh, you always stay strapped. Yeah, you got to. This ain't no game out here, but people can't just walk from this street to that street without being murdered. We're starting to get a sketchy area right now. You should yeah, I yeah. change a little bit? Big change out of nowhere right you here. See what I'm saying? Cops and tunnel. Night day. That fast, bro. Like, nice neighborhoods, boom. Now it's murder. Yeah, let's uh, park right here somewhere. All right, we're hopping out. And then we met up with Rick and Bull's buddy, Hotshot Shakur, to give us a closer look at the city. All right, so what's going on out here? Where are we at? Yeah, we at Kensington and Clearfield. So this neighborhood right here, like during the pandemic, once when COVID first hit, like a lot of stores on this block got destroyed, like a lot of the DTLR vandalized and burnt down. Got So the store owners, they moved. Needle right there. Yeah, yeah so I'm seeing needles. I've never seen needle actually in my life, actually. Yeah, yeah, I've seen like five last two minutes. Those common. See needles like this everywhere out here? Yeah. Yeah. They come out and clean the whole neighborhood every Got day, it. every morning. Yeah. And it. then they yeah. get back like this by nighttime. So is it a real concern to actually step on one? Yes. There's yeah, a possibility that a person can step on one every day. Yeah, some like soft shoes, sneakers that got don't got thick soles, yes. You could possibly step on one because they under cars, under bags, yeah. they everywhere. All There's these All right, I'm gonna pause. It looks like maybe Drew has something to say here. What do you got? Um, yeah, it's just what happened with Chaz just reminds me of early in Australian history when the colony was being set up. The, uh, the, the convicts had what was called a rum rebellion. They took over the camp. They kicked the Royal Marines out. They drank all the rum that was there. They had a good old time. And essentially, they, the Marines just sat back armed, let them burn themselves out, get it out of their system. And when they were all shit-faced on the ground and drunk and hung over, they went and locked them up again. Essentially, the same thing happened with Chaz, didn't it? They kind of let them to their own devices. Totally. A hundred percent, man. This is it. This is the strategy. Let them self-destruct. It's um. Look at this prime real estate that's unfortunately occupied by these poor folk. Let's just feed them fentanyl and let them self-destruct, and then we'll gentrify the fuck out of it.
It's a little bit of a social experiment too. I mean, it's always multifaceted, 100%. isn't it? Yes. There's uh, yes. lots of different things to be gained and learned. Isn't there a, a trend in America where you have these types of things? It's happened at a smaller scale, but you'll have suburbs or parts of cities that used to be like the drug capital and it kind of burns itself out, like we said. And then the affluent white people come in and they build like little yoga shops and candle stores what, and coffee shops. That's what we call, that's what we call gentrification. Yeah. Yeah. They're gentr gentrifying the neighborhood. So yeah. any anywho, should I go on? Continue, yeah. I'll go on. These orange caps are from needles. Are from needles, yes. We're looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Just in this area. That's wild. Yeah, where are they? Oh, so those are cops right there. Lock this my up. Okay, that's happening in real time. I said during COVID, on KNA, we had active military from here to Aramingo, Port Richmond. They rioted down here bad. All the stores were ransacked. And so we made our way to Needle Park, a park famous for the sheer quantity of needles there at any given time, where a lot of the homeless people hang out. I'm just trying to watch my feet for needles, no joke. Needles in the juice box. I used to come here to get on this really? computer, yeah. And when did it When did it get basically shut down? I told down? you, two years ago. The, when COVID hit, it impacted this like a bomb. How many homeless people do you think are out here? I'm, I'm a kid. It a, a buck with you like all the way 100. Yeah. There are more people down here that are stranded from different places in America than anywhere in America. Like people come here from all over. They drive here and then they never leave. So everyone comes out here to get drugs. What? This is the hub. Yeah. And you can shoot them up and cops don't do anything about it, right? No. They fight and they fire homicide. So the minor problem is them getting high. The main concern is overdoses. You get what I'm saying? So people people camp out here. And then look, you get the this is the library. You're yeah. like, we're gonna take him to Allegheny to the train station. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is nothing. Yeah, I'm gonna take you to the train station. It's like it's crazy. You'll see one block that look clean and then you go to the next block over feces. You could die, you know what I'm saying, out of nowhere because there's so much going on. This was my best friend. I mean, we, we've been together, yeah. you know, as friends since I was approximately like 19 years old. I'm okay. 31. So it's like, yeah, this yeah. is my brother. Like, I lost him to gun violence down here. And then I lost his, you know, the game. But this is where it's high drug. Like, why is this convenience store? This is what we got now. They replaced convenience stores with gambling. Yeah. So the average person who got $10, $5, they can come in here, put the money in, bop, 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 win $30. The more you play, the more you win. You know yeah. the game. But this is where it's high drug. Like, why is this here? Yeah. Legitimately. Sure. Right across the whole wall. Little casino machines. We're not in Vegas. Gambling is an addiction. So no matter which way you turn, no matter what your addiction is, you don't have to leave here. When people come here get stuck. They know? get stuck. Yeah. Now look, get this, get the ground. Every night, fires to stay warm. Yeah, if there's burning straight on the sidewalk here. And then out of nowhere, this happened. Wow. Yo, 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 yo. <laughs> Young boy burned out. He just rolled the window down and started shooting at the, the addicts. Oh, you're shooting? Yeah. Just now. Okay, I gotta, I gotta stop because there's just so much here. Like. So something I've been seeing more of, there's convenient little ways to gamble in the United States of America. They got gambling machines. They got uh, what we call pull tabs. We got the lottery. We got all kinds of ways for you to blow money in the hopes of making more money. And I, I think the point they're making is, is a good one where it's like they've, they've, they've set up these like convenience stores that sell like junk food and cigarettes and liquor and they've got gambling machines and all the drug addicts hang out and it's like these handful of blocks this is we've hit on it on the wtf forum this is all a land grab they're trying to get people off the land it's the same as it's ever been 
you know, give the Indians whiskey and and smallpox blankets. Hundred percent. They've been corralling us for a long time. It's slowly getting to you know, getting people to the little coastal regions where they're going to build their places. It's a pretty long long term thing. It's just, you know, everyone's just waking up to it. They're starting to see it and they're starting to realise what's going on. And criminals have been running the joint for so long. It's taken a long time to figure it out. I mean, there's been the people, you know, calling from the wilderness for a number of decades but just being ignored like your dude, Edward. Well, this is why, yes, yes, Edward Abbey. I'm glad you, the way you said it, call, they're calling out to us from the wilderness. This is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to call out from the wilderness and I'm trying to understand how this all works. And it's all, it's all about land, food and guns. And that's why I love Edward Abbey. You know, he was, he, he didn't have it all figured out. He was trying to figure it out, but he, he latched on to anarchism. He latched on to the right to bear arms and he latched on to sort of uh, the natural right to procure food you know it's like that's that's what it boils down to growing it or hunting it it don't matter you know hunt hunter gatherer or or gardener like land land who owns the land that's really the question exactly whoever says they own it and who's got the most ammunition (laughs) Whoever has strength to hold it. Whoever has the fortitude. The fortitude. It's not just about bullets. It's not about numbers. It's about willingness. You know, it's it's True. so the, the the story of the Mormons, tying it back to that, they picked Salt Lake City, Utah, because it's a natural fortress. Good fucking luck the the u.s government with all of its might you know aside from nuking it or carpet carpet bombing it they could never overtake salt lake city the mormons if they really really want you know and they do actually they do really want to they could declare themselves a sovereign nation they could. They would call it Deseret. It's it's written in their books. Like they're gonna do it. I'm I'm convinced they're gonna do it. Well, they had a standing army when they established Salt Lake City, did they not? It was a Mormon army. There, yes, there was. Uh, we 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 covered it before you hopped on, Drew. A bit, a bit. We barely actually scratched the surface, but there has been ongoing battles between the Mormons and various state governments federal governments they they fought they fought the indians and they fought the white man at the same fucking time the mormons don't you know don't underestimate the fucking mormons you know what i'm saying so I, i've underpants. said it I, like i i point i poked fun at them at times because i lived in utah but i have mad respect because they they will outlast most people they have a tight knit community. They've got a system that actually fucking works. 
Mm. Are they sort of, <clears throat> I don't know much about their everyday goings on. So they're very tight community and very loyal to each other, obviously. So yes. like yes. a little mini army, community army. Very, very committed to each other. Now, it's almost like the it's almost like the Amish, but they they live in the modern day world with all its amenities. True. Yeah. Actually, right, yeah. actually, true. Very true. Um, yeah, it's almost like they picked out certain bits of what really works for for some of the other more like sustained cultures, um, and but they they didn't hold themselves back to the modern world. Um, now we're oh man, four hours fifty four minutes. That's fucking wild. That's fucking wild. You know I, you want think, to round it up to five hours, don't you? Yeah, well, we're gonna. We're gonna. Um, so I'm gonna finish with this speech uh by Edward Abbey. And I, I you know, I'm I'm just leaving it on faith because I love this man and I love his words. I have no idea what he's gonna say, but I have a feeling it's gonna actually do a better job summarizing all of it than I could, even though I have no clue. So let's see what he says. Glad to see so many of you have showed up. I'm going to try messing with this thing. Is that any better? If you can't hear me, just holler. And I'll holler. First of all, I would like to say I'm very happy to be back in Ev Meekum country. <laughs> of course, I live half the time in Arizona, except in the summers when I go to live in Moab, Utah, to get away from the heat. <laughs> It may be true that um, Utah has the world's worst county commissioners. I'm thinking primarily of San Juan, Grand, and Garfield counties. But, but we in Arizona can boast the world's worst governor <laughs> at the moment. The world's worst governor, Utah's own Ev Mickham. How can we ever thank you? Actually, I feel sorry for the poor guy. Even his wife won't speak to him anymore, except to say, oh, please, Ev, not tonight. I've got a headache. Which reminds me, I heard what I hope is a new Ev Mickham joke tonight. I hope it hasn't saturated Salt Lake already. Why do Arizona cats walk around with their tails up in the air all the time? They're showing off their F. Meekum buttons. <laughs> of course. It's hard to say which of our great states have the worst politicians. Very difficult. We've got F. Meekham, Eldon Rudd, and Bob Stump, 
Those are actual names. <laughs> but you have my old friend Calvin Black from Blanding. Hey, Cal, are you out there? <laughs> Got any new pots for sale? And then, of course, there's weird types down in Garfield County who lock up some poor jerk for sugaring a bulldozer. <laughs> serves, him, serves him right. Water and sand are much better. <laughs> they charge this poor guy with vandalism when these county commissioners in Garfield are doing their best to destroy one of the most beautiful primitive areas left in the whole state of Utah. Who are the true criminals in Garfield County? Well, not the fellow who tried to save the Burr Trail from final destruction, but that little gang of county commissioners and BLM bureaucrats who have been conspiring together for years to vandalize, industrialize, and pollute a land which is the rightful property of all Americans. Okay, I'm glad he finally got to the point. Like, I apologize. There were a couple of minutes there, platitudes and whatnot. Once again, I said, uh, you know, I, I told you I haven't watched this speech, but he gets to the point. He's talking about places that I know personally. You know, I lived in Wayne County, Utah, which was adjacent to Garfield County. He's talking about the Burr Trail. I know, I know what he means when he says that. Um, this was a man who fought tooth and nail to his dying breath to protect the wilderness from mostly miners. Like I said, he would talk shit on the ranchers too, but I think his main enemy were the miners, the the, the, the folks trying to extract minerals and bring in big, big machines. And even at that, I might disagree with him. Because truth be told, if we can extract useful minerals from the desert without doing too much damage, I'm all about it. But I but I appreciate his tenacity and the fact that he what he saw was a pattern of destruction of, of the last bits of wilderness in the continental United States being destroyed. And he inspired a lot of people to stand up against it. You know, without him, there might be places that would have been bulldozed, would have been, you know, totally destroyed. But it's, it's a complex issue. It's the issue of land. Mm, there was a time when they used to cover it up. And then I remember distinctly, well, particularly when I was living in Tasmania, actually, uh, slowly the, you, you're probably not going to like this, Drew, slowly the deforested bits um, were no longer hidden, you know, a few hills away. They started creeping closer and closer into, you know, coastal areas where you could sort of see them um, from a distance. And, I mean, Tassie is a very green-orientated population it's a real division actually there's the loggers and the paper millers versus the greenies um 
and you know I have I can see both sides I don't really particularly sit on one particular side because everything every situation is different but yeah obviously it's it's Edward it's Abbey yeah. obviously yeah. Edward Abbey could see that things weren't being taken respectfully they were being raped and pillaged and that's what was the hidden thing and that's what he was exposing because it really was like when was this so probably 70s 80s time um mm -hmm. it really was sort of the you know like you know my mum's generation and before her were very very trusting of the government they didn't really question anything they didn't think to question it they just thought everything was being looked after and so, yeah, he's one of the guys, I suppose, that really sort of changed that general, broke that general ignorance that needed to be broken, um, you know, smashed that, those rose-coloured glasses and so yeah. people could see clearer. So, um, yeah. Well, that was, that was the beauty, his writing. It was equally um, condemn, uh, condemning of the industry influence as well as the government influence. Like he was very critical of the BLM, the park service and the forest service. He actually worked for the park service, you know? So in that way, he and I right. are similar. Like he, he worked multiple seasons, so he had more experience than me, but like he saw it from the inside and, and I I've said it before. I'll say it again. Like really the park service has a pretty um, benevolent, mission and they do a decent job their their goal is to preserve the most precious bits of wilderness the problem is the bureaucracy still gets in the way yes you know? the people and with like, the boots on ground people are there because they love what they're doing yes, and they love the animals yes. and the environment and they want to protect it and keep it there for their grandchildren and and of course you know that's what the elites want too just for completely different reasons so well oh, they and, don't care and, about the animals they, they just want it yeah <laughs> well and even if even if, even if they're there for the right reasons and even if it's a benevolent endeavor by the government what it results in is gatekeeping by the government yeah now now they own these vast swaths of land and they can do with them what they will so you know if i if i may i'm gonna play on uh because i could tell i could tell he's just now getting to it of all humankind And more important, the property not merely of us humans, but of the eagles and the hawks and the coyotes and the fox and deer and the badger and the mountain lions who migrated there before any humans ever did. The true home. <laughs> However, bad as Garfield County may be, I want to boast a little more about my county, Grand, Moab, my other home, my part-time home, which I think may really be the worst of all. There we have underway a conspiracy between a toxic waste company, several county commissioners, and a mysterious newspaper editor trying to sneak a toxic waste incinerator plant into Grand County without stirring up the public. 
And they kept it a secret as long as they could. And the secret got out, and there was a great public outcry against it in Moab, in Moab of all places. <laughs> the county commissioners are now trying to ram it through against what appears to be majority opposition. Challenged to hold a county referendum on the issue, the commissioners declined. Or at least that was the latest I heard. Moab, Grand County, Southeast Utah, Arizona, Utah, my favorite places in the whole world, actually. Why, I want to know, however, getting back to Grand County, why does Hollywood always choose the Moab area when they want to make a movie about brain-damaged radioactive mutants? <laughs> I think it's insulting. Those California types think they're so smart. How good would their brains be? I'd like to know if they'd been breathing radon and you 235 all these years. Or, in the immortal words of a former Grand County Commissioner, out of charity, I won't name him, during a debate in Moab on county funding of a mental health clinic, this man said, we don't need no mental health in Grand County. <laughs> major danger to this area is too much economic development, too much road building, too much oil exploration, mineral exploration, development of commercial tourism. I think Southeast Utah is one of the great adventure places left on earth. And I think we should uh, try to keep it wild and primitive. It really is the property not only of all the American people, but maybe of all the people of the world. There aren't many places left like this on Earth. And I think its chief value is not only its beauty, but its wildness. The fact that so much of it is still hard to get into. I Okay, I just have to, I have to corroborate that last couple of seconds there that last minute um it is one of the last wild places on earth which is why i think it's fitting that i found you know i find myself with two australians because you also live in one of the last places with true wilderness i mean maybe i'm not giving our mother earth enough credit there's wilderness in china there's wilderness in Mongolia, Russia. there's Russia, there's, you know, yeah, there's, South there's wilderness, yeah. India, all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Peru, Argentina, but the truth is it, you know, I don't disagree with Teddy Roosevelt when he said that the national parks was America's best idea. I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that we set these areas aside. But what I don't like is that due to the, uh, the fundamental laws of bureaucracy, it, it's created this, this 
terrible tension between the people and those who claim the land. Because I think I think you have to recognize that borders change. And I don't know, man. Like, it's tricky. It's tricky. I don't just want people to go build skyscrapers at Yosemite. But at the same time, I hate that our federal government, you know, like with with the National Forest Service, they they monopolize and they capitalize on our resources. You know, like some shit should be changed here. I don't know. I land land government and people is a, is a funny cross section. And it always has been. I guess it always will be. The crown land, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's entire, there's entire swaths on the east coast of bushland that's bigger than a lot of European countries that people just haven't stepped foot in. They see it arbitrarily on a map, like, oh, wow, look at all that crown land. That's all <laughs> bushland and forest. And barely anyone ever goes into it. You might have the odd few national parks and places that have set camping grounds. But for the most part, the, the large majority of Australian bushland goes unexplored. Yeah, and if we want to, you know, naturally, I'm going to put my conspiracy pants on. Um, you've got that thing about people, you know, going missing. Lots of people go missing in national parks. I mean, it's to be expected. Obviously, people are going to walk off cliffs and things like that. But apparently, like, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> and um, then we've got the whole thing about a whole underground world which i have no problem believing in that at all um i think we're just like crusty little people living on the thin surface up here and we've got all these worries that seem really huge but you know it's just like we're just trying to save <laughs> this little bit that's up here that we're on any anyway um yeah and also you know i mean a lot of money can be directed through the national parks thing as well it's just like everything else isn't it i mean you can never hold to account that project how much did that project cost and who owned all the subcontractors that were involved in that contract and all that, uh, that project and all that sort of thing which happens all the time so it's just yet another money laundering thing as well so yeah the people that are actually boots on the ground are good people doing a great job but you know why are we not allowed to go into all these places as well it's like uh, mm -hmm. is this the place where you, the abyss you know the entries yeah. to it the abyss you know whatever so well that's that the thing part. it's it's it, it's never as clean as people want to imagine, right? Like I, it actually I keep thinking to like Israel Palestine, like it's not as clean as you want to think. History didn't start yesterday, you know. Like with the national parks, at least I'll I'll speak to what I know best. With the national park that I worked at, it's called Capitol Reef. I lived in a place called Fruta, which used to be a Mormon town. And it was one of these Mormon pioneer towns, one of the few that actually survived, like one out of maybe 12, if I'm not mistaken, that's the number I remember, one out of 12 Mormon pioneer towns basically didn't, didn't make it. Not that everybody died, but like they couldn't make it in the desert. In Fruta, there was fertile ground. They planted orchards. Orchards, which were eventually confiscated by the National Parks Service, ultimately to be, wow. you know, laid hands on by yours truly. 
But these orchards were literally taken from the pioneers who planted them. And it's not as simple. It's not as clean as saying, oh, this is a pretty place. We're going to declare it a national park. You know, somebody loses. Somebody's land got took. And, and these borders are arbitrary. You know, I'm saying like, if the people of, I'm just going to say it out loud, even though, you know, it might sound, you know, for legal purposes, this is not an incitement to anything. But if the people of Wayne County, Utah, said, fuck the national parks and fuck the Bureau of Land Management, we're going to roust them. They could do it. I don't know. Don't you think that, you know, they've got enough force now to be able to go, well, okay, you guys can band together and get bigger than our cops or our local sheriffs or whatever, but, you know, we've got the army and then they'll just bring in a bigger thing. I mean, look, look at Waco, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, they can outdo us because of all the technology and their their force, you know. it's not We've got the numbers, but they've got the force, if you know what I mean. What about a situation where it's Chaz, but instead of taking up like a few city blocks, you intentionally corral, now I'm not saying you should do this, but in a circumstance, someone intentionally corrals all the junkies and addicts into a government building. And they set up shop injecting into the government building and then we're vetrifying the very system that tried to do it to the city, to the city blocks in itself. Like, would the government actively step in if there was 100-plus um, fentanyl addicts in a, a government building or courthouse if they just showed up one day? Because they're happy for it to happen in the streets, but mm-hmm. would they allow it to happen on their own premises? Well, you know, it's I, 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 I tend to think it really doesn't take that many people. Like, this Bundy Ranch thing kind of proved... You know, it, it was the Waco where the building didn't burn down. A couple of guys got got murked by feds. But in, you know, and actually, you know, quite a few folks went to jail. So like the feds kind of won. But at the same time, this, you know, that's the thing. This standoff lasted for months. I want, Well, I want to say weeks, if not months. Sheriff, this is what we the people are asking this morning. This disarm the park service. At Lake Mead and Red what Red Rock Park and all other parks that the federal government claims they have jurisdiction over. Take your county bulldozers and uh, loaders and tear down the entrance places. The why they ticket us and why they uh, interest and make us citizens pay their fees. You take down the you get the county equipment out there and tear those things down this morning. You, you, 
you disarm those park service people. You take a pickup and I want those arms. We want those arms picked up, don't we? Call urgent Valley disposal and go up here to this compound and we want all of those arms put in that compound today. We want those arms delivered right here under these flags in one hour. And the media? One hour. Are, are you here, media? I want you to go to every place that they got a, a federal park service uh, station and you watch those county machines tear down those those places today in the next hour and if you report back to these people we the people in one hour if it's not if they're not done then we'll decide what we're going to do from this point on Thank you. what gives them the right to come and simply take over a facility in an armed confrontation making demands that haven't been the demands of the local people i prefer peace but if trouble must come you let it come in my time so that my children may know peace amen On January 2nd, an armed militia took over a wildlife refuge outside of Burns, Oregon, managed by the Federal Bureau of Land Management, or the BLM. The militia is led by Nevada native Amon Bundy, and it's refused to leave until the government turns over the federal land to the people of Harney County. Manning the watchtower is Daryl Thorne a moonshiner who drove all the way from Washington State to join the occupation. Uh, our job is to look out, you know, keep an eye on everybody, make sure everybody's not wandering around and being in places where they shouldn't be. Meanwhile, in Burns, the closest town to the refuge, Harney County Sheriff Dave Ward has called a town meeting to discuss how to address the armed occupation just a few miles from their quiet community. Things that have been going on in our community over the last six, eight weeks, that's not Harney County. That's not who we are. I'm just going to go ahead and ask you, how many citizens of Harney County do we have in here? Now I'm going to ask for the same show of hands of how many people want to work this out peacefully and would like these folks to go home. These people down here at the refuge, I talk to them and they ain't hurting a damn thing down there. But, but, let it, but, let, but they're made, they're, they brought us all together. They're waking people up. I'm proud to be a rancher, and I'm not going to let some other people be my face. I am me. It is my home. It's been almost a week now since the militia led by Amon Bundy have been occupying the Mallow Wildlife Refuge headquarters. And whilst the people of Harney County are happy that the issues faced by ranchers have been raised by the occupation, they're getting pretty tired of it carrying on for so long and the disruption that the occupation has caused. So we're going to head up to the refuge and see really if this militia are here for the long haul.
This is the entrance to the wildlife refuge. There aren't that many militia guys that we can see, but there are a hell of a lot of media. We've heard from some of the people in the town, how they've spoken about how they're upset that some of the militia guys here are from outside uh, the county, the state. And one of those guys is John Ritzheimer, who's got a bit of a controversial history with uh, Patriot groups. And we're hoping to speak to him and see why he's come down here. Ritzheimer is best known for a series of anti-Islamic videos and protests across the country. I'm up here because I'm a Marine. I swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, and I, I'm upholding that oath and serving my country now. Yesterday, there was a big meeting at the town hall with lots of people. Most people there were very happy that, you know, issues faced by ranchers in the area have been raised by what's going on here. But seemingly, most people wanted this to end as soon as possible, if not now. I'm, I'm what do you think about people. that? I'm one of those. I, I, wanna, I want this to end peacefully, uh, quickly, and I want to be able to return home to my family. But unfortunately, this will end when it needs to end, basically. On our way into the refuge, we came across a local boy who came to interview Amon Bundy's brother, Ryan, for his school paper, something we've been trying to do for days. Go ahead, ask your questions and I'll answer. Are you moving here forever? Nope, nope. Just temporarily? Yep, we're just here to help establish some rights and help you guys out. We, our family wants to help your family and, and that's all we need to do. Okay, thank you. Do you think you're making an impact on locally, statewide, and nationwide? I think that pretty much everybody's listening right now, and I'll tell you what, we can't do it for you. You know, you guys are going to have to decide that you want your freedom. How old are you? I'm 11. Yeah, okay, you want my name? My name is Ryan Bundy. Okay, thank you. We're a few hundred yards from the buildings occupied by the militia, and behind me is the Mallow Wildlife Refuge. And the militia say that they're unhappy that areas of land like this across the country are fenced off to ranchers uh, for environmental reasons. What they want is areas of land like this to be opened up back to the ranchers so they can graze their cattle. But areas like this, I mean, it's almost the definition of the middle of nowhere. There's hardly anyone here. There are certainly no feds in sight and it doesn't look like a standoff whatsoever. The Bundys have been staying in this building since the occupation started. It's guarded by an armed militia member 24 hours a day. We spent hours requesting an interview with leader Amon Bundy, a look inside the building, anything. Then, late in the day, one of his bodyguards came out and told us to hurry to our cars and be ready for a big development. We're following a convoy made up of militia members led by Amon Bundy, the leader of the militias of the refuge, and they're on the way to meet with the sheriff of Harney County. This is the first time Amon and the sheriff have met, and they're gonna be discussing the situation at the refuge. We've been driving a good 15, 20 minutes now away from uh, the refuge. It's kind of a, a bit dramatic meeting the sheriff on the edge of town. They met on the side of the road, each with armed protection beside them and in nearby cars. Matter, I just want to come out and offer you guys the, the opportunity to help you get out and get home and resolve this thing peacefully. That's, uh, I'm willing to get you an escort all the way out of the state. Yeah, we're here for the you know, people of Harney County. We're here because the people have, were ignored. They're bringing up legitimate concerns, and yet, Sheriff, you would not. Uh, well, address those concerns. I'm here because the citizens of Harney County have asked me to come out and ask you folks to peacefully leave. We pose no threat to the community whatsoever at all. It's time to get the schools open, let your community get back to living. We do not pose a threat. That's, and that's and, what I'm asking for. But, but that can be done I'm without asking, us leaving. Well, it only takes one unstable person to show up. Well, we know that. That's that's what I'm getting at. I'm not calling you well, unstable. That, that, that can happen in any community, talk. in any area. Um, that could happen if even if we but laugh. I'm here to offer... Yeah. Safe escort out, uh, go back, kick it around with your folks, and, and I'll give you a call tomorrow and ask you what you're deciding. I do. Thanks for coming out. All right. I'm pausing because I, I think it's worth noting that this occurred during lockdown.
So this this actually was really big news for all of about two weeks, and then everybody forgot about it. These these militia guys occupied this obscure wildlife refuge to make a fucking point. To make a point that the government had gone too far in many, many ways. I was just sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I meant I was no, just gonna go say ahead. in go the ahead. snow. <laughs> in the cold yeah. snow. Yeah. 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 You know, you could say they were LARPing, they were like playing a playing a fucking I don't know, like role play game. But these guys, a lot of them went to jail. They felt very strongly about what they were doing. And what they were doing is standing up for private landowners, private ranchers against the federal government. And it's it's way more complicated than the than the news than the media wanted anybody to think. You know, like like I said, you could do like a, a you know, ten part series on this specific story and i you know i kind of commend the bundy family for like putting their necks on the line and just saying fuck it we're gonna we're gonna make people look at this oh i'm more than kind of you give them merit i totally salute them to be a cobra yeah for sure and it's amazing amazing little solidarity unit that they had going and, you know, you've got to love the whole, now we're going to be polite and we're going to hold our heads together and we're going to make you an offer, you know, <laughs> one that you basically can't refuse. And um, well, they, well, they refuse well, it. It's good. Well, but the thing of it is, the reason that he was willing to meet with the sheriff, the, the position of sheriff is very important constitutionally in the United States. You know, a lot of people claim it's the only constitutional law enforcement agency, the office of the sheriff, the local sheriff. There is no other law enforcement outlined in the Constitution. They are the only ones that have to get elected. So it's a big fucking deal. So like he met with the local sheriff. To say, these are our concerns, this is why we're doing it, and we're asking you politely to not let the feds come in and come in and kill us. And eventually the you know the feds came in and basically you know killed a couple of them. And the sheriff didn't do shit. But there have been cases during COVID specifically where sheriffs actually stood up and you know kicked out the feds so it's gone both ways but the sheriff is an incredibly important position in american democracy mm, more, that's what than, I more, more than people realize yeah Go ahead. yes Go ahead. i agree totally 100 percent. that's what i was saying before about the infiltration isn't just you know like right at the top of the t- politicians and the big people telling us what to do. It's right down to ground level of the local councils and the mayors and everything. And people can go to all those little meetings, which now basically <laughs> a lot of them are online, you know, South Yarra, for instance, Yarra Rangers, sorry, Drew. Um, yeah, so it's sort of less and less. I mean, the illusion itself is diminishing 
they would kind of play along and let us have our gatherings and come to meetings. And even that itself is being sort of stomped out because it's just, it's so, they've got the reins <laughs> so in so many places so tightly. I mean, even places like Byron Bay, I believe, I haven't sort of um, done in-depth research here, but I believe that Byron Bay were one of the last places um, for fluoride in the water. Is that right, Drew? Is that ring a bell? And there was quite a lot of protest and everything done and they, they held out pretty well. But then eventually the council just went, nah, we're doing it. So, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, they just do what they want. My question would be is another situation like this occurs in the future and some ranchers or just some community members band together for their rights in the constitution and they do have a sheriff in their region. What happens if the region deputy, that sheriff in that area deputises all the people that are in the standoff and joins them? What would happen at a a level of the media and the government? How would they try to spin that? Dude, I don't even know. Um, that's the thing, actually. Even with Waco, apparently, like, the local sheriff didn't want the feds anywhere near there. And, like, they they tried to run interference for a time, but, like, the feds overpowered them. So, like, it's a good question. Like, if 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 a sheriff's department got to the point of standing up against the feds and like drawing weapons. Like that's not something we've seen yet, but it's very possible. Very, very, very possible. By the very nature of having a sheriff's department, it's appointed by the community. So if you build a community from the ground up and almost mm -hmm. culture block what's going on, I think the likelihood of that happening is becoming more and more prevalent by the day. As, as we decentralize, like it or not, like the United States of America are not so united. We are decentralizing. It's a matter of how, how we do it and how, how rough it is. And it's, again, it's ironic. I'm talking to two Aussies, uh, but like, that's where we're at over here. You know, it certainly looks that way. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be a rough ride to make that transition, but it had to happen at some point. So I guess this is it, you know. Either that or it's 1984 <laughs> all the way. Well, uh, let me let me play this on. Again, I keep thinking I'll wrap it up, but like. <laughs> <laughs> that was about half an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, this, no, it was an hour ago. Yeah, this is too fun. It's too fun. So here we go. Updates. Six days in, it's starting to look like this cycle will continue for a long time. In answer to the sheriff in our, our conversations, yesterday we met and he said gracefully that he would give us free passage out of the county and free passage out of the state if we would leave. And I can only say that this, this to him. We will take that offer, but not yet. Thank you. Thank you so much. Today, after the press conference, we managed to grab Amon Bundy for a short interview. The sheriff himself has offered you safe passage and, and you know basically people are happy you've raised issues but they say it's time for you to leave what do you say to that well i just barely met with three ranchers mm -hmm. that asked me not to and uh, and that seems to be at least flowing through these doors has been the message mm -hmm. i mean there's we know that there are those that believe that that or that want us to leave we understand that i mean uh, but for those that are coming through our door and expressing their concerns they're wanting us to stay long enough to get them on their feet it could be weeks it could be months um i don't see it being more than a year though and what are those things that, that need to get right 
well, the people need to be in control of their own land and not be uh, have a, uh, a people clear 3,000 miles away dictating how their own land works. Uh, government doesn't own rights. Rights are owned by the people. Why couldn't have this been an unarmed occupation? Because they probably would just came in and uh, stopped it from happening before it ever even started. And that's why we have our Second Amendment rights. It, it says, the Second Amendment says, um, a well-regulated militia necessary for, the, uh, for, the, uh, for a free state, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. That's, that's what it says. Mm -hmm. And so those two things go together. They say, hey, the people have a right to defend themselves. Sure. But does the Constitution give you the right to occupy a federal building? It actually does in the sense because the federal government did not have the right to be here. Right. And, that's, and that is very clear in the Constitution. A lot of people are calling you guys domestic terrorists. And if you look at the definition of the word terrorism, men with guns taking over buildings, threatening harm if, if they are you know, forced into action. What do you say to that? Well, I would say go read the Declaration of Independence. Go read the that, that's probably the, the best definition and uh, see if what we're doing is uh, is terrorism or whatever they want to call or if it's uh, our right to do it. How many militia guys are with you here? I've been, asked, I've been asked that a lot and I won't answer because of, you know, security operations. And how did the actual occupation take place? Was there anyone here at the time? No, we just walked down in here. The doors were open and that's what happened. <laughs> it was that easy. All right. That's probably enough. Uh, you know, this is Vice News. So, like, also copyright. Good thing we're not on YouTube tonight to begin with. But, um, yeah. So, but I think it's kind of funny the way he was like, yeah, we just walked in. The doors were open. I mean, this is my point. Like, these, these feds hold on to vast quantities of land with very few individuals. And it's a dangerous thing to even point that out. But, like... People could boot them in a hurry, and the only thing the feds can do is come in and murk them straight up. But the feds don't want to do that because it wouldn't make them look good. They don't want to kill American citizens unless they really have to. You know, they don't want another Waco, they don't want another Ruby Ridge because it doesn't make them look good, you know? Like, well, that. They, under their own definition, they're already terrorists in themselves because a terrorist is someone that pushes a, a political ideology or thought process through fear. Well, if you've got a huge armed um, populace with <laughs> armored personnel carriers, tanks, helicopters, military-level equipment to push a government agenda, regardless of whether it's a standing government or not, that would still be classed as terrorism. Objectively, it's still terrorism. So what they're accusing people of, they themselves are permitting, uh, actually orchestrating themselves. Yeah, they don't want to throw the first punch. Like you said before, they want us to just do it to each other and to ourselves. Like While they stand stand by with their hands behind their backs, sort of looking up and whistling, going, wasn't me, you know. So it's very effective the way they can conjure that thought. I mean, look at what's happened. Look at BLM. Look, um, that was a whole bunch of experiments all just all in one big long row of since 2020. Like mm -hmm. this, it, time, time is almost pre 2020, post 2020. It's almost yeah BC and AD, isn't it? <laughs> it used to be pre 9 11, post 9 11, but now yeah, it's mm. it's COVID. It's BC, COVID, before COVID, after COVID. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or after death. <laughs> yeah. So have have either of you ever read any uh, Cormac McCarthy? No. So, no, so shaking the, my head. The, he he wrote some pretty uh, pretty influential books. The Road 
um trying to think i can't really remember but um him and edward abbey were actually friends and i'm just going to share this again i don't know what we're getting into but if we're going to hit five hours we might as well hit six so here we go two of the best american southwest authors format mccarthy and edward abbey were friends and this may come to a surprise to some of you guys because we hear all the time how Cormac McCarthy was only friends with other scientists and degenerates in society because they are the most interesting and that writers are just navel-gazing narcissists. But McCarthy was friends with multiple writers and Edward Abbey was one of them. And if you guys have not read Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey, go buy it right now. It's one of the best environmental books written by an American of all time. And it shows us a mentality lifestyle and philosophy that most of us aspire and dream of getting but don't have the ability to find anymore in our society and the book comprises of the experiences of edward abbey in the 1960s while he worked as a park ranger in uh, arches national park in moab utah and this is before moab got run over by a bunch of tourists and mountain bikers and interspersed between his uh, eco revelations are ideas on how to restore nature back into you know our consciousness and he is a eco-anarchist or libertarian so it's a much different approach to the marxist environmentalism that we have been inundated with for decades now funny enough edward abbey was also a fiction writer and his best work and most famous work is called the monkey wrench gang which is about a bunch of eco-anarchists who are going to blow up the glen canyon dam in northern arizona and it's a wild novel and not as good as any cormac mccarthy novels in any sense except that it's fun it's political and the novel also inspired the introduction of direct action into American environmentalism. And direct, direct action is bringing people to physically stop the um, logging, the building of dams, and destruction of other wildlife habitats. And this is good for a while, a while because you get press. But eventually, with too much direct action, as we're seeing now with environmentalists, you have a bunch of wimps you know, throwing paint on uh, old famous paintings as a protest. And eventually, things get too political, and the anarchists and the Marxists take over. And that's what happened with those early groups inspired by Abby. But nonetheless, him and Cormac actually connected in terms of environmentalism because supposedly they were going to try and wanted to reintroduce the wolf to Southern Arizona. And this was in the late 80s. And I'm sure they'd be happy to know that now in Arizona, there are over 100 um, Mexican gray wolves and there actually is a jaguar in Southern Arizona. And after Abby's death, McCarthy wrote to J. Howard Woolmer that I lost another writer friend two weeks ago, Edward Abbey. I think he came across in his writing as something of a curmudgeon, but he was a kind and generous man. Quality, sad to say, not common to writers. And a curmudgeon is kind of someone with a bad attitude. One of those McCarthy words that I had to look up before reading this to you. Even more cool, we have a 1986 letter from Abby to McCarthy saying this. And you could say that Abby was one of the early fans of Cormac McCarthy because only, what was it, 1,800 copies of Blood Meridian were sold between 1985 and 1992. And Edward Abbey was one of those people who read it. And he says to McCarthy, quote, have just read Blood Meridian, a beautiful, terrible, splendid book. You must have made a compact with the judge himself to write such a book. I envy you your powers, salute your achievement, and dread not a little for the safety of your soul. Luckily, although wholly true, your book is not the whole truth, which you know as well as I. Now I must read your other books while looking forward to your next. And Abby, sadly, never got to see all the pretty horses because he died in 1989. And if we look back at this passage, what, and if we look back at this passage, what is Abby referring to here when he says, luckily, although wholly true, your book is not the whole truth, which you know as well as I. 
I think he's referring to the deep secrets of the desert, of reality, the things that we don't necessarily see through the judge's, you know, manacle vision, but are somewhat present, you know, present, you know, when the judge speaks about the plants and geology, he says that they have a life of their own. So McCarthy was also inspired by Abby through the Taoist Chung Su, if I'm saying that correctly. And this is so funny because when I was in high school, I was very inspired, like I'm sure some of you guys were, or at later parts in your life, by Taoism. And there is Lao Tzu, whatever the hell his name is. And then there is Chung Su, the very early, you know, Taoist with their writings. And one of the Chung Su's, I'm saying his name wrong, but who gives a fuck? Most, his, one of his most famous quotations and ideas is something that's been overplayed now by Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe, and everyone else, but it's this passage. Also, mind you, this was written in the 4th uh, four, century BCE, which was 2,400 years ago. A lot of people, this is just a side note, as someone who taught high, uh, middle school history and now as a high school English teacher, a lot of people, a lot of students and even adults have no, if, you, if I say how long ago was 700 BC, roughly, none of my students know. A lot of adults don't know, know how to figure that out. I mean, it's insane. And, the, and so the statement passage goes, quote, once Chung Chao dreamt he was a butterfly, a butterfly flitting and fluttering around, happy with himself and doing as he pleased. He didn't know he was Chung Chao. Suddenly he woke up and there he was, solid and unmistakable Chung Chao. But he didn't know if he was Chung Chao who had dreamt he was a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he was Chung Chao. Between Chung Chao and a butterfly, there must be some distinction. This is called the transformation of things. Pretty simple stuff for a lot of us, but Edward Abbey remixes this in the passage we're about to read, then Cormac McCarthy remixes it again for Sutri. So let's read Edward Abbey's version of this in Desert Solitaire. Quote, I went native and dreamed away days on the shore of the pool under the waterfall, wandered naked as Adam under the cottonwoods, inspecting my cactus gardens. The days became wild, strange, ambiguous. A sinister element pervaded the flow of time. I lived narcotic hours in which, like the Taoist Chung Su, I worried, worried about butterflies and who was dreaming what. I slipped by degrees into lunacy, me and the moon, and lost to a certain extent the power to distinguish between what was and what was not myself. Looking at my hand, I would see a leaf trembling on a branch. And man, talk about some fire statements right there. Beautiful stuff from Abby. And we know McCarthy read and was inspired by this, this because in box 19, folder 14 of the Cormac McCarthy archive, he says, quote, butterfly dream in Chung Su, brackets communal soul, Abby. And I'll throw this up on the screen right now for you guys so you can see what McCarthy exactly so this was an inspiration for Sutri because there are a couple different elements that come into Sutri. First of all, a lot of these come up in the mountain scene. Okay, I'm, I'm going to pause there. He's getting pretty nerdy. I, I'm pretty sure this guy's autistic, um, <laughs> which is uh, oh, I didn't whatever. notice. <laughs> and maybe maybe I am too, but like, damn. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. it's it's interesting that Cormac McCarthy was a fan of Edward Abbey. Edward Abbey has never, ever gotten his due. You know, like he's known for Desert Solitaire, but he wrote a bunch of really interesting books. My personal favorite for the listener, if you want to buy your first Edward Abbey novel, I would, I would go with A Fool's Progress. He calls it an honest novel and i love that book black sun you could read in like two hours that's another good one but a fool's progress it's a little more to chew on um but cormac mccarthy he wrote he wrote the road which was turned into a movie uh vigo mortensen oh, was the I star of yeah yeah it's it's a movie about a post-apocalyptic world where cannibalism is the norm 
and it's a brutal brutal fucking story and again i you know it's it's like i i almost like the way this guy phrased it despite his autism edward abbey's novels were never anywhere as good as cormac mccarthy's except that they were fun and as a guy who personally wrote a novel as an homage to Edward Abbey, I can fully agree with that sentiment. I could never write a novel the way Cormac McCarthy could, but I, I strive to write one the way Edward Abbey does because it's fun and it makes a fucking point. It's political, but it's exciting, and the story, you don't need to get political, but it's there if you want it, you know? Like, so... I don't know. I'm just I'm spitballing. What do you? What I do really you like. I really like that little bit that was just read out. I assumed that was Edward Abbey that was read out where he said he ended up um, looking at his hand and it was like a leaf on a branch. Was that Edward Abbey? Yeah, yeah. I love it. I mean, just beautiful way of writing. So I think I'd probably enjoy those books. I might get myself one of them. You should. I've got. I, I can. I'm looking at my shelf. I've got like, uh, like eight of them sitting up here. I could send nice. you one, Stella. <laughs> That's all right, man. <laughs> Postage. Let's not make them. Yeah, it'd be cheaper to just cheaper. buy it. Yeah. Cheaper to get a free download somewhere. I'm sure right, I'll right, find one. Right. <laughs> but no, he, he writes in a way that's very um direct, which is what I loved about it. It's it's like like uh apparently Cormac described him as a curmudgeon. Yeah, I can't disagree. He was. He was a bit of a curmudgeon, but he was fun to read. He just had a bad attitude. And guess what? What what choice can you have at this point but to have a little bit of a bad attitude? Especially when you know what's going on. Like this whole That's it. This whole near six hour yeah. podcast has been about food and land, but the one book that's opened my eyes to everything was Controlled Demolition of the American Empire which broadly kind of applies to all Western countries at the moment of the Anglo-American empire that we're all kind of a part of now. But Charlie Robinson and Jeff Berwick absolutely nailed it in this. And it it doesn't know so much narrowly focus on the idea of land and food, but everything else in between. And I think that paired with the books that you've mentioned, um, that's a way to wake people up for sure. Well, you can only try. Yeah, if you can get them to sit down and read something. Because most of this stuff is like, it's intense and it takes some concentration and it takes some time and it takes to be in a certain mindset, which let's face it, (laughs) some of the people out there just don't have that capacity to be in certain levels of thinking, whether they just don't have the capacity or whether they just choose not to. They just don't want to. It's not their thing. You know, they'd rather sit back and be mindlessly entertained by some crap while they eat their junk food, you know. Um, So... It's just that's why there's, you know, I guess we were talking recently about different, uh, you know, categories of people sort of it basically usually comes down to four. Um, I'm not an expert, but I know that a lot of categories do come down to four different types, which is interesting because a lot of the scenarios like the, you know, um, Black Rock Papers and the the SARS scenario things that they do um, are usually based on four different scenarios. (laughs) So... 
they've sort of got it covered. Like they have to do different things to cover different people and different personality types and what have you. But um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting um, interesting book. Is the Charlie ultimate Robinson's. way of is the ultimate way of culture blocking then opening up a little like hipster coffee shop and then deliberately having these types of books on the tables for people to read. Mm, mm. Does, do they talk much about the Tavistock Institute in that book? I mean, I, I'm sure it's in there, but does it, is do. there a lot of it based on, yeah, right. Oh, it's it's a spiderweb. Like you don't realise yeah. until you've read it. Like you have an idea as a conspiracy theorist, but he mm-hmm. just manages to wrap it up in a neat little bow. It yeah, really okay. Well, so so I hope I hope you all keep a little bit in the tank. And maybe you'll join me tomorrow for the WTF forum. <laughs> in, in a way, in a way, this was kind of like a trial balloon. Um, I'm thinking Quick, about shoot it taking, down. We, well, yeah, yeah, shoot it down. <laughs> Send a million dollar missile and uh, five yeah, of them. <laughs> for, for yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Anywho, I'm thinking about yeah. I'm thinking about the fact that maybe we should go longer. You know, because I'm not trying to appeal to some ideal of like. A commercially viable product i'm trying to like get to the to the root of issues like if we're gonna do a chat i mean three hours is a minimum yeah i used to think it was the maximum but i'm like maybe we start the forum a little earlier you know i'm i'm thinking about going even longer format this is a long format podcast but if it's worth going for four or five hours, I think it's worth going for four or five hours. It's worth going for fucking six. I don't give a fuck. You know, like, you know, <laughs> oh, I don't I'm know. happy. Like, I'm happy to not give a fuck together. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No I think fuck's it'd be really, here. it'd be really cool. You know, I, I was talking with Stella about like, what is the WTF forum? Again, this is not a WTF forum episode. This is just easy peasy, but, um, the WTF form, like it could be whatever it is. I just want it to be collaborative and I don't want any one person to own it. And I want it to go out in multiple places. And there could even be multiple forums simultaneously that don't necessarily intersect. But I want the idea to be that people come together and discuss what the fuck is going on. And um, I guess my point is like, you know, there's, there's, we have the precedent of the Grand Theft World podcast. They do like a six hour podcast every week. And it's because I love that show. I don't listen every week, but I love it. It's because it takes time. It really does. It just takes time to get through these big ideas. It absolutely does. And it's the inversion of, where they've led us, isn't it? We're all down to, you know, before it was, it's getting faster and faster. We're down to, they want, be, they want you used, for 15 seconds, 15 seconds. That's all they yeah, want. Yeah, 15. I think you're being generous. It used to be seven. I think it's about three now, isn't it? Because it's, <laughs> makes like goldfish look like elephants. I just like the idea we're weaponizing the idea of TED Talks, but packaging it something that's useful. <laughs> yeah. Well, the average, I, I think, t- TikTok kind of built you know it built itself around the 15 second thing no and you're right like ted talks had had the better idea it takes a little more um concentration a little more uh attention span right but like 
It's better. It's worthwhile. You might learn something. You cannot learn anything in 15 seconds. No, you can't, and you can't retain it because the, the, everything's chopping and changing all the time. So it's like this subject, that subject, the next thing. And so there's no depth, obviously, um, and no retaining at all. And we've all felt it, how much information goes through our eyes and fingers and everything. We are like a big energy cell that they're drawing on. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. The, the irony of the 15-second, like, TikTok or Reel or whatever that comes out, I think that's a psyop deliberately put into the conspiracy theory community because it's absolutely perfect for misinformation. Yeah. Lots of people can jump onto a quick little 15-second clip that puts out complete bullshit and then the entire conspiracy community is talking about it as being factual and they haven't actually done the due diligence and research themselves. Whereas yeah. if you sit down and listen to a six-hour podcast, my God, like today, you can actually go through the in-depth information of listening to videos, people discussing it, bouncing ideas around and really fleshing it out. Where that 15 seconds, it's telling the person what to think. Exactly. This is Programming. it. This is what it is. That's all it is. Yeah, exactly. Coding. Hmm. Yeah, we're it, we want to not be programming. We want to be like, I guess, educational, right? Like, yeah, in the truest sense of the word, like we don't want to tell you what to think. We just want to give you more to think about. We yeah, want to help they, you think. What did they do? They separated us. You know, twenty twenty, we were all separated. Remember, um, Kerry Chant here in Australia, she she was the New South Wales um, health witch and she dictated that, you know, during the lockdown thing, yes, you were allowed to go to the supermarket within 5Ks and get essentials, but she actually said, now if you see your neighbour in the aisles, don't stop and talk to them, just keep moving. You know, it was like this dictatorship of you can't eat despite having a mask on and all this stuff, which wolf the masks on, you know. Anyway, it was just like total. So this is the opposite of that. Is like they're trying to separate us. So we're we're educating through balanced discussion, which is exactly what they ripped away from us. If we're educating, we better bust out the turtlenecks and tweed jackets with leather patches. Because <laughs> well, the white lab coat worked, you know, the establishment. So maybe we should just like try and dress up for the occasion too. You got to. I have a. You got to. I have a stethoscope around my neck right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, any medical yeah, things just direct them to me we just we just have to project that we're experts in order to become them right that's right <laughs> well it's i tell you what y'all i think i think maybe that's about it for now uh like i said i hope maybe one or the both of you might join me tomorrow for the wtf forum um i've for got sure. a whole i've got a whole bunch of other shit for that so <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> You're not going to give us any hints either, are you? <laughs> mm, no, no, okay. probably not. But okay. fun stuff. Um, I'm trying to think. Actually, let me look at my notes. Maybe I could give you. Uh, Cold reactions I, definitely have I, a benefit. There's a benefit to it. Dissecting Mike's thoughts anyway. I seem to be you, dude. You do. You do. We're you we're all jump. learning. You. We're learning to read you, Mike. <laughs> okay. Okay. Actually, something fun, which maybe I could use some help with. I want to do a um, honorable honorable mentions for Baster Bogus, like people we have not talked about who people think might be based. So I've got like a short list. Um, but if you know of any like celebrities that might actually be based and you're pretty confident, 
I want to do honorable mentions saying like, these are the people who are pretty cool, but we haven't necessarily talked about them. Uh, okay. There's one, there's one hit. That's all. That's all I'm going to give you. Just enough to help you out. <laughs> all yeah. right. No worries. Got the list started already. <laughs> yeah. So if you know of any celebs that were like cool as fuck throughout COVID, uh, let me know. Because I want to ask. Oh, throughout COVID, particularly, is that the sort in of the particular? Theme? In particular, okay, right. Yeah, okay. like honor, honorable based. I want to mention. I want to mention those we have not mentioned before. So no worries. There'll cool. be probably a few Australian people you guys might not have heard of. But are you going to? Well, I'll wait for Drew to come <laughs> for that one. <laughs> if you're going to turn up. Because I'm sure there's a... saying the same few people that are coming to mind. Probably, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Aussies you guys know about anyway. Like, um, um, <laughs> I can't think of anyone. Hugh, Hugh Jackman. Uh, Hugh, that's, that's the like... guy I was trying to think of. I was Hugh Jack. All I could think of was Eddie. Someone. Hugh Jackman. Yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> that's like the main one. That's that like guy. the main one I know. Is he based yeah. or bogus? That's a really good question. I don't know. I I, I haven't looked into it. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. There's been a few conspiracy theory things that I didn't take too much notice of, but it was just enough to make well, me go, huh? What? I suppose it, he is Hollywood and move on. Between between now and tomorrow, if you think of anything, anybody, you know, like I said, I'm going to do like a little uh, honorable mentions thing and be like, you know, for all the folks that we have not mentioned, here you are. And we're going to we're going to dive deep into one of them. That's that's going to be the game. I'm going to make a game out of it. Like, here's all the honorable mentions. Now, who do you think Mike wants to talk about out of this list? So <laughs> that'll be fun. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. It's a plan. Cool. Well, I appreciate y'all jumping in. Uh, damn. Another 50 seconds and we're at six hours. Six. Yep. So let's wrap this up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that I'd jump in for maybe half an hour and get the tail end, but geez, I'm and here you are. <laughs> well, you know, land and food and guns, man. Like I said, I think like really it all boils down. It that's 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 it, man. Like I started with that theme. I I'm ending with it. Like yeah. food, land, and guns. It's it's all that really matters. There's a Jim Crochet song. Uh one hand on the no. Bible, the other on the gun. Okay. I thought you were thinking about the... Um, oh, Roller Derby the... Queen. <laughs> no, no. Lo Warren, I was thinking you were Leroy thinking Brown. of Warren, Warren Zevon. Lawyers, oh, okay. guns, and money. Lawyers, <laughs> guns, and money. The shit has hit the fan. You ever heard that one? That's a classic. No, I'm going to go and look that up right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good one. All right. Well, uh, I think that's enough for now. Uh, thanks for coming on the easy peasy podcast and let's see, do I have an outro? I've got an outro. We will talk. Podcast. Please go to easy peasy. Itty bitty. Tips. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>